Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff. We were off last week because yeah. Thanksgiving things. Yeah, family were coming in. It was hard to find time to record a podcast. I also got deathly ill for about two days. Right. With a flu or a stomach bug. You never quite know what that kind of thing is. Yeah. I legitimately, that is the closest I think I've ever been to death. Or that I okay. felt I was to death. Sure, like, yeah. there was a there was a time at about like... Four in the morning when I was like full on hallucinating different things and Great. couldn't sleep. Yeah. At one point where I was like, "Is this it? Is this what it feels like?" Because I don't know. I've never died before, but it was rough. You might you might not have gotten another episode of the podcast. Oh no! I mean that would be that would be the biggest tragedy probably. <laughs> yes. No, but I am okay now, or I'm getting there. Um, but we are back to talk about a whole lot of things this week. We are going to be basically, the, the umbrella topic this week is November game reviews. Yes. Because November was a big month. It had a lot of games. A and, lot of video games, And yes. also some overflow from the end of October. And we're going to try to talk about as much of it as we can. Yeah, we are loading a bunch of video games into a shotgun and just firing these reviews <laughs> at your face. Because holy shit. <laughs> like, because it's not just like video games... From like the past couple of weeks, but there's also some stuff that I finished around the time we recorded the last podcast that we didn't have time to talk about then. So right. Like, it's just, there's a, we've got a lot of video game stuff backed up. Absolutely. And a couple of little movie reviews and things like that. So we will get into all of that. First off, quick programming note. We are using an old microphone this week. Um, our normal microphone, which is the Blue Yeti, which I saw was on sale on Black Friday and I was yes. like... I was almost like, oh, should I get like a backup one? And I'm like, no, that's yeah, that's being stupid. Dumb. That's yeah. really stupid. But I had the exact same thought. Yeah, ex- indeed. But anyway, so that one actually is stuck at my office, and I can't get into my office over the weekend. So anyway, don't have that microphone at the moment. We're using our old blue snowball, which is fine. We actually yeah, stopped, old faithful. Old faithful. We stopped using it because we thought there was a technical issue. Turns out that was an issue with our software, not the blue snowball. So hopefully this sounds okay. Won't know until we're done. But, uh, especially because this one does not have an input for me to, like, put in headphones and check the audio as it comes out. Luckily, the Yeti does have that, and I do that sometimes. But anyway. So, yeah. Should be fine. Uh, So, if the audio sounds a little different this week, though, that is why. Yeah. But let's go ahead and get into it, Sean. Um, Really, our our question of, like, what stuff have you been up to is going to be our topic. So, we'll hold off on that, like, with games and stuff. But I do want to start with a couple of movie reviews and programming notes All right. and stuff. Because uh, a lot of this is just going to tie to stuff I've been writing on the website lately. If you noticed, I've written a lot of stuff for the site in the last month, yeah. which was fun. I like writing, and I don't get to do it enough. So anyway, um, first thing I saw right after we recorded the last podcast. Actually, I probably saw it and wrote about it before the last podcast came out. But that was one we recorded early. Uh, and this is the movie Arrival. Right. And, Sean, you need to see this movie in theaters. I am well aware of this fact. I, I rarely make that declaration to you on the podcast, but you need to see it in theaters and we need to talk about it here okay. because, holy fuck, I actually just saw it again last night because my family wanted to see it and I had not seen it with them yet. And um, it, the rare thing where I hype a movie to them and then they come out and they were like, you were 100% right, Jonathan. That, was, that felt good. Yeah. But anyway, it's also, it, it is a great movie, a beautiful movie. If you have not seen it, I do not watch a trailer, do not look at my review or anyone else's, just go see it and experience it. It is great. I talk about a little bit in my review that I think it is in this really interesting trend going on in movies right now where intelligent sci-fi has been kind of a big thing in the 2010s, in this decade. And I actually think when future film historians look back at this time and write about it, I think that is the most significant trend going on in Hollywood right now. Not commercially, that's superheroes. Yeah. But in terms of like artistically, and I think the works that are really going to survive, people are going to look at this time period from like 
2008 when Duncan Jones made Moon and sort of the indie boom and that kind of thing to like 2011, 12, 13, 14 where every year we've had these really smart big sci-fi movies in October, November like Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity and Christopher Nolan's Interstellar and uh, Arrival is sort of this year's. But I think, and those are specifically like movies sort of about space and travel and things like that. But if you just expand that a little bit, you also have movies like Spike Jonze's Her or things like that where it's science fiction of a more sort of grounded way or you have um the movie Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson which is a very oblique kind of sci-fi just things like that where I think it's a really fascinating trend going on in movies right now and Arrival is absolutely one of the best of those um it is wickedly intelligent it is beautifully made the cinematography in this is easily the best I've seen this year and 100% deserves that cinematography Oscar come February Bradford Young who is kind of an up-and-coming director of photography just paints a visual masterpiece here and Amy Adams is in this and I think it's her best work to date which I think is saying something for Miss Amy Adams um, thank, she was probably thinking throughout this movie Thank god this isn't Batman v Superman Yeah exactly like, <laughs> you know, like it, it, She's balancing out her career very well this year I mean let's we'll be fair. Batman v Superman probably paid her more And yeah, I, I do yeah. not begrudge her that One bit but I'm glad that she also Gets to do something artistically satisfying Yeah that's the most you can hope for <laughs> Yes absolutely So anyway um, and then the, the director of this Dennis Villeneuve, Villeneuve Who has been steadily making Better and better movies over the last few years And just this is his masterpiece It's so fantastic And if you weren't excited for the Blade Runner sequel before Watch Arrival This is the same creative team that is making that Okay. And then you will be excited for that Blade Runner sequel Because again, I do not need a Blade Runner sequel But I do need another cool future sci-fi movie from this team Yeah. So I will watch the shit out of that so anyway, Arrival is so good. I wrote about it online. I was really proud of that review, but it is a spoilery review because I don't think there is any other way to talk about this movie. So don't read that review until you've seen the movie. Um, everything before the jump is okay, but then I say spoilers coming and then go away. And then, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you say spoilers coming, there's no lie that there's some spoilers coming. Right, and people don't get to bitch about that either. Exactly. <laughs> if they, like, just scroll on past, whoop-de-doo, oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, um, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Yes, that movie, is another movie that came out. Another movie that came out. Not as good as Arrival, which I think goes without saying, because it's a totally different kind of movie. Yeah. But it's really good. I was excited for this movie as a Harry Potter fan, but honestly as a fan of the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. And wanting to see that creative team get to do more in this world, especially kind of unchained from the books and just getting to make a movie. And I think it's really good. I think J.K. Rowling, she wrote the script. She does a great job. Um, her voice goes so intact to the screen. And in fact, it's kind of funny... That this movie is not based on obviously any pre-existing Harry Potter source material, but it feels very true to like the books and kind of that side of the world in a way the movies sometimes didn't because they were written by other people and obviously had to adapt these giant tomes right. into two two and a half hour movies um, to the point where it's hilarious. Like this entire movie is built around, or the background of it is built around this piece of lore from the books that really is not in the films in any significant way. Like if you were only a film watcher, you wouldn't even know. The name of this character Yeah like there has been Obviously I know some people who are big Harry Potter fans And I have heard talk about some shit that I'm like I have literally no idea what you people are talking about And I read the first three books And saw all these movies I don't fucking remember any of this Yeah so I like that J.K. Rowling didn't give a fuck Just like I know it wasn't in the movies but fuck it 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 still happened 
Yeah. So anyway, that's fun. It's a good movie. The cast is just tremendous. So many good actors um, at work here. The visuals are great. It's very fun. It's a lot of funny. It's a much lighter movie than most of the Harry Potter films, which I think is good. And I think, you know, as they're starting up a new kind of series or whatever, that's fine. I liked it a lot. Um, so I wrote two articles for the site. I wrote one that was just a retrospective on the films because I think those films have become strangely underrated to me just as pieces of filmmaking. Right. Especially when I look at, let's say, what movies WB is making right now. Yeah. And I think, man, they went off a cliff after they lost Harry Potter in terms of filmmaking talent. Um, and I think you can write the same story about like Chris Nolan Batman to Zack Snyder Batman. Right. And like, boy, they traded down on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, I wrote about that and that was a good, I, I had wanted to write that article for forever. So I got that one out and then a review of Fantastic Beasts on the site. That's spoiler free, but I do want to talk in spoiler terms for a second about All Fantastic right. Beasts because this was not something that bothered me so much. I felt like I had to write a second article about it, but I thought I could bitch about it on the podcast. Great. I mean, that's, that is literally why this podcast exists. Yes. So. so, okay. Fantastic Beast has been out for two weeks. I am going to talk about spoilers for a few minutes. So fast forward or look at the time codes. I'll probably write that out here right. uh, in case I forget. Um, sorry. But anyway, and if you, if you haven't seen the movie... Actually, who has not seen the movie who wants to see the movie? I guess that's my question. With the yeah, film sure. Like yeah, like I, if you had stopped that question at who hadn't seen the movie, I was about to raise my hand. When but, you went on to who wanted to see the movie, then I could put my hand back Right. In. And you probably won't be bothered if I spoil it. No, I don't know. Okay. shit. Yeah. So anyway, the character I was talking about, the piece of lore, is the dark wizard Grindelwald, who is in the Harry Potter books. You find out a lot. Of, he's mentioned in like the first few books, but you learn a lot about him in the sixth and primarily the seventh books. Um, because while Deathly Hallows, the movie, it's two parts, so obviously it had a lot of the book in there. It actually cut a pretty substantial thread from the book. And the biggest thing it did is there's almost a novel within a novel in Deathly Hallows that is sort of Dumbledore's backstory, okay. um, which Harry needs to learn about in order to kind of defeat Voldemort. And Dumbledore, a lot of Dumbledore's backstory is about this dark wizard Grindelwald, who was kind of like Voldemort, although a little he, he wasn't as murdery. You could say. Um, slightly less sli dark wizard. Slightly less dark wizard, yes. Um, but Grindelwald um, grew up near Dumbledore, and they were friends. And it's intimated in, like, J.K. Rowling's conversations that that's where the notion that Dumbledore is gay comes from, okay. for instance. Um, and so Grindelwald and Dumbledore were friends, and they were even, because they were both, you know, young, smart, kind of arrogant men, um, they were sort of thinking that they did not like the way that wizards were living uh, hidden from muggles, and so they wanted to sort of... Go out and kind of take over the Muggle world. Yeah, not yeah. In a way, fucking that, yeah, yeah. That would be a way better movie. Not quite in like the Voldemort sense of kill them all, but no, yeah. Whole... That's that's you're not taking over the Muggle world. Then you're just destroying it. Yeah. So the whole idea was getting the wizards out from the shadows and integrating, but in a way that put wizards on top. And their their line was consistently the greater good for the greater good. Like I want to see a movie that's like the Matrix, only instead of machines, it was wizards trapped normal people and used them <laughs> as human batteries to generate magic energy. Like I want to see that movie. Well, apparently they're making five of these Fantastic Beasts, so maybe... great. Yeah, hopefully that's where it gets. Hopefully, like the last one is set like a hundred years past the end of Harry Potter, and you find out that Dumbledore never died, and it was all part of his real plan. To take over the human world. That'd I, be great. I, I hope the Wachowskis direct it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and Michael Gambon like knew the whole time. J.K. Rowling told him when he took over the role, like, "Hey, this is the plan." Yes. Anyway, I was I was on the piece of backstory from Deathly Hallows. Anyway, yeah. in the books, this ties into how they discover the Deathly Hallows objects themselves, which. 
They explain in the movie, but if you watch the movie version, I don't think you'd even understand the significance of all that to the plot. Uh, in the books, it's much more directly tied in. And anyway, Grindelwald had, like, as his symbol, the symbol of the Deathly Hallows, because he was trying to uh, unite those objects as part of his whole plot, blah, blah, blah. Dumbledore realized the error of his ways, defeated Grindelwald, and that's why in, like, the lore of Harry Potter, that's the first big thing that put Dumbledore as, like, the most famous wizard in this world. Okay. Was the defeat of Grindelwald in, like, the 1940s. Um, and then Harry Potter is set 50 years later in the 90s. So that's kind of the backstory that goes into this movie, because Fantastic Beasts is set in the 20s near the beginning of Grindelwald being out, kind of being a criminal, doing bad things. So the wizarding world is sort of on edge, because this dude is out there and they don't really know what he wants or what he's trying to do. So... For most of Fantastic Beasts, it, it's a background thing and it doesn't so much matter. And I want to say the complaint I'm about to have in no way affects like my overall enjoyment of the movie because I think it's a really good movie. And unlike a lot of movies that are very franchise-minded and like, we're going to make seven of these, this does not feel like it's just a bunch of setup for other movies. It tells a story, it has a beginning, middle, and end, and it has character resolutions, and I think it works as a movie. And... You know, again, let's just say, in contrast to another Warner Brothers movie this year, sure. or maybe two of them. Right, yeah, <laughs> there were two of them. Yeah, were there. That are not movies, but commercials for other movies. So anyway, Fantastic Beasts is not that. But at the end of the film, there's this character played by Colin Farrell, who was an Auror at the um, American Congress, the, the Magical Congress of the USA. So the, sure. the American Wizard Government. And he is an Auror The House there. of Magical Representatives. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he seems like a pretty dark guy. Um... But, you know, he kind of goes back and forth on whether you think he's the villain. Um, but anyway, at the end of the movie, the Colin Farrell character is revealed to be Grindelwald, living okay. in disguise. And they, like, demystify him. And it turns out it's Johnny Depp playing Grindelwald. And, oh, no. And then they lock him up and assumedly he'll get out because, you know, we know what happens. Um, and... Yeah, I don't need Johnny Depp in movies really at all anymore. Sure. But specifically in this context, one, Colin Farrell is really good in this movie, as he usually is. I don't think it's going out on a limb. I think Colin Farrell, one, is a much better actor than Johnny Depp. Yes, I would agree with that. Like, I think Johnny Depp, maybe the Johnny Depp who was a good actor is still in there somewhere, but we haven't seen him in a while. Yeah, and, and specifically, you can't expect him to show up on a movie like this. Like, if yeah. it was some, like, weird indie film or something that, like, somehow got Johnny Depp, you'd be like, oh, maybe he'll, like, turn in a much more sort of, like, human performance. Yeah. And he's in a Harry Potter movie. I think you know the exact performance Johnny Depp's going to go for. Right. And specifically because Grindelwald is supposed to be kind of the less cartoony Voldemort. He is, like... I think an, a villain who you would sit down and have more of a reasonable conversation yeah, it's with. It's like Voldemort if he still had his nose. We, we could put it that way. And again, once we see Johnny Depp, it's not even regular Johnny Depp. It's Johnny Depp in silly makeup. And Is there any other kind of Johnny Depp these days? No, not even in his most like subdued performance in the last few years, which was when he played Whitey Bulger exactly. in Black Mask, yeah. he is still caked in makeup in that movie, and it's the most distracting thing of that movie. I don't, I think I feel like Johnny Depp has like eschewed his normal human form at some point, and he doesn't <laughs> want anyone to find out that he's like some sort of weird thought creature. Yes, indeed. So, anyway, uh, that just disappoints me, because I think the performance Colin Farrell is turning in in this movie is... Exactly what I would want out of the character Grindelwald having read the books. Like right before they unmask him, which also just feels too much like a Scooby Doo moment. It's like, it was Grindelwald the whole time! Yeah, or like like what you were kind of insinuating that it's like, it's a bit too much of that, like, hey, we're saving this for the sequel, like, yes. ha Like, that sounds like it's a bit of much of that. Yeah. Um, but Colin Farrell is so good, and in his scene right before he's unmasked, he has this whole kind of speech 
Um, and he is so legitimately human and menacing at the same time in that moment, and I really liked it. And my working assumption through the whole movie, because there are hints that he's tied to Grindelwald, like he carries the sign of the Deathly Hallows, and I just, but I assumed it was going to be like he's a minion of Grindelwald. Sure, yeah. And then maybe at the end, because I had had it spoiled the Johnny Depp cameos, and I thought... I heard that he was going to be involved in these movies. I didn't know he was in this one. Yeah. And so I thought maybe Johnny Depp would come in at the end to, like, rescue or kill his minion or something. Johnny Depp was playing young Dumbledore, which would be equally <laughs> awful casting. Oh my god, that'd be bad. Yeah, anyway. Um, but yeah, so it's... It's the, it's the biggest thing is just that Colin Farrell is so good. Yeah. And then, yeah, it would not make narrative sense for him to literally be Grindelwald. But I think they could find a way to make it work, given how good he is in the movie. And really, I think, like, once you're seeing the dailies, all you have to do is go to J.K. Rowling and say, Joe... He's really good. Do we have to do the Johnny Depp thing? And she'd probably go, yeah, we can, let me do a rewrite. All right, we're done. Okay, we rewrote rewrote this scene so that when Colin Farrell takes the mask off, it's just Colin Farrell (laughs) underneath the whole time. Yeah. No, but it's just disappointing on that level. And because Johnny Depp playing Grindelwald feels like it's an attempt to do what they had with Ray Fine as Voldemort in that it's kind of going to be a larger than life thing. And I don't need or want that again, right. especially because Johnny Depp is definitely a less good actor than Ray Fine. <laughs> yes. Who yeah. is, you know, Voldemort is a kind of legendary screen villain because Ray Fine is so good in that part. And I just don't see Johnny Depp bringing that same kind of weight to this. Yeah. So that is disappointing. And as their main, that's really the only big hook for future movies here, that one is disappointing and just makes me feel like. That's lazy and kind of gimmicky and not... Doesn't feel like a Harry Potter thing. Because I feel like Harry Potter got a lot of big actors, but I feel like they got the best actors for every part. Yeah. Not... Because Johnny Depp isn't even, I feel like, in the zeitgeist at the moment. He's other than beating his wife, which we could also talk about. Right. Um, I almost forgot about that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Hollywood did too. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway... Hey, Pirates of the Caribbean 5 is almost out soon? Yeah. Anyway... Yeah, so, I don't know. It just felt weird and bad. You know what that sounds almost exactly like to me? Season 3 of Doctor Who, where they pull the master switcheroo, it, it sounds like the ex- literally that, the exact same thing. That's the comparison I made to my little brother when yeah. we went to see it. As I said, it's like, you have Derek Jacoby, great yeah, British just, actor. Just brilliant British character actor would pull in just an unbelievable performance as the master, and you see a hint of it at the end of that one right. episode. And then it's... Just a guy who's bouncing off the walls. Yeah. Then it's the Joker. It's like, well, shit, you really wasted this opportunity. Yeah, like, here's the test. Take the Colin Farrell character you see in this movie and imagine him op- acting opposite Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. Yeah. I can see that. Okay, that yeah. sounds good. Take Johnny Depp in any given role and imagine him acting opposite Michael Gambon's Dumbledore. Can you do it? No, you cannot. No. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm having a lot of fun imagining Michael Gambon, like, trying to react to Captain Jack Sparrow in my head, yes. but that's a very different kind of amusement. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to be Michael Gambon in the next one, because he, the character would be 70 years younger. Yeah, unless they want to, like, really go really far with that de-aging stuff that Hollywood seems yeah. to be having fun with. Uh, my brother and I were also playing the game of who should play young Dumbledore, because I think that's a fun um, thing, because there's so many younger British actors who I think would excel at that. Yeah. And, of course, it comes back to the people who have played Doctor Who, 
Matt Smith would be exceptionally good for that part. Yeah, I agree. I was actually thinking that exact same thing. Uh, especially because now I've, I've, we, we've started seeing Matt Smith in other things. He's in this Netflix show called The Crown, which you should watch if you have Yeah, haven't. I haven't had an opportunity to get onto it yet. I've only seen the first two, and I need to watch the rest. It's very good. And after about a half hour, I stopped thinking he was going to pull out a sonic screwdriver. And then I was like, he's a, he's a good, versatile actor, as we expected he would be. Yeah. But we're still in that transitional phase um, for any Doctor, where you're still trying to get the image of the Doctor out of your head when you see them in anything yeah, else. Yeah, it's like the first two or three episodes of Broadchurch, and you're just like, man, I can't, this is hard, this is hard to watch the Doctor be this down. I think that's harder with Jessica Jones, because he's using the same accent. Yeah. In Broadchurch, at least, he's full Scottish. Yeah, he's full Scottish and full scruff yes. all the way down. Yep. Alright, well anyway, uh, that's just a couple of random things. My only other thing, which I'm not going to go into too much detail on here... Gilmore Girls came back on Netflix this weekend. Right, yes, I saw you tweeting about that furiously. I, oh, it was so good. It's so good. I was obviously very excited about this. I did a four-day, four-part countdown. Well, I don't know countdown because I did it chronologically. Of my 20 favorite episodes of the original Gilmore Girls series, with which I really, really love. And anyway, so I did that kind of to prepare for the revival. The revival came out Friday. It's the only Netflix show I've ever done this for where I waited until 1 a.m., so I could watch the first episode. Okay. Because I just, I would not be able to go to sleep if I hadn't seen a little bit of it. Sure. And it is so good. So the way they did this is it's it's really not like a season. It's four specials, 90 minutes each. Um, it's called A Year in the Life because it's each special is like tied to a season. And really though, what it feels like to me is one six-hour Gilmore Girls movie. Because the thing it does so well, in addition to a host of other things, is it has a very clear thematic through line of... This is the story we want to tell with these characters to finish this, you know, story off. And we are going to tell it, and we're going to tell it clearly and precisely, and I think they do it tremendously well. Um, If you don't know kind of the history of the series, the creator of the show, Amy Sherman Palladino, who is like the voice of that series. You can't do it without her. They tried doing it without her because they fired her after the sixth season for contract reasons. And then the final season of that show was not written with the creator. And I don't think it's as bad as some people say it is. It's got some good stuff, and the actual series finale was very good. But it's it's a little rough because the dialogue does not sound kind of like it should, and there's some other problems with it. Um, so this revival, unlike you know a lot of these revivals that are going on, really has a reason to exist, which is that creator coming back and getting to put the punctuation note on their story. Right. So that's nice. Um, the one of the main characters, Edward Herman, who played um, the, the the grandfather patriarch of the family, uh, Richard Gilmore, he had passed away about two years ago. So that also gives it kind of this emotional hook, hook because the whole story of this revival is kind of the characters dealing with that death and loss in their lives. And I just think they rose to the occasion so magnificently. I think, and this is beyond me just being kind of a fanboy for the series. I was obviously excited for it. It legitimately surpassed my expectations. I think those four 90-minute specials are tremendous. There are some problems here and there, but not as many as I would have expected. Because you, you see like a 90-minute thing, and you're like, that's going to drag somewhere. Right, yeah. And I think the only one that does is the third episode. Otherwise, I think they use their length very well. They manage to have a lot of the small moments and silly moments that define that series while also feeling like this was an evolution artistically and emotionally over what they got to do back in the day on the WB in 42-minute chunks. Um, so I loved it. I think it builds to such a powerful conclusion. That last episode is phenomenal, and the payoff it starts doling out over the last, like, 70 minutes of that last episode is just tremendous, up up to, I think, the very end. 
Um, so I really, really loved it. I am working on an article on it, but my my notes were like 6,000 words before I started writing anything. Right. And now it's more, and it might be completely unwieldy, so I'll see if I have time to actually finish that. But I really loved those four episodes. Don't let anyone spoil them for you if you're a fan. Watch them. They are beautiful and they are great. And, man, that was like the highlight of my year. So cool. You know, I, I got my X-Files coming back. I'm glad you got Gilmore Girls coming back. Definitely. And, you know, coming back and feeling... You know, because I've seen some of these other revivals, like specifically the good comparison, because it's also Netflix is Arrested Development. Oh, right. And that was so bad. And the Arrested Development season of Netflix is just broken in so many ways. Primarily, it doesn't feel like Arrested Development. This felt like Gilmore Girls, and more so, it felt like a Gilmore Girls that had artistically evolved in some tangible way over the original series. And that, to me, is like the holy grail of what you want these 10-year-later revivals to be. Yeah. You know? So I really liked this, and you know, um, maybe that bodes well for other revivals coming out. Yeah, I am. You know, Twin I, Peaks is still in the, the one, barrel. Yeah. That's the one that I am so fascinated with, because I'm frankly expecting that to just feel like a totally different show. Yeah, but we'll see. Yeah, who anyway. knows? Like that—that that could be anything. That could literally be anything. Yeah. So, yeah, I, this is to me. This is why Netflix exists, and and does great things like this and you know that they had the whole catalog and got a lot of people into the show over the last few years like me and that allowed them to make this revival and put it out and yeah i think that's a really cool thing that they did and obviously it wasn't just me hyping this thing online i think this was probably one of the bigger draws netflix has ever had for audiences if you consider that this show is almost 20 years old at this point right and has a multi-generational fan base so yeah anyway that was all cool Let's go ahead and talk some news. Okay. Um, In the news. Unless you have any TV shows to talk about. Uh, No, not really. Okay. No, yeah. We'll have Doctor Who to talk about in like a month and a half. Oh, actually, remind me, I do have something briefly to, I guess, mention, is I did end up watching the first episode of Class, that that Doctor Who spinoff. It's okay. Like, it's (laughs) if you are comparing it to, like, Torchwood and Sarah Jane Adventures and stuff like that, or the fucking canine... The fucking pilot they made in the 80s with Sarah Jane that is fucking terrible that I watched because, of course, I watched it. Like, if you're comparing it to those, like, classes, by far the best Doctor Who spinoff there's been. And, like, I'm actually very curious to see, eventually, like, because the, the season's wrapping up soon. I think it's only eight episodes long. And so I'm going to watch the whole season because that's not a huge investment. And I am actually really curious to see where they're going to go and see, like, you know, most shows have a very sort of awkward pilot and this was felt like a sort of, like, you know, it's the first episode of a TV show, and they're kind of trying to find their footing. They're trying to sort of figure out their characters and stuff like that. And there's some awkward things where it's like, you know, how many of like the main, how much time some of the main cast get next to others. Like, it sort of was hard to get a feel for some of the characters. But overall, I, I like that episode quite a bit. And then when Peter Capaldi is in it for like the solid like last 15 minutes of it as the Doctor, and there's something that's really cool about that sense of. That, like, class is mostly very much its own thing, but you do get the sense of, like, the Doctor is out there and he is doing stuff. And, like, the the sort of inception of the series is kind of like a Doctor Who episode you never saw. And you're seeing the aftermath of that and these characters having to deal with, like, all this shit of, like, the like aliens and, and their planet being destroyed and all and coming to Earth and that kind of stuff. Awesome. I, actually... I, think, I think it is worth a watch for, for people who are curious. Who are people who are fans of Doctor Who are just... Are fans of sort of like sci-fi television. I think it's it's just a well-made thing. Yeah, I have the first few episodes on my laptop, but I have not found the time to watch them yet. So. Yeah, yeah. Like, it is certainly... It is not bad at all. Like, it's, it's like... I think it's like... 
some people have liked it a lot more than I did online. Like, there's some people who really like this show a lot. And, like, I think that's cool. Like, I, I would go in with sort of measured expectations. I would also go in knowing that, like... Because there's just something that really surprised me. The show is significantly more violent than Doctor Who. And it's oh. like, there's... It's not, like, in extreme, but it was surprising enough of, like, oh, there's blood in this show. I just wasn't expecting that, because you don't even see that Doctor Who. Because I was assuming this was more of a kid's show. No, it's the opposite. It, it okay. almost sort of, like, it's not as sort of, like, in-your-face about it as Torchwood was, but it is, the, like, the more sort of adult show that deals with more no adult themes, even if it's set in high school. Nothing could possibly be more in-your-face about it than the, Torchwood the Torchwood, where it just felt like they tried to find some way to get characters to talk about sex in every single conversation. Because you can, because it's edgy, because it's for adults it's a dark show for dark people yes well anyway that's cool i look forward to watching more of that i also want to know why the fuck no one is simulcasting this in america when we've had that yeah we, we dealt with that with doctor who years ago why is this still a thing yeah i don't know so even dragon ball is simulcasting yeah i i watched the most recent episode of dragon ball super just this afternoon while i was eating lunch it's pretty nice. good yeah, I've kind of started going back into that with it's it's nice on Crunchyroll HD official subs. Yeah, you don't wonderful. have to deal with any fucking fan sub bullshit. Yeah. So, although the the subtitles are funny when they try to pull in random dub terminology and then mix it with Japanese, my favorite being King Kai Sama. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a hard thing to deal with of like who are you writing the subs for? Is it for people who are fans of the dub? Is it the people who are like new to Dragon Ball? It's, it's yeah. hard to figure some of that stuff out. But it's just funny. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, cool. Um, let's talk about some news. We'll go with the big piece of news first. Persona 5. Yeah. Which we hear is one of the greatest games ever made. From yeah. Sony, yeah. 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 Uh, has been delayed in the United States from its original date of February 14th to April 4th. Um, which sounds like they're pretty sure about it this time. So I yeah, imagine yeah. it will come out then. Uh, although they did say in the same... In the blog post where they announced it, they said kind of as a... Um, bonus for the delay they are going to have as free DLC because they can't like fit it on the disc I assume yeah because it's a lot of data yeah uh, dual audio so you will be able to play the game in full in English or in Japanese which I think is an awesome announcement yeah but also fills me with anxiety because now I have to figure out what fucking language I'm playing in, it in the actual answer is both but then it's which yeah. order I mean yeah I mean I feel like the answer is pretty clear for me of which language I'm going to play it in which is both. I already did both. Yes. Or I will do both when it comes out now. Well, that's going to be the weird thing, because I feel like I should probably just play it in English, because that's how you'll be playing it, yeah. and then we can discuss it. But I'm glad it's there. I think that's yeah, something that I wish do. more games had. Have they said if Final Fantasy XV has dual audio yet? Um, I imagine it will, because all like the demos have had dual audio. That's, yeah. Cause, so I, I hope it does. Because I know the Japanese voices from like the anime, so I kind yeah. of... like I have nothing, I'm sure it's going to be a good dub. I just kind of... I know those voices from Japanese, so I'd yeah. like to play it that way. But yeah, so anyway, that's really cool that Persona 5 will have that. It is, this This game is getting into, like, Final Fantasy XV territory, or The Last Guardian, or something of, like, it has been delayed a lot. I mean, but the thing that's very different, obviously, about this delay is that the game is done. Right. I can, I can assure you the game has already been finished. It's just that, like, I'm actually not that surprised that it has been delayed, just in the sense of having played the game... Like the like localizing this game seems like it would be really hard, even compared to other Persona games. Oh, yeah, I, in that it is the longest, and then there's like a lot of different sort of tiers of text and dialogue and stuff that the other Persona games didn't have. That like this game sort of presents some of that stuff in different ways. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit on this podcast. The UI in Persona Five mm -hmm. is so artistically complex and yeah. like ambitious 
that you know it's pretty easy to do it in like Persona Three because it's just like text menus. You know, yeah. In this, it's not just text menus, but it's like hand drawn artistic stuff. Yeah, and a lot of times the text really is a part of the menu design, and some of that stuff is actually in English text that I think they could maybe just use that like the Japanese menus as is for some of that stuff, but for other stuff they can't. And you know, like you want to ideally be able to sort of redraw that stuff and have it fit the art style. And like that, it's it's a lot more of a complex effort. And then also just a lot of the stuff, like the themes and stuff that the game tackles, it's just the idea of like translating and localizing some of those scenes is fucking crazy and really hard. And some of the characters like Morgana, like what you have to do to sort of like do well by that character as they are represented in the Japanese version and translate that into English somehow. Like that shit's really hard. And so like I'm I'm as obviously it's easy for me to say because I've already played the game, but I'm glad that they are taking the time to make sure that they do all that stuff as as best as they possibly can. Yeah, I mean, even with a game where I am this fucking excited for it, end of the day, what's another six weeks? If it's gonna be the best version of itself, that's all I care about. Yeah. And I'm very, still very excited. And I think, you know, you're talking about the localization. They even put out with this announcement some of the first official screenshots of the dub version. Yeah. And you get to see some of what they've done in translating menus and like the random dialogue that pops up when you're in crowds. And just if you want to know why this is so tough, take one of those and compare it to the Japanese and then be like, right, they have to do 100 hours of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So a, it is a very big game. Yeah, so I'm excited, and I, you know, they put out some more art of like what's the final special edition going to look like and things like that. And again, that dual audio announcement is cool. And yeah, I mean, that's something that I really wish was just standard in the industry, whether it's a Japanese game or a Polish game or whatever. Like I, yeah, I mean, whether it's video games or movies or anything, like I, I wish that things had that sort of more standard where it's like, yes, like the original language will be available to you in some form. And then obviously we will have the localized version for most people. But I mean, they even talked about it in the blog post. It, they had they said it was like moving heaven and earth to get this to happen. Because yeah. especially with video games and you think of different unions across the world and video game actors and contracts, it can be really tough to get that to happen. Yeah. And I'm really glad they did. And if that's any part of the delay, I think that is totally worth an extra six weeks to have that dual audio on there. Yeah. So I am so psyched for this game. And, yeah, it'll be April instead of February. But, hey, that gives us more time to play other games because, frankly, next year is already looking insane. Yeah, the first half of next year is already just, like, just looks crazy. It just looks unfair in some ways and how crazy it is. You know what this specifically freed up for me? What? Is they announced um, that this was this happened a few months ago, but I I still want to talk about it. Um, they announced that they are localizing another Digimon game here. Yes. Um, so this year we got Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, and they're doing the same thing with another Vita game that was only Vita in Japan, but it'll be PS4 over here, and it's called Digimon World Next Order, and it's from a different line of Digimon games. But I did actually read some like coverage of it from like import reviews. Uh, this year because people were kind of writing about that because people were so interested in Cyber Sleuth. And they're saying, this one's really good too. And this one seems cool. And so I w- I'm excited for that, obviously, because Cyber Sleuth, spoiler, is going to be one of my like top three games of the year. Yeah, and it's up there. So it's, um, but it's coming out January 31st here in the States. And now that Persona is not coming out like two weeks later, I... I, I pulled the trigger and pre-ordered that because, okay. shit, I'm going to play more fucking Digimon and I hope this Man. becomes an annual thing. I love that out of the two of us, you're the one who pre-ordered the next Digimon game. The guy who, like, hasn't seen any Digimon sitting next it. to the dude who's, like, I love caught it. up on Digimon Adventure Try. It's so good. 
It's so good. And they even, if you pre-order it from Amazon, you get a soundtrack and everything. It's great. Okay, that's you good. Pre-order that shit. Yeah. Support it because this is so cool. I love that we are in, and I'll talk about this later with um, one of the games I'm going to be reviewing. I love that we are in this time where audiences on the PS4 and the 3DS in different places are big and diverse enough that a company can bring over a game, not have to worry about the dialogue, like in terms of the voice acting, just translate the text, everything else can be intact, and we get the game. And that's not a small feat by any means, yeah. but 10 years ago we weren't getting that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, Persona 5 is going to be a big production where everything's going to be you know, fully done in English, and that's great. But with like Digimon Story, Cyber Sleuth, or some of the recent Dragon Ball games, I think it's really cool that they can just say, you know what, the game is perfectly fine with Japanese voices, we just need to translate the text, and then we get that over here, and I want to support that where I can, because I think it's yeah. a really cool trend going on right now. No, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's the news in terms of games. Otherwise, we have some movie trailers to talk about we in do. the last two weeks. Yeah. I think this is a segment... We and our listeners like sometimes where we just talk about random movie trailers. It's one of my favorite things we do on the podcast, honestly. There's yeah. something there's something fun about talking about movie trailers just as much about like your anticipation of the movie as much as it is about like rating movie trailers in terms of what they are as trailers. Absolutely. So we're going to start with some big Hollywood ones and then we're going to move into more obscure areas. But I want to start with Beauty and the Beast, okay, which yeah. got its first actual trailer. This is the movie that um, is basically a remake of the Disney animated film. This is in their sort of current line of live action remakes or reimaginings of animated classics. And this one is uh, directed by Bill Condon. It stars Emily Watson. Emily Watson. That's a different actress. Emma Watson. Um, both British actresses. Yeah. One is older than the other. I can forgive you for getting those yeah. names mixed up. Anyway, second. but Emma Watson of Harry Potter fame playing Belle. Um, I will say... This is another in this line of Disney live-action movies that looks so much better than it has any right to be. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what to do with it. Because yeah. I can't... That's a good trailer. I can't really make fun of it. Yeah. Except to say that when you do it photorealistically, the, like, animated objects look super creepy. Yeah, it, it's just one of those things where it's kind of like the same sense of, like, The Jungle Book, which I haven't seen that yet, but I know, you, like, you and a lot of people really liked it. But Tre it's, tremendous movie. You, like, just look at it like, is this... A, like, do we need to make this movie... But, you yeah. know, like, you can you can make a good movie out of anything, even if it's, like, a weird, unnecessary remake of, yeah. obviously, like, this beloved animated classic. Right. And, I mean, my, my it's number... Weird, it's such a weird idea to think about making a live-action Beauty and the Beast to me. It is. And, although, there are several classic live-action Beauty and the Beast throughout sure. history. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, specifically, like, of the animated Disney Beauty and the right. Beast, not the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast. Exactly. Um, shout out to the Jean Cocteau version, if you have never seen it and you want to... Like, honestly, if you want to get high and just love a movie, I did not do this with Beauty and the Beast because I was TAing the class where we saw this, so that would have been super inappropriate, but... Or would it have been the most appropriate thing to do to just, like, fucking get out a bag and just be like, hey, guys, fucking let's go to town. Smoke them if you got them. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to lock the doors, we're going to put towels under the windows, we're going to hot box this shit, let's do this. <laughs> You really could do that in that room, too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, have you seen the Jean Cocteau Beauty and the Beast? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. It is so great. It's on Criterion, which means it might be on Filmstruck, their new service. Um, so if you want to just stream it for cheap, do it there. But you need to see that movie. All people need to see that yeah, movie. Yeah, I've heard it, about it. It is, it is legitimately amazing on one level, where I think it's a 
true artistic accomplishment. And then it's really amazing on a different level. And you will know that level when you see the last scene, which is Belle and the Beast flying into the stars and like becoming stardust. And it's great. It's, it's, yeah. it's an amazing movie. The Beast costume is so great. That's my only disappointment with like the trailer for this Disney thing is I wish the Beast was a dude in a suit. Yeah. Because the, it looks like good CGI. I don't want to like put it down. It looks cool. But it's like... When you do live action Beauty and the Beast, that is such a great opportunity to do a silly costume. Yeah. Or like, what was it? Ron Perlman that was in that one like TV show. Yes. Yeah. Like they should just they should have just fucking brought Ron, Ron Perlman back out. Yeah. It like like dusted off that makeup. Yep. It would be slightly creepy if you ever thought about the age difference between him and Emma Watson. Yeah, but I, it's okay. It's, she falls in love with the giant animal man. Like, yes. well, who gives a shit about the age difference? I know. But anyway, I. Uh, Getting back on topic, I think they're very heavily leaning on in this trailer the iconography of the animated movie. You yeah. hear some of the music, you hear some of the score, and hey, it's great and evocative music, so there's a reason for that. And I think this movie is going to make an unholy amount of money next year. Yeah, no, like Disney has just found a way to turn people into money machines. Yeah. And it's kind of impressive and kind of frightening at the yeah. same time. Um, and really that was my only frustration with the trailer was I'm hoping it's not just a beat for beat yeah. version of the animated movie because I don't know why we would need that. But that was also my fear with the Jungle Book because that was marketed in very much the same way. Like in the Jungle Book trailer you hear Bare Necessities yeah, and things yeah. like that. The Jungle Book movie is not, it's barely like the animated one at all. It is completely its own thing and I actually just watched it again because my family hadn't seen it and Disney sent the screeners out so I, I got that DVD out and watched it and... It's a really good movie. I might have even enjoyed it more the second time. I think it stands on its own and has this tone and this voice that is so unique and, and really justifies doing the live-action remake. And I hope Beauty and the Beast finds that same kind of rhythm for yeah. itself. Um, and we'll see if it does. But if not, you know, it's clearly going to look good. They spent a lot of money on those sets. <laughs> yeah. You can tell. Yeah. So, yeah, I just hope the, like, animated teacups aren't as creepy as they seem to be. You know, and, yeah, and I just hope that with the next one they decide to make a live-action Lion King and just have it be, like, the CGI stuff from Jungle Book, only now there's just, there isn't even a person in it anymore. Yes. That'd be interesting. I also, uh, kudos, they let Emma Watson just use her British accent. Yeah. That's good. Not enough movie, because uh, I mean, isn't it set in, like, France? It is, so but... she should have a French accent. Well, sure, I guess, but... Because I, I think... Paige O'Hara in the animated movie is doing like a slight British accent. So I think it makes sense. Yeah. But I always fear like when there's someone with a distinctive accent that a Hollywood studio will for some reason take that away. And they didn't this time. So that's good. I just wish she, now that I remembered that that story is set in France, she should have a like ridiculous over the top French accent. <laughs> She's talented. She can do it. It'd be yeah. great. Anyway. All right. So that's Beauty and the Beast. Let's really switch gears for a second. Okay. Ghost in the Shell. Yes. We talked about like the five second teasers they put out. Because there's obviously been some controversy with this movie because um, the casting is fairly whitewashed, we could say. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's and, fair enough to say. And we don't need to re-litigate re all that. But um, we thought those five-second teasers were impressive. I thought this trailer was really impressive. Yeah, it's, it looks pretty good. Yeah. Like, you know, we'll see how the story and everything comes together. But at least on a visual level, if you tell me Hollywood is making Ghost in the Shell, I would not expect it to look like that. Yeah, yeah. I would expect it to look much more sanitized and Hollywoodized. And it looks like a live-action Ghost in the Shell movie, other than the main character is white. 
but I can get over that because Scarlett Johansson, if you have to whitewash, she's a really good actress. Sure, so yeah, whatever. yeah. And she looks, she really does kind of look the part, I think, in terms of the costumes and the stuff. Yeah. And because we know from other things, she's good at playing robotic. So, yeah. I don't know. I was impressed. I think visually, at least, that looks a lot more sort of daring and inventive than I would have expected. Yeah. Like, in, like, response to me seeing that trailer, I ended up... Like rewatching uh, Ghost in the Shell, the anime, obviously like the original animated movie, because I hadn't seen that since high school, and that movie is really fucking good. And also, it was like a weird instance of me realizing how much I've changed since like watching or reading something. It's because it's been like five, over five years now since I watched that movie. It was like I did not. I did not catch any of the gender stuff that that movie was doing the first time I watched it. Whereas like now, that movie is. Is just about like gender in like a post-human world, basically, and it is something where it's like uh, like if people have not watched Ghost in the Shell, you should obviously watch Ghost in the Shell. It's a very good movie, but it's also it's 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 one of those things where I look at that and I look at that trailer, and that trailer has a bunch of shots in it that are like one-to-one shots from that movie. That it's just like it feels like there was an there was there there was an idea for a really interesting American Ghost in the Shell movie that would be. A movie set in that universe in America and like it had a different story but similar themes and there's just something that like this is, doesn't mean that it's going to be a bad movie like it looks like it is like it looks interesting at least but it's still like the I wish that the the concept of the movie was more interesting than what they were going for you know okay yeah and I actually have not seen the original Ghost in the Shell you should probably um, watch it at some I, point. I will and it's uh, yeah I gotta find a good version of it but yeah. When you watch the original version, do not watch Ghost in the Shell 2.0, where right. they redid some of the digital effects, because it's weird. Yeah. Uh, I gathered. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing doesn't usually work out. So No. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah. So, I was just kind of... But I, I know the iconography of that yeah. film, obviously, if you know anything about anime. It's like Akira, even if you haven't seen it. Yeah. You, you've, you've seen... Right. You've, you've seen stuff from that movie. Right. So, anyway. Yeah. I, and we'll see. I. It's such a weird thing with this. Do you... How do you want them to stray so far? It has no reason to bear that title. Do you want them not to go too close? It's it's a really weird balance, and we won't know until the movie's out, obviously. Yeah. But just even forgetting it has source material, just as I think I saw that trailer before Fantastic Beasts, and compared to a lot of other kind of blander-looking blockbusters that were yeah. being advertised, I was like, that one stands out. Yeah, I mean, if you are going to like really heavily borrow its aesthetics from a source movie, like Ghost of the Shell is a good one because. Like, even regardless of it being an animated movie, just, like, the design of that movie and the way that it's shot, like, movies don't look like that, live action or animated, and so, like, borrowing that that heavily is, like, it makes it look very distinctive. Absolutely, and, you know, Ghost in the Shell being, along with Akira and that generation of anime, being the one of the primary influences on The Matrix, yeah. it's such a tough thing in a post-Matrix world to make something based on those movies stand out. Yeah. And I thought this didn't just look like a Matrix clone either. So that's also good. But we'll see when the actual film comes out. So yeah. Um, Here's another one that I did not know what to make of until we we got to see a proper trailer. And that is Kong Skull Island. Right, yes. That trailer came out too. Yeah, so this is the movie that is sort of launching their Kong shared universe, which we need. It's a Godzilla shared universe that Kong is participating in. Godzilla originated it. That's true, that's true. I'm not sure how we're titling this thing. But anyway, uh, this stars John C. Riley and Tom Hiddleston and future Captain Marvel Brie Larson. Oh, right, yeah. Current Oscar winner. I guess we need to get our priorities straight on that one. But anyway, um, so lots of cool people are in it. Lots of monsters are in it. This trailer is fairly upbeat. What did you think about it? 
I like. I thought it was really interesting. I guess it's sort of a obviously. You know, I am a huge giant monster movie fan, and I am a huge King Kong fan, and those are two separate things in my mind. Like King Kong is such a different kind of movie right. than like a Godzilla or a Godzilla versus movie, and this looked like it was King Kong in the style of a like Japanese daikaiju like giant monster movie and that like is a really interesting idea to me and i think it's a much more interesting idea of doing another king kong movie than trying to do like a peter jackson style let's do king kong again only this time instead of setting it back in the 30s we'll do it set in 2016 or something right i'm i am more interested in the idea of like let's just say like fuck it like let's just make a godzilla movie only instead of godzilla it's a giant monkey and that looks like basically that's what they are doing no, I think definitely that is the biggest draw of this trailer is, you know, King Kong has been remade twice in Hollywood. Yes. And I think, I, I like the Peter Jackson version quite a bit, and I think it has its merits. Um, but I definitely don't need to see it again, certainly when I think Peter Jackson made the definitive version for the 2000s. Sure, yeah. You know, in terms of using CGI technology and stuff. We, we don't ever need to see that again, probably, of that exact story. And so... You kind of have to worry, are they just going to kind of do the same thing again? What's it going to be? And no, at all, not at all. Like, it's yeah. got a different tone. It's clearly a different kind of story. It's not just about Kong. It's, it's having it called Kong Skull Island makes sense because it's clearly about the island and the different monsters, not just Kong himself. Yeah. And I think it has a kind of fun, light tone. We also have, I think, Samuel L. Jackson is in there. Yeah. And he's he, in every movie. He, he's in every movie, yeah. But, like, uh, you could just cut Samuel Jackson saying something into any movie trailer, and I would immediately believe that he's just in that movie. <laughs> it wouldn't matter, like, what the line is, what the context, anything. is just like, okay, yeah, I guess he's in this movie somewhere. I just saw the trailer for uh, the new Martin Scorsese movie, Silence. Right, yeah. Which looks brilliant. That's yeah, yeah. not the kind of trailer we usually talk about on here. But I was just thinking, like, because that's a movie about Christian missionaries being persecuted in Japan. Yeah. Now imagine, like, in the middle of that, like, people are being crucified. And Samuel L. Jackson is, like, on the side going, damn! Like, you just, I'm sure you can find some choice lines from Afro Samurai that would be, like, really appropriate. <laughs> just throw that in there. Yeah. Anyway. Now, back to Kong. It looks good. My only reaction was, I would be ten times more excited for this movie if they were doing it with, like, stop motion and suits. Yeah. <laughs> because the CGI looks fine. But I will say this. I thought the Peter Jackson CGI Kong looked more impressive 10 years ago than the bit of the Kong we see here. Yeah. I just thought the CGI looked very fakey in this. Maybe it'll look better in the finished movie. Because it is a trailer. It is a trailer. It is the first trailer. Yeah, you never know. But that's just the only thing I worry about yeah. with this kind of thing. I do really appreciate how completely goofy it looks having Kong be like 500 feet tall or whatever instead yes. of like being like three stories tall like he is in the original movie. Like the scale. Because yeah. obviously they, they've made him Godzilla-sized. The way that they did in King Kong versus Godzilla in the, the 60s. And that's like... That doesn't... Like, that doesn't scale right. And he no. looks really funny and weird. But in a way that, like, I kind of like... That fits the tone of the trailers of, like... You know, it's not going for... You're not looking at him and being like... Oh, what is this, like, emotionally realized empathic... Or an empathetic character on screen? You know, like, the way that it was in the Peter Jackson version. Look at that. It's like, that's a big fucking ape. Yeah. I want to see him punch something. Absolutely. So, I was not expecting anything out of this movie at all frankly before we saw this trailer and now I'm definitely looking forward to yeah, it yeah I'm way more interested into this coming out of that trailer than I was going into it like I went into that trailer with a begrudging sense of like oh, I guess I have to see what this is but there's no way it's going to be good and coming out of me like that looks fucking stupid okay yeah. no it's stu and stupid as a compliment yeah exactly yeah. like right. the good kind of stupid exactly so good stuff let's talk about by far the weirdest trailer we have on this list did you see the teaser for Cars 3? 
No, I... Oh, why would I go watch the teaser for fucking for fucking Cars Three? Because you have to. Okay. It's so bizarre. I don't. You have. Have you heard about this? I no. Okay. I've heard nothing. About I Cars I only like. I think I was reading Twitter one morning. It was Thanksgiving week. I was bored, and I'm like, oh, it's a minute long, and I turned it on, and I'm watching the trailer for Cars Three, and it is so dark and so weird. Where I got to the end of it, and I thought it was a joke, and I'm like, okay, someone made a fake Cars Three teaser, and then. That's the real thing? Oh my god. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But it basically starts with like these very kind of live action movies. Sh- I know it's CGI, but it's meant to look like a live action kind of thing of a racetrack. And the cars are zooming around. And it's like got this dramatic music and like the fade-ins and fade-outs that these you know, teasers do okay, like yeah. five years ago. But some of them still do it. And it's all crazy. And then you kind of hear in the background, and now number 69, Lightning McQueen. And that's like your only indication that this is a t- t- teaser for cars. Okay. And then you see a car that kind of looks like Lightning McQueen. But it's done photorealistically and doesn't have the eyes or the mouth or anything. Okay. And none of the cars do. And it pulls ahead. And then it's like, oh no, oh no. And the car starts like shaking because it's losing control. And then it spins out, goes away, and then you, it goes into slow motion. And you just see parts coming off the car, flying off on the screen. And there's like flames and stuff. And you okay. see lightning. And his, again, no eyes, no smile. And the car is like falling apart and spinning. And then it fades out. And it says in dramatic text, from this moment. Everything will change. And then it ends. And it says... Or I think the last thing is it says, like, summer 2017. And it doesn't say cars or anything. It is... I laughed so hard once I realized that is the actual teaser for this movie. It is so bizarre. It would be like if the trailer for Toy Story 4 was Woody getting his head ripped off and, like, blood spurting out. I mean, it... (laughs) Judging from what you just told me... The only thing I can imagine that that is teasing is that the plot of that movie is that the souls of the characters from Cars get transported into Cars in our world. And Lightning McQueen gets killed in a horrible fashion when this driver crashes him in a race. Yeah. Like, that's what that sounds like that movie is describing. Or that trick teaser is. Because I guess, and then they did their little like plot blurb after the trailer came out, and I guess the plot is, you know, he gets injured in a race, and then he has to get back on his feet, tires, whatever you call it, and like win again, which totally sounds like what the sequel to a Cars movie would be. That but, sounds like that's the plot to Cars One. I don't, I never saw any of those movies. Yeah. If you were to ask me what the plot of Cars was, that is what I would say the plot of Cars was. Is the main dude is like this hubristic fast car, and he thinks he's the best, and then he gets in a crash, and he's like, oh no, and then he has to like train up from the bottom, yeah. That's and not, like learn the lessons of hard work or something. Right. That's not literally the plot to Cars 1, it's more he gets um, kicked out of the league, and then he has to come back in, and so he's living in like this small town for a while, and then he goes back. Maybe um, he learns but here's the value the of like hard work and like... Here, blah, right, blah, blah, yeah. yeah. But here's the thing. What you just described literally is the plot to Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Okay, yeah. With Will Ferrell. So it's basically Talladega Nights. But the way... And so I think that can work in, like, the actual movie because they're probably not going to make it that graphic or anything because clearly this footage is not from the movie. Or maybe it is and the movie got really weird. I don't know. Yeah, they just decided, like, well, we need to put out new toys. What can we do to change the character designs? Let's just make them photorealistic. Okay. Yeah. But, like, that trailer is so bizarre and I... Like, honestly, I can only imagine, like, a little kid who likes those movies seeing that in the theater and, like, just bursting into tears, like, Mommy, Mommy, what happened to lightning? Or maybe they're just aiming for, like, that audience that when they saw the first Cars, they were, like, five or something, and now they're, like, a tween. And so now they're into really edgy shit, and they're like, yeah, it's like Cars, (laughs) but it's fucking dark. 
Like Lightning starts injecting himself with like heroin fuel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's like, yeah, he's injecting himself with nitrous. Yeah, and he's just like he's tweaking out. Yeah. I don't know. I, I again, no idea what to make of how what this movie will actually be because it's cars. Who knows? But that teaser is so weird and off-brand for Pixar. I, oh God, it made me laugh. Anyway. That sounds pretty good. It made me laugh after I was horrified briefly. Yeah. Of like, what the fuck did they just put out? Pixar really took the Cars 2 criticisms to heart. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds like there's like some person who's been working at Pixar for like 20 years and is just like really frustrated about being like put onto this like sequel treadmill. It's just like, fuck it. I'm just going to put this weird ass teaser out somehow, some way. All right, two more things. One is for a Japanese film. Okay. Have you heard they're making a live-action Full Metal Alchemist in Japan? I, I've heard that. I, I saw that the trailer was out, but I didn't watch the trailer because I haven't seen Full Metal Alchemist okay. yet. So this wouldn't mean as much to you, but it's yeah. like a 30-second teaser. Although, And you don't see Al, I don't think, who's the kid in the metal suit. Um, but you see Edward. you got the, you know, the, the costume and everything. Yeah. He does like the clap the hands and, and do the, does the energy. And so you see a little bit of like the iconography. And I thought it was interesting... And I, I think the idea of a live-action Full Metal Alchemist is inherently weird because that is so heightened as a world in terms of I don't quite know on like a special effects level how you could do all of that. Right. But I am interested to see it, honestly, because I think some of these... There's kind of been a wave over the last few years of different... You know, they did the live-action Roroni Kenshin, yes, and they did yeah. uh, Phoenix Wright, and they did um, Attack on Titan, and they're doing all of these. And I've heard some of them have been good, and some of them have been bad. I can I can say I've seen the Roroni Kenshin ones, like, and those have recently come out on Blu-ray over here through Funimation. And like all those movies are pretty good, but the first one in particular is really good. I think okay. like people are interested in seeing samurai samurai action movie. Yeah. That first Roni Kenshin movie is as good as anything yeah. you could watch. You and I were just talking before the podcast about the Death Note movies, yeah, which are like ten years old at this point, so kind of predating all this. But those are good, you know. So I think it could be a good movie, and I thought the trailer was kind of interesting, even if it's a little goofy to see those characters in live action. But the funniest thing to me was learning that there's a whole backlash from fans, apparently in Japan and America. That the characters in the movie are Japanese. Yeah, because isn't the thing basically set in like fake Europe? Yeah, it is. And to me, it's like, I don't care. It, it is a Japanese movie. You're yeah. going to have Japanese people. Yeah, because you're going to have Japanese nice. actors because those yeah. are the actors you have in Japan. Yeah, if they were making it in America, they also wouldn't... They'd have white actors. They wouldn't have European actors. Like, it's just... Sure, sure. And yeah. it's easier for us because we all look the same in Europe and America. But it's like to me, it's like, yeah. And when I, it doesn't bother me when I listen to Full Metal Alchemist in Japanese either. Like, right, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, but I just think that's a funny thing of like people are doing like a reverse whitewashing thing. And it's just so funny because it's like it never even occurred to me. Like, of course, they're going to have Japanese people playing the roles. It's a Japanese movie. That's how it should be done. But it's just like the internet can get angry about anything. It's yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's, it's a weird because Attack on Titan is also actually the same way that like mm -hmm. most of those characters are clearly supposed to be European. And there's one character that is very specifically Japanese. And like, so the idea of that, like, how do you handle that? Like, how do you handle, like, all of these Japanese people, like, having these very, like, Eastern European names? And then this, like, the one lady who's Asian has, like, a Japanese name. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, it is. Uh, Full Metal Alchemist is uh, at least the second series. I don't know if they've gone back and done the first is on Crunchyroll now. Did you see that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. haven't, like, gotten around to watching this I series. I think that's cool that they did yeah. that. Um, because yeah, there's been a lot of good, like, backlog stuff going up on Crunchyroll since that Funimation deal. Yeah. So, because Funimation actually had briefly lost the license to Full Metal Alchemist, 
Um, and for a while, I felt good that I have my whole physical media collection because they put everything out of print and everything. And I was like, man, if I wanted to sell this stuff, which I don't because I love it, I could make a shit ton of money right now. But anyway. Now you lost a chance. Now I lost my chance. to reissue it. That's okay. I'm totally good having my physical media of all that. It, when I was a kid collecting Full Metal Alchemist three-episode volumes, that took me forever. Yeah. Fuck. The, dark the, days. The, yeah, the dark <laughs> timeline. Yeah. Anyway, so that's Full Metal Alchemist. And finally, I just want to bitch about this for a second. So, so we talked about Netflix earlier. Yes, we Net- Netflix remote. releases a new show basically every week. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, yeah, it, it has become like really funny to see the roulette re- wheel that is the new on Netflix thing, yeah. like or like made on Netflix shows. I completely forgot about the existence of Luke Cage until I finished Gilmore Girls, and it's for some reason that's what they started after I finished Gilmore Girls was Luke Cage. No, like just in like your like next yeah thing, huh? right? Because they didn't have any more episodes to show, right, right? So they started Luke Cage, and then I was like, I have to find time to watch this at some point. I don't know when I will because I also want to watch The Crown and. A million yeah. other things but anyway one of their big shows next year is a series of unfortunate events and oh, right. this they're making that this is based on a series of novels i really loved as a kid uh there are 13 books by lemony snicket whose real name is daniel handler but his pen name for that is lemony snicket because lemony snicket is actually kind of a behind the scenes character in the books themselves and those are really good books i think even if you're an adult and you've never heard of those they're fun to read there's a lot of really interesting stuff in those um, and they made a movie out of those back in 2004 yeah, with, Jim, I, Carrey with Jim Carrey while I think the books were still coming out. Not a good film. That movie was not good. Launched no. the career of Emily Browning, uh, who's a good actress who you will see in the adaptation of Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Oh, okay. Anyway, that's, that's a fun that's connection. A really weird connection. Yeah, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, so that movie was not very good. And to me, the main reason it wasn't very good is it fundamentally, to me, misunderstood the tone of the books. Yeah, because I think... Jim Carrey does not do, like, dark humor. No. Like, he does, like, weird slapstick humor. Yeah, because, like, a series of unfortunate events is very funny, but it is funny because it is pitch black and yeah. it stays at that tone throughout. It It is not Yeah, it, like, slapstick. that title is 100% accurate. Like, yes. Or, well, it's, it's accurate in the sense that it is underselling yeah. the books. Like, it's not, they're not just unfortunate events. No, they're terrible. Like, yeah. I even, when I was a kid, I didn't like the very final book. And as an adult, I've come to like reevaluate it and really respect it because it's fundamentally the end of that series is a meditation on the unknowability of life. And it even ends with the intimation that everyone you were reading about fucking just dies and stuff like that. Like it's super dark. Um, and, and that last book doesn't even really have any humor in it. It is just pitch black. And Count Olaf is an interesting character because he is inherently silly on some level and that he keeps dressing up in different costumes to try to get the Baudelaire orphan fortune. But he's menacing. Like, within that, he is funny because he also has menace to him. Yeah. And that's the only way it works. Like, I, it's kind of almost hard to explain, but black comedy only works if there is something dark about it. Yeah, it has to have, like, a dramatic underpinning yeah. for it to work. Right. And it's like it's something where it's like, it exaggerates the drama to the point yes. that it is funny. And obviously, Jim Carrey is a talented comedian, but as we saw in something like Batman Forever, he is not menacing when asked to be menacing. Yeah. And so his Count Olaf was just a goofball. And so when they announced this Netflix series, I thought, perfect. That's, it, was, it was always meant to be a TV show. Netflix can go in whatever direction they want because it's Netflix. It's practically a cable network. They can really do this right. And then they announced Neil Patrick Harris is playing Count Olaf. And such a weird Such choice. a weird piece so of... like the exact opposite actor for that role. Yes. It's like you think of Neil Patrick Harris and you think of someone like so bright and like illuminating. You know, he's yes. just like a happy dude to watch in anything. It's like, that is the exact opposite person you should cast. Absolutely. So, 
I, I didn't know what they were doing, but I also wanted to reserve my thoughts until we saw a trailer. Because it's like, hey, he's talented. Maybe he's the right guy. Sure, yeah. And then the trailer came out. Have you seen this? No, I have not watched okay. the trailer. Okay, it is, it looks like a sequel to the movie from 2004. Like, it is, if anything, they doubled down on the tone of that. Where Count Olaf is doing nothing but cracking jokes. He's a complete slapstick character. They've cast comedians in every role on the show. Like, um, Uncle Monty, who is the guy, the guardian from the second book, is played by Asif Manvi from The Daily Show. Okay, which is weird, and I mean I love the guy, but that's not good casting for that because that's supposed to be kind of this sincere, lovable character with some weight behind him, not a, a guy I associate as being a very silly comedian on The Daily Show. Yeah, but anyway, so stuff like that, and like you know, just constant gags from Count Olaf, and it's it, even visually it recalls the 2004 movie in terms of its design and everything, where it's kind of this heightened cartoon version of the world, and I just. I don't get it. I think this could make such a good TV show or something like that if you chose to do it right. But they're just clearly, it's like, well, that movie that bombed 10 years ago, let's do it the same way. But we can't get Jim Carrey on TV, so let's get Neil Patrick Harris, who is so much too young for that part that even when he's just normal Count Olaf, he's caked in makeup and costuming. And so it's like, honestly, the way you should do that is you need like an Alan Rickman type for yeah. Count Olaf. Because Alan Rickman could be screamingly funny but that's because he was straight faced whenever he was evil you yeah. know like Snape has some very funny moments in the Harry Potter movies but that's because Snape isn't making jokes yeah Neil Patrick Harris is a guy who's going to make jokes so anyway that trailer just frustrated me I'm still going to check it out because I have Netflix whatever I'll see if it's any good but it's just so bizarre to me because I devoured those books as a kid and I don't know how you can look at those books and get that out of them yeah I mean it sounds like like you're saying, they would have gone through the template of the Hollywood movie that, like, it totally makes sense how Hollywood would yeah. take those books and turn it into that. It doesn't make as much sense in a vacuum why Netflix would. Yeah, so I I have no idea with that, but Yeah, whatever. that's weird. Yeah, so I also, I guess I don't get why Neil Patrick Harris, who could do anything, yeah. thought this was his next career move. <laughs> yeah, that's... I don't know. Netflix has a lot of money to throw around. It's, yeah, it's it's very strange. This is sort of inexplicable. It's also just like it feels like such a weird time. Like I don't know. Like it, I read. I didn't. I never read all of those books, but I read the first couple of them when I was a kid. Also, and liked them a lot back then. But like the idea of like making a new series of that now is just like you like missed the boat on that by a pretty wide margin. Like are there people like talking about? Let me stick as a series of unfortunate events still? I, I don't think so. I think their their thought is that, you know, you could introduce it to a new audience and generation, and maybe you have some leftover nostalgia from people who were kids when it came out. But I don't know. If you were but if you were to do it for that audience, I would do it more book esque. Yeah, like yeah, more as the book because if it did look like a lot of like how I imagined the book was when I was reading it, then maybe I would be like, Okay, I'll check that out. Like I remember liking those when I was a kid. Yeah, so you make it look like the Jim Carrey movie. I'm like, I saw that movie when I was in the theater when I was a kid. It's like, nope, I'm not. I'm not going back to that fucking well. No, thank you, sir. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, I I wonder if Jim Carrey watched that and got jealous. <laughs> it's like, what could have been my my multi movie franchise? I had it all planned, and you fools ruined it all. Yep. Yeah. So anyway. Um, 
Can't wait until like 20 years from now when Netflix starts doing DC shows and does it exactly like Batman v Superman. Yeah. Like they get another, like whoever Jesse Eisenberg is in 20 years to play Lex Luthor. It's like, hey, it didn't work at the time, but maybe it'll work now. now. Yes, yes. 2052 is the year when Batman v Superman will be reevaluated for the true art it is. Yes. All right, so let's do some game reviews, Sean. Okay, yeah, let's just do... A handful of game reviews, let's say. We have a lot. Uh, I would like you to start. Okay. So, uh, let me just start by saying what's on the docket. We have, yeah. for me, um, Pokemon Sun and Moon. Um, we have Dragon Ball Fusions, both 3DS games from this past week. Uh, a little more Skyrim Special Edition talk. Okay. And then from both of us, Hitman follow-up. Yes. Because we went back to Hokkaido and did some more there. Um, I have killed a lot of people in Hokkaido since that last podcast. <laughs> you are going to talk about Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. XCOM 2, Dishonored 2, and Titanfall 2. Yes, a lot, lots of twos. Where would you like to start? Uh, let's start Let's start at the beginning, which is in space. Let's go to Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, because that is on this list that is the furthest back of games I've played. So, fuck, where do we even start with this? Uh, I mean, you want to start with just the elephant in the room, which is this is a game that a lot of people were not excited for. Yeah, sure, yeah, because it's something, like, the attitude around this release is very strange, and I kind of get it because it is a very strange thing, but for me, you know, Call of Duty has turned into this, like, three-headed beast, where you have the campaign, you have multiplayer, and now you have zombies modes, which, like, seems to be now, like, in all the games and not just Treyarch, because this is, obviously, this is an Infinity Ward year, but they still have their zombie mode. I haven't played the zombie mode at all, I've never really had much interest in the zombie modes in these games, I've... The only one I really kind of enjoyed at all was the World at War one, where they introduced it as this weird, like, bonus thing that you got after you beat the campaign, and it just sort of, like, dropped in your lap, and you're like, oh, this is this weird, crazy thing, and played that a couple times, like, this is kind of fun, and then I never really went back to those, and so I haven't really touched the zombie mode, because those modes are fucking intimidating at this point, because you have no idea how to, how to do anything in them. And I played a little bit of the multiplayer, and the multiplayer is not great. And so, if you are someone, I mean, it's not it's not bad, bad, but it's not amazing. It's not like I'm I'm not getting sucked into it the way I did with Advanced Warfare because it does feel very much like what I played in the Black Ops Three beta. And if you played the Infinite Warfare beta, you know what this is like. And so, I can totally get why a lot of Call of Duty people are down on this game because one, if you are someone who really doesn't like the idea of Call of Duty going into the future stuff. Sure, like, you can, you can fight on that hill or whatever. But then also, if you are really into Call of Duty specifically for the multiplayer, I don't think this is a very good year for that. Like, it's fine. I've, I've played a handful of hours of it. If, like, you have a podcast on, it is fun to play. But it's not going to, like, really engross you in any way, I don't think. And I've heard it's pretty much just what Black Ops 3 was last yes, year. Yes, it is, it is almost the exact same thing. It is really weird. So it's, if you have Black Ops 3, you really don't need this. Yeah. The, where, where the story really changes with Call of Duty Infinite Warfare is the story, is the campaign mode feels like it was made, and it probably was made by a completely different team, like, it feels like its own thing, like, it is, feels so separate from the multiplayer, and in some ways, though, like, the, the worst parts about the campaign, even those are not bad, feel like they are hangers-on from the multiplayer of, like, the wall-running stuff that doesn't work great feels like it is in there because that's how the multiplayer plays, not how because that's how the campaign people wanted it to play. Because the single-player campaign for Call of Duty Infinite Warfare is fucking amazing. Like, it is really, really good. And it's something where I so desperately wish that people could just buy the campaign for this game for, like, 20, 30 bucks, because it is so worth that. And if you could find the game on sale, I 
absolutely think that this is a game that you should buy just to play the campaign if you can get it for a price. And then the campaign is a bit longer than most Call of Duty campaigns. It's, it took me... I played it on the hardened difficulty, which is the second highest difficulty. And so it took me about, like, nine hours to finish on that. That is long for Call yeah, of Duty. Yeah, like, we're most... You know, by comparison, we'll talk about Titanfall 2's campaign, which is also good. But that... I beat that probably in, like, four to five hours because I, I finished the Titanfall 2 campaign all in one sitting without even intending to do that. Whereas the Infinite Warfare one, it took me a couple of nights of sort of working my way through it. But yeah, so like, so really in my evaluation of Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, I'm really, and saying I really love this game, I'm talking 100% about the single player campaign and kind of in the same way of like, you know, like Uncharted 4 or Doom where it's like they had other things, like they had multiplayer, but I just never really played them. So it's like, if you are someone who's like bought Doom and has no interest in the single campaign and single player campaign and all you played is a multiplayer, like we are having different conversations about that video game in the same way with this like i am only interested in the single player campaign to me it's good enough that like it's so outshadows like i don't give a shit if there's like a couple of like other modes attached to this game that i don't really care about the single player campaign is just really good so basically uh it's it's set up where the story is the story of mobile suit gundam if you just didn't have mechs and you didn't have teenagers. Like, it's, it is exactly, it is set in, like, early space age. Like, humanity has just sort of started going into space. In this, instead of it being space colonies, we have colonized Mars. And so you you are uh, Captain Reyes, or not quite yet Captain Reyes, who's working for the Earth Federation government. And there's some Martian guys who, like, the Martian Liberation Front, I think is what they call themselves. They're sort of your opposing force, and they have started attacking Earth. And you're trying to defend Earth. And the, the beginning of the game is basically uh, the Martian forces do this sort of sneak attack on the Earth and end up taking out a huge amount of the Earth's military fleet and stuff like that because the Martian guys have way better ships because they have access to all the resources because they're mining all the resources out in space. And you are basically t- um, thrust into this position where you are the acting captain of one of the last remaining ships in the, the Earth fleet because most of the other commanding officers have been killed and you are just the highest ranking dude on hand. And so you have to take command of this and you are part of this sort of elite force of kind of air force slash Marine guides where you pilot spaceships, but you also a big part of your mission is that you try to board enemy like command ships, get in there and take them out from the inside because that's one of the only ways that with your technology in this like setting that you can really take them out. And so one of the things I love about the campaign is that it has that kind of setting that I'm hugely fond of in science fiction, which is that very early space age, kind of like like a new era World War One scenario where it's like we are taking our first steps out into space and we have these weird space freighters and ships and guns and stuff. And like, But nobody really knows, like we haven't perfected this yet and we don't really know how all the tech works. So like a lot of the stuff in Infinite Warfare is like you're... You know, you're going up and you're like fighting in space and you grapple hook onto a dude and get up on him. You just rip his helmet off and kick him because he's just going to suffocate to death. Because like we have not figured out how to sort of like solve those problems in space yet. Or like one of the main ways you take out one of the freighters is you just go up and you blow a big hole in the wall near where the command center thing is. And all those fuckers just get blown out into space and suffocate. And that's or, or they have space suits on and they just float forever and just die out in space like a day later when their oxygen runs out, you know? And it's like, it's a lot of stuff like that. And there's, and there's something about, I think they, they really realize that setting really well, particularly with the, um, 
space flying things because you have space missions that that mix with the on ground missions that mix with you in space freighters and so there's a lot of missions that are about like you launching from your ship in a like fighter doing some like quick dog fights and then like going in and like you know blowing a hole inside of the ship and landing in it and seamlessly hopping out of your your fighter ship and going and then like fighting on the ground with your assault rifle and like making your way through it and so there's a huge amount of variety in the missions and the mission design is very good because of that you have um, this whole side mission structure that's very different from what Call of Duty uh, traditionally has, where once you get command of your own vessel, you have a number of different side missions on a map that you go and you pick. And and if you play the, the campaign, like play all the side missions because they're all really good and you get little bonuses for completing them, like being able to reload your guns faster and stuff like that. And, and the side missions are these short, like, 30-minute missions that tend to, like, really play with different mechanics of, like, there's one mission where that is basically a full-on stealth mission where you, like, it's almost Hitman-esque in that you, like, take a, a, on an enemy's disguise and, like, infiltrate their ship. And it's all about you trying to, like, navigate the inside of the ship without being noticed too much and, like, taking this thing. And then all oh, shit goes bad and you throw off your helmet and you just start laying waste to people. And so the the... So I think like all the gameplay stuff is really well done. The missions are designed well. There's a huge amount of variety to the missions. There's so much just production to the game. It's just, it feels so good. It looks so spectacular. The the sections where you are flying the, the space fighter jet thing are really fun in that they're not, it's not like the deepest sort of space combat if that you would find if you like went to like a PC-based like space shooter kind of game. But it is, the, it almost kind of reminds me of Halo, that one Halo Reach mission where it's like, it's it's very arcadey, it's very simple, but it's a nice change of pace and it just looks so incredible. Where you're zooming around like all these different like explosions and asteroids and, and trying to get a bead on your enemies and there's a good sense of momentum in space so that like if you like slam the boost in one direction and then you spin around in the other direction, you will keep on moving and can keep on shooting and shooting in space with your heavy weapons on the fighter jet actually does have like the kind of realistic recoil so if you like fire a bunch of your heavy cannons in quick succession it will like blast you backwards so there's a good sense of like space momentum and weight to that kind of stuff and so all the gameplay stuff is really solid the thing that really sets it apart though is that the story is off the top of my head probably the best like most accomplished well-told first person shooter story i can kind of think of like it, and it's, it's something where it's like, it's a really good, like, military story by any metric, but especially when you compare it to the standards of this kind of shooter, like, if you compare it to the story in the Titanfall 2 campaign, which is such a, like, it's just there, like, it, it's clearly built just to sort of justify these mission design ideas that the designers had. Here, it is this really, really well-told story that uses the space setting as a way to sort of make war somewhat more abstract so that they can at, at, like make the story really all about this question of like what are the kinds of responsibilities that a commanding officer has in war compared to the soldiers because because you are this soldier who is suddenly thrust into this position of command and having to make these high level decisions on like who you sacrifice and what you do and they such, do such a great job at very quickly and efficiently building out this like short strong cast of characters that have very good performance capture and some of them like you have um one character named ethan who's a robot soldier who's like this first new wave of sort of like ai driven robot soldiers and they use him to great effect 
to like I mean he's like this really effective symbolic tool in the story for like what is a soldier like what do we ask of soldiers and is that the right thing like is asking these people to make these kinds of sacrifices good or not in like like and like it, the game has such complicated feelings about about like what what society puts people in the military through and like what we ask of them in these extraordinary circumstances and the tragedy of like them of like kind of like our best the best we have to offer rising to these occasions and being cut down because that's like the kind of occasion they have to rise to and it's something where like if you are someone who has a really strong personal connection to the military either through yourself or your family or your friends or whatever in a way that I don't really I could totally see someone like hitting the credits of this game and some of the stuff they do in the credits that like you would just start crying because it's like it is the, the story like legitimately has a very effective emotional impact that's just like the it gets across that sort of sense of like the personal and human cost of war and conflict in the way that's like fucking call of duty has never done like these kinds of shooters other than something like spec ops the line which is a game that came out several years ago that sort of does has similar themes and gets that in very different ways like you just never see a story like this from AAA shooters, and I'm kind of actually shocked that a lot of the gaming press have not taken the story more seriously in this, because there's shit they do with symbolism and, like, full-circle storytelling and stuff like that that is so much more sophisticated than you would, what you would expect from this kind of first-person shooter campaign that's, like... I, I wish it was getting more of the critical re reception that it, it deserves for that stuff, even if I recognize that, like, the rest of the package, if you're, like, giving a numbered review score and stuff like that, I don't know what I would do, but, like... I, I wish that there was more critical discussion around what this game's, like, main story is doing. Because it's, like, it's really, really good. Yeah, and you're the only person, honestly, I'm hearing say that yeah. about. And I tend to trust your opinion more than most people's. That's why we do a podcast together. So yeah. I'm definitely excited to, to maybe play this game. I was on the fence before it came out. I, I had had this pre-ordered and I canceled it because I wasn't really in the mood for this kind of thing at the time. And I didn't necessarily want to spend the money at that moment. And then I also kind of just... Wanted to hear reviews, and then they were tepid. But then you started talking about this, and I'm like, fuck, now I have to play this game. But that's, I think, I wonder if there's just blockers on for some critics because it has the name Call of Duty on it. I think it might. Like, when you started tweeting about this, and I started hearing you talk about this, that was my initial reaction was, that's the last series on Earth I would expect to have that reaction to. Because Call of Duty, at its absolute best in story, which to me is like Modern Warfare 1... Is serviceable, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like, Modern Warfare is not a special game because of its story, and I'm sorry if I'm offending any Captain Price fans, but that's hey, not... I, I am... Okay, I, maybe I'm more a fan of the beard than I am the man, but still. Yes. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, Modern yeah. Warfare is interesting because what if it what it does atmospherically, tonally, yeah. and gameplay-wise... It's not the characters and narrative of... No, and, like, a... the thematic argument of Modern Warfare that's, that's resonating. Yeah, so... That's just surprising to me, and I wonder if you're just conditioned to go to a Call of Duty game and just kind of block out the story and play the game, and then you move on to multiplayer. And I can actually kind of imagine a, a reviewer who has to get to these three very disparate parts, yeah. just kind of breezing through it and not caring. And I don't think that's... I can necessarily even blame them for that, but yeah. it's a weird issue. Yeah, it's something where it's like... There's so many little things that the campaign does of like... I love the sense of... Because even though like... You know, it's not in a super long campaign because I bet if you played it on like the normal difficulty, because it's it's fairly hard on hardened 
I bet you could probably get through the campaign in seven hours and still do all the side missions if you... Because the side missions are... There's not a huge number of them, and they are pretty short individually. That, like, on the normal difficulty, you could probably breeze through the game pretty quickly. But there's something about the side missions for the sense of pacing to the game that I think is so strong of that they are able to get across this sense of the conflict happening between the Earth and the Martian forces by having you do these side missions that are not directly related to the core main story thread and are these short, like, brief, in, like, engagements you have with different enemy vessels that, like, gives you the sense of, like, oh, we're participating in this larger battle and, like, this larger war and we're just seeing these, like, small parts of it that, like, gives you this sense of, like, once you go into the climactic arc of the game and, like, you go to the, the last... The, like this one mission that sort of like ends your ability to go to the side missions but leads to like two or three more missions that are the end part of the game like you get this sense of like okay we are driving this to a conclusion and stuff like that i have seen one of the only real criticisms of the story that i've seen and i can kind of agree with this but i think people blow it out of proportion is that the martian side like the enemy forces are not super well drawn and they're not very like deep characters and i do wish that there was a couple of things that they did to more get into like the political nature of it because again like it's coming from someone who's a fan of stuff like Gundam that is very interested in like the political th reasons why these wars are happening and stuff like that I would like to get more of that kind of like oh you know we shipped off like all these people into space and they became this new like middle class that had control over all of these new resources and stuff and now but we're trying to have like the earth government is still trying to have like political control of them and then they're fighting against that I really love those stories because I think it just gives such a strong setting to tell this very sort of like classic human history kind of story about revolution and stuff like that and they don't get into that stuff in a way i would have liked but the story that they do tell is so focused on the personal loss of war and the personal responsibility of these soldiers that like at the end of the day what's important for this story that they do tell is has nothing to do with the enemy soldiers like the enemy soldiers could be anything you could be fighting aliens you could be fighting robots you could be fighting fucking space dogs for all i care like as long as they've, like, presented a, like, reasonable threat of, like, okay, this is an enemy they have to fight because it's war, that's all that it needs to be because the story is so focused on your, like, your people, not about, like, your side in the war. The political stuff about it is kind of, like, neither here nor there because it's irrelevant to these soldiers why you are fighting, really. Like, it's irrelevant to these soldiers, like, what the economic situation was that ultimately gave, like, birth to this conflict. What's important is, like, well... We have been given orders to do this, and we have to do this, and I have to find a way to do this and get as many of my people out of this situation alive as possible, if that's possible at all. And, like, that's what the story is about. Mm -hmm. Well, I will have to play this. Yeah. It's definitely on my list for before the end of the year. Maybe I can borrow it from you. Sure, yeah. Can I'll, I do that? I'll definitely okay. load it. Awesome. You. you got that one on disc? Yes, yes. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Oh, one, awesome. one other small thing about the campaign... When you get the side mission that allows you to unlock the eraser gun relatively early on, which I believe you can see what rewards you get from the different side missions, do that as early as possible because the eraser gun is basically this pistol that you can unlock where you can take, um, every time you go on missions, you can customize your own loadout and stuff and you unlock more weapons and, and unlocks and stuff as you go through the campaign. And the eraser gun is this special pistol that basically it has like four shots and then it recharges over time and is a one hit kill that just disintegrates people. It's pretty fucking awesome. I want to play that. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. There's some cool shit in that game. Awesome. All right. Um, I'm not going to talk about this much, but I have still played more of Skyrim Special Edition. And, okay. you know, again, really the only reason to talk about this now, I think, is to talk about what they've added to the game for the Special Edition right. or whatever. But I don't have a huge perspective on that. 
Other than to say that again, I am still struck by how fucking gorgeous this game is in the remaster. Um, especially when you're outside. I still think when you're inside in some of the dungeons, some parts can look like they they could have put more polish into like how that operates. But again, there's like five billion dungeons. What are they going to do to every one of them? Some of them look yeah. great. Like, um, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Today, I was watching a little bit of The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, the extended okay, cut. Because yeah. I wanted that's to the just, last one. Yeah, that's the last one. I wanted to see some of the extended stuff in that because I still hadn't watched that. And uh, then I got bored. But so I was playing Skyrim and I realized, man, I think Peter Jackson played a shit ton of Skyrim before he made The Hobbit. Because sure, yeah. Erebor looks like a Skyrim dungeon. Yeah, I can totally see that now like, that you say that. Yeah, and it's like, it's it's why I stopped watching the movie was it's like, I want to go back and play more Skyrim because I can kind of just be in this world. Yeah. And I know it's different technically, but it's like what I would imagine a good Middle Earth game being. Not Shadow of Mordor. Anyway, but <laughs> Shadow of Mordor is okay. Don't, I don't. I didn't. Don't like poop. It, but that's okay. No, I know it's fine. But anyway, um, yeah. So a lot of the stuff in that game just looks so cool, and and I think the remaster is still running very solid for me. I've run into more glitches. I thought I'd tell the story of one particularly funny glitch. Now we and will I, talk about glitches today, my yeah. friend. <laughs> and I do think some people are making too much of glitches in the special edition because. I don't. We've talked about this before. The way Bethesda builds games, no matter how much polish they put into it, you're never going to get rid of all of them. Yeah, like I, I will hear all complaints about those kinds of glitches once another game company tries to make a game like Bethesda games and and makes it without glitches because no one's even tried to make a game like this at all. Certainly, no one's made it like more solid, technically solid than yeah. they have. And, you know, I, I do think there's a little bit of people looking back on the original version of Skyrim with rose-colored glasses and being like, why are there glitches now? It's been five years. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, I guarantee you guys, it's better yeah. now than it was five Have years ago. Have you forgotten all the gifts that came out in 2011, the great gift storm of 2011 when Skyrim originally released and all the people like, oh, look yeah. at this bear getting launched 5,000 miles into the air. Yeah, I have had nothing game-breaking but I've had some frustrating things. But this one was funny. So that's okay. the best kind of glitch. So there's this one quest where you uh, get this horse. You have to steal this horse named Frost for yeah. this dude. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then bring it to him. But if your persuasion level is high enough, you can just intimidate the guy into letting you keep the horse. And I did that because I liked this horse. I feel like we'd become friends because he had like abusive owners and shit. And I'm like, Frost is mine. I like Frost. He's kind of fat and slow, but he's my horse, damn it. Okay. And I persuaded the dude and I got Frost. And Frost was my buddy and we're driving around. And then I was doing the uh, Imperial quest line where you work for the Imperials because the Stormcloaks are racist pieces of shit. Hey, and man, the Imperials have a pretty spotty history with their racist bullshit too. You're just, you're, you're not, you're not like fixing the system, buddy. Well, there's no third option to destroy you're, both. There so. is one third option. It's just to go do side quests for like 70 <laughs> hours because that could more than enough fill your time. No, I know. But anyway, I'm doing the Imperial stuff. And uh, I did this one mission where I had to go clear out this bandit camp. And uh, so I went into, so basically this was an area where base, you have like this road going up to this like fortress. And then the fortress has an outer, like, foyer area where before you go into, like, a door and have a loading screen, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So you, like, go behind a gate, but the gate has no loading screen, and then there's all the enemies and you fight them, and then you can go in the doors and go into the fortress proper. Right. Right, so we're envisioning this. So I I leave Frost on the road, like, a a mile back or something, and then I walk my way in because it's like, I don't want him getting caught in the crossfire or anything. I always do this with my horse because that horse dies, I can't get it back. Or I can reload you, a save. You, but... you can reload a save, or you can learn the raise dead spell, and then you okay, know, there you go. You right. can get a zombie frost. <laughs> but I don't want a zombie frost. I want frost to be alive and happy. So anyway, I leave him out on the road. I go in. I start fighting the bandits. It's uh, me and Lydia, my both my companion and my wife at this point. 
No, that she only was ever shield maiden for me. Okay. She's also my wife, and it gets a little awkward because um, she still has to do all the duties of my shield, maid, shield maiden. Right, so. yeah. I mean, she's just like walking around carrying all your bullshit yep. because your encumbrance, you don't want your encumbrance too high. Yep. Anywho, so uh, I'm fighting all the guys, and then I see Frost run in and get in the middle of the battle, and I'm like, Frost, what are you doing? And he goes and like attacks one of the bandits, and he's like, awesome. And like they're fighting him, and I can see Frost's health bar going down, like, no! And I go and like kill the bandit, and I'm like, Frost, get out of here! And then he runs up the steps up this tower, and like there's more guys with arrows like shooting Frost, and he's just running up the steps and like tackling them, and I'm running constantly behind Frost, trying to get to the guys trying to kill him and somehow we survive this whole encounter and frost lives nice. but i'm like okay now buddy you have to go it's dangerous but it's like it was this glitch that allowed me to like narrativeize it of like frost wanted to help yeah he, was... he, he wanted to die gloriously in battle for his master <laughs> indeed so anyway once i went inside it stopped being a problem because he can't go through doors yeah. luckily but anyway that was hilarious and That's it was really like good. also like once I realized what was going on, I was so stressed out because the battles in Skyrim are pretty easy until, like, your companion starts dying and you can't not target them or something. And then it's like, what the fuck do I do? Yeah. Like, I had a battle earlier today where Lydia kept running in and just getting fucking killed. And so I had to just send her home because the thing was she was getting killed by me because we were all in this tiny space and I couldn't not hit her. Right, Because, yeah, I, yeah. you know, if you're using spells and stuff, they just, or shouts, they just go through the room. So anyway, I wish they had, like, friendly fire on your people, because I don't know why that's a thing, that you can just randomly kill Lydia. But anyway. I, I mean, you're the one who stuck the knife in her back, buddy. Like, you don't just randomly kill someone. Like, you there's just no, aren't paying good attention to where your blows are landing. There's no targeting system. There's no way to stop that if you're, I don't know, if she runs in or something. Anyway, Skyrim, not great AI. Great no, other things, yeah, you know. not great AI. But anyway, so that was a it's funny. It's not great AI, but there are a lot of AI. Yes. So anyway, um, but I'm continuing to enjoy the game. I've been playing it sort of on and off, and it's a great game to just kind of pick up and then put down maybe for a little bit. And I don't feel like I'm stressed. Like I have to. How does the story end? Yeah, no, no, I, I'm not feeling that. I, I haven't found out even to no. this day. I never know what happens in story mission number four or whatever okay. far I got. Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty close to the end of the main quest line. Um, but now I'm kind of taking a break to finish because there's a point in the main quest line that I'd read about where it'll be different depending on how you've done the Imperial or the Stormcloak stuff or right. neither. So I want to finish the Imperial quest line. But anyway, I expect I'll be God, playing a lot more Skyrim. Dog. Jesus. Anyway, it's fun. Love this game. It looks beautiful. I also got to see it. My brother was home for Christmas, for Thanksgiving. He has like a full 4K PC gaming rig and Skyrim Special Edition running there. Holy fuck. I really wish they could have gotten that game running at a higher frame rate on consoles. I know that's impossible, probably, but it looks so gorgeous um, with like the full sixty. Yeah, and it, it kind of feels like a game that wants to have that higher frame rate too. Sometimes where it's a really solid thirty for me, but sometimes like just I don't know with the amount of stuff going on, it feels too low. Yeah. but it's fine. I'm playing it on Xbox and it's good, and I'm actually excited at. At some point, I'm going to try to put some mods on it and see how that works out. I'm kind of waiting because that disables achievements. Which I don't love that it does that. Like, I can understand for some mods, but I also feel like for mods that just, like, fix glitches and stuff, I wish right. they could kind of sort those out. But anyway. I hope um, they have the Xbox One mod where all the dragons are replaced with Thomas the Tank Engine, because I remember that I was a very do. popular one online back yeah. in the day. Yeah, I think that one was on there. That's good. But anyway, I am excited to play with some of those. So, And that's why I got it on Xbox. Normally I would play a game like this on PS4, but its mods are very kind of... Um, Limited. Got, yeah. 
They took an arrow to the knee. But um, we are not. No, <laughs> fucking no. I didn't make those jokes when I was playing Skyrim. Fucking all the way back then. We are not making those fucking jokes now. Shame on you, Jonathan. Holy shit! I can't believe you just said that. Uh, it was worth it. God damn it! All right, Sean, you want to talk about a game? Okay, let's talk about the game. You you were talking about glitches, so let's talk about the game that I was having. Let's say some technical issues with. Uh, I, I've played XCOM two. I actually I started playing XCOM two a while ago, and then I hit a point like halfway through where I sort of put it down and I played into Warfare and Dishonored two, and then I came back to it and I finished it a couple of days ago. Now I finished. It, I think I think on Black Friday I must have finished it because it was a little bit after Thanksgiving. And so XCOM two overall impressions are it's a, it's a really fun game that has. It builds well on the first game. I wish it kind of did some more in some places, but especially once you hit the second half of the game where a lot of your soldiers are powered up more and you get to play with more of the different abilities they add, I think some of those late-game uh, tactical battles in it are fucking just amazing. With the, there's so They give you so many different options and high-level abilities that you can really make these interesting tactical choices on how to like sort of string different soldiers abilities together and stuff like that that's a lot of fun and so i want to start with that because we're going to get into a lot of bad stuff but like overall i enjoyed it quite a bit and if you played the first xcom enemy unknown like you will enjoy xcom 2 and then yours we should say you're playing this on ps4 yes i'm playing it on ps4 because they it originally launched on pc uh, at the beginning of the year and then they only recently uh, put out the console versions and so yeah so that's it's it's a really well-made tactical game and it's basically all the good things about XCOM 1 are true here and they have fixed up and, or, and they have improved some of the stuff about the combat systems by adding more to it and in particular um, all the things they, they have added for your ability to customize individual soldiers to make them look different and, and actually unlock different customizable options as they rank up so you can give them cool scars and stuff like that. All that stuff is really cool because it gives you a good personal connection with your different units that you didn't quite have that in XCOM 1. So that's that's like the the overall review of the game of like hey if you like these kinds of games and you like XCOM one this is a really good one of those. The thing is though, while it has all the good parts about XCOM one, it also has all the bad parts of XCOM one. In that, for whatever reason, and I I hope that someone does some sort of like really like some journalist does a really big dive on like the the development of these games and what it is that makes it these games so just technically fucked at their core that like I just don't get it because it's something where it's like with Bethesda okay like Skyrim Fallout 4 whatever like some of the technical issues I'm not going to completely forgive but a lot of it is like yeah like these are really huge crazy games that there's no other game like this it's like I I will forgive some of these technical issues they're also playable yeah they're totally playable yeah and and any game like that that is like something brand new and weird and, and interesting and has never been quite done before, if it breaks in a couple of places, like, okay, I will forgive this because it's not like I haven't seen this done in a bunch of places. But if you have like a first-person shooter or something that's like the, the fucking aim down sights doesn't work anymore, that's like, well, okay, like, I can't, I'm not going to give this a pass because I've played a billion first-person shooters and none of them have ever had this issue. And I've played a lot of different tactical strategy games and... Other than XCOM 1 and XCOM 2, I've never played a tactical strategy game that was just so fucking broken. And luckily, I was able to finish XCOM 2. I was seriously frightened for a long time that I was like, 
I would not be able to finish this game because it got worse and worse as things went on. And so just to give like a general overview of the technical bugginess of this game, and obviously this is speaking to the PlayStation 4 version, but what I have heard from the PC version is that it has a lot of very similar issues, if not like even worse issues from when it launched. But some of the issues are the loading times are insanely long and they get longer and longer as the game goes on as you get more save files and stuff like that. And the, the loading times, I mean, literally like over minutes long. It's There there are some loading times where like I thought the game was just broken and wasn't going to load. Also known as Sonic 06 Syndrome. Yes, it's very, it had, I had some bad flashbacks on some of those loading screens of like, I I probably haven't seen a loading screen this so long since 2006. Those, those heady days. But uh, so there's that. Uh, the frame rate is very chaotic, and in some places, when you, especially when you get some of the late game abilities, you can just you can just murder the frame rate in this game real bad. When you blow up like a whole fucking city block with someone's like psychic ability, and like everything's on fire, the frame rate goes to just utter shit. It's so like it like literally. There's one mission where again I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to actually finish the mission because. The area where all the enemies were was, like, in this place where I had blown all this shit up and there were, like, five cars on fire and all the particle effects were making the frame rate check. And it's like, I don't know if I'll be able to finish this because the frame rate is probably at, like, six frames per second. And, like, I'm having trouble getting it to register my input because, it's like, I can't get it to recognize that I'm, like, trying to scroll right on this fucking mini to, like, shoot this asshole. And uh, so, you know, the frame rate has a lot of issues. The camera... I didn't have as many problems with as what I read in a lot of the reviews when the game came out on PC. But every once in a while, I would get a weird issue where, like, the like the action cam thing where that would, like, sometimes when you shoot an enemy or an enemy takes, like, an, an action on you, the, the camera will go down from that, like, top-down perspective and be, like, this action, like, eh, this is cool, and, like, angle on your, like, sniper dude taking a headshot on this guy and taking him out. Most times it worked fine. Sometimes it would just, like, zoom down and, like, stare at a wall. And you're just like, I don't know what's happening. And, like, generally that wouldn't be a big issue, though. Every once in a while it would be something like one of, like, a big powerful enemy was, like, doing something to one of my guys. And I just didn't even know. It's like, is he shooting him? Is he using mind control? Like, I don't know what's happening. And I need to wait till the camera goes back out. And I don't know... Did he miss? Is there like... I have to try to figure out who did he try to attack? What did he try to attack with? And did it do anything? And I have to like take a minute of like taking stock and be like... Okay, I think he... Whatever whatever he did, I don't think it did anything. Maybe it did. I don't know. And then to like keep on playing the game. So that's a, a kind of an annoying issue. But those are like kind of annoying. Not a big deal. There were some bugs I ran into the game... That were a much, much more of a big deal. Like, one bug I had was... Because this is actually kind of a funny series of events. Is I did one mission where I was fighting uh, some enemies. And, like, the, the mission was going well. And then all of a sudden, it goes to enemy turn. And then it just doesn't do anything. And it's just hanging. And it just has, like, enemy turn on screen. And, like, the, the noise that it plays when it's enemy turn played. And then the camera scrolled over to, like, the enemy sectoid unit whose turn it was. And then it's just, like, there, and, like, all the effects are playing, and, like, the, the characters are animating on the screen and everything, so it's not frozen, but it's just there. And it's just, the camera's just staring at this guy, like, well, this is really weird. And I was just like, oh, I'll just, like, get out my phone. And I was looking at Twitter, and I was, like, reading up fucking bullshit, and I looked it up, and I was like, it's still, this still has not done anything. Like, it's just hanging here. I did that for a while, and probably did that for, like, three minutes, and I was like, okay, this is 
this must just be busted. And so then I went back and I, like, I had to, because I couldn't even pause the game or anything. I had to like go out to the PS4 main menu and then like close the application and restart again, load the save. And then it was fine. Literally the very next battle, I was in a similar place, like halfway through the mission, fighting some enemies. Then all of a sudden it does the same thing again. And I was like, oh, well shit, I guess I'll look at my phone or something for a couple of minutes and give it a chance to see like, maybe like there's some crazy math that's happening that it just doesn't know what to do with. And it'll just sort things out. And so I do that for a little bit. And then eventually I hit like, cause I was just staring at my phone and I hear the noise that says it's like my turn. I'm like, Oh shit, it's my turn. But, but like, I didn't hear, I didn't hear anyone shoot or anything. Like that's, that's weird. I didn't hear like footsteps. I didn't hear the enemy move. And I look and it's like, nothing did nothing, nothing happened. And then, so I just like do my whole turn. I kill a bunch of guys and then it goes to the enemy turn again, and then when it scrolls over to the enemy, I'm like, okay. And then I like look at my phone for a couple minutes, and then I, now I'm like kind of trying to pay attention, like, what the fuck is happening right now? That's doing this again, and what happened on that last turn? And so then I'm kind of more paying attention, and I see when it transitions, the enemy never took a turn. The enemy is just standing in place. All the enemies are just standing in place, and it's just every time I would take a turn. It would just go to enemy turn, hang for a couple of minutes, go back to my turn, and then I could take a full turn again. And I went through the whole mission just slaughtering everything like that. Because it was all these enemies that, like, I would go and I would discover a new group of enemy. And instead of them taking, like, their movement turn of, like, of like doing this whole thing, it was like, oh, like, we've spotted them. And then, like, they, like, go and take cover and stuff that it normally does. Instead of doing that, I just, like, walk right up, and then it, like, triggers, like, this whole camera action where it zooms in on the enemy standing there, and they're supposed to be, like, reacting and animating, but they're just standing completely still in, like, their, like, like idle poses, and it's like, it just shows that for, like, a minute, and then I take my turn, and I just gun them all down and complete the mission like that, and that, that glitch then happened again, like, three missions later, so I completed two missions in this game of just, like, both of them took like fucking 15 minutes to get through through all the loading screens but but also when i tried to load a save on those it would happen again on the exact same turn so like like the second time it happened i was like i'm okay like this is cool that i get this free mission but i don't want to go through all this bullshit so i loaded an autosave that was three turns earlier played two more turns and then it happened fucking again once i got to that point it's just like Okay, I guess this is just how I have to finish this mission. Luckily, past that point, that specific one never happened again. Good. Good, yeah. So, so that's, like, the general pace of, like, some of the stuff of the game. That, that was, those were the two most sort of, like, remarkable bugs of where it's just, like, shit out and, like, didn't do anything. I had a couple of full-on game crashes that would happen every now and then, and that was probably, obviously, that was pretty annoying. Uh, the thing that was most distressing was, as the game went on... Every time you, you finish a mission, it goes to a black screen where it loads for a little bit and then it brings up this screen that like kind of shows some of your stats and loads in back to your base. And at first, you didn't. I never even really noticed the black screen thing that happened at the end of each mission very much. It's just like a black screen and then like the XCOM logo spinning in the corner. You know, you see those screens all the time in games. I wasn't even registering it because it was only up there originally for like two or three seconds. But as the game went on, that screen got progressively longer and longer after every single mission I did. And so by the time I got to the end of the game, every time I would beat a mission, I would go to that black screen and it would be on that black screen for about a minute. And then it would go into this load. I was like, this is getting, this is getting slightly disconcerting that this is getting this long. And so 
like I'm getting right at the end of the game, and this is one of the things that was happening. I was like, I'm afraid that this game is just going to break because the frame rate is really not holding up. Even like it's holding up worse than it than it usually does. And then now this weird black screen thing is like happening in a way that I'm really noticing this happening. And also every time I try to bring up the save menu, it takes like a minute to load up the save menu. It's like this game just feels like it's dying, like at its core, that it's like I pushed it so far that it's just like it's exhausted and it can't go any further. But it's like I knew I was probably like three or four missions away from the end. So I'm like pushing through and just dealing with this like weird fucking extra load time with this black screen at the end of every mission. But then I get to, you go to the final, final mission where you basically, it gives you the, the prompt that says like, hey, this is the last mission. If you have any other shit you want to do, you go do that shit. But then this is the last thing. And that actually leads to two missions where there's one that you like have a reduced to team member thing where you have only four guys and you have to go like this kind of stealth mission and hack into this thing. And then you go and teleport to the alien homeworld and fuck up shit there with your full team. And it's a really cool mission. But the thing, the, the crazy thing that happened was I beat the first, the penultimate mission, and then it goes to that black screen, and then it loads up with this cutscene that shows, like, oh, we hacked into their communication thing and all this stuff. It's like this big long cutscene. It's probably like a two minute long cutscene. And then it goes to black again for like a minute, and then it loads up and it plays that cutscene again. Like, like the exact same cutscene. And I'm like really worried. I kind of like. Pressing on console buttons and stuff. It's like, what is... I can't... I can't skip it. And, like, I'm having flashbacks at this point to fucking playing Assassin's Creed Revelations where I beat a mission and then the game loaded up the first cutscene of the game and auto-saved over my one save and I couldn't play the game anymore. That's infamous story on this podcast. I was like, before, like, oh, fuck. This isn't going to fucking happen to me on another goddamn video game. That's impossible, right? Luckily, that never happened. The cutscene plays for the second time... And then it lo- then it like loads up properly like the next cutscene that introduces the next mission. So I'm like, okay, that was fucking crazy and weird. I've never seen a video game do that before, but at least it w- didn't like ruin anything. And so then I played the last mission and I beat the last mission. And the last mission's awesome and like the last part of the last mission is really fucking hard. And like the way I beat it, I just felt like so proud of myself of like orchestrating this thing of where you have to kill these one enemies that every time that they have a bunch of health. And every time you attack them, they teleport to, like, a semi-random place on the battlefield. And so trying to, like, in the as the battle goes on longer and longer, more other enemies spawn in. So you have to try to kill these three guys, like, as quickly as possible. But they're very hard to pin down. And so, like, the last one I had, I find, like, organized my guys in this, like, perfect sort of, like, semicircle around the room. So, like, wherever this fucker teleported to, my sniper had, like, a clear line of fire on him. And so I was just, like, bouncing with him, like, around the room with all these shots until, like, I just had the perfect sniper shot and took him out. It's like, fucking, yeah, that was an awesome mission. I felt like it was really hard, like, trying to balance all these things at the same time. But, like, I managed to, like, you know, handle all these different spinning plates of killing all these other enemies while getting my guys in the right position to kill this last fucker it was like that was challenging and made me really rethink my strategy and so then it plays it goes to the black screen for like a minute and then it plays the last cutscene of the game which is a pretty long like five minute cutscene because it's the last cutscene of the game and then it goes to black screen oh no and then it plays credits and then it goes to black screen and then it plays the last cutscene of the game again and plays the credits again and then the game is over i was like Thank God that I'm done with this game because I'm pretty sure if I had gone to one more mission that had a cutscene on it, that's when the game would have just exploded. Because I have never seen a video game load a cutscene twice in a row. I've certainly never seen a video game do that twice, 
twice in a row. How does that even happen? Fucking dude, I don't know. Like, the, the, fucking crazy. The technical shit in this game is fucking nuts. So, like, luckily, none of those bugs I hit were game-ending in any way, but, like, they were all annoying, and I'm they sure... They cut it pretty close. Yeah, I am sure that there are some people who have XCOM 2 and just, like, hit a thing that, like, was like, well, shit, I just can't, like, I could, like, every time I hit... Like, if that one mission that where they hung on enemy turn, but then it never went back and, like, never switched over, and it just hung there the entire time, if that had not been resolved by me loading a save the way that the, the other version of that glitch did... I would never have been able to finish that game. It's like... So, you know, buyer beware for XCOM. Like, XCOM Enemy Unknown had a lot of bad glitchy stuff the first one, but, like, I never had it quite that bad. And it's always one of those things where you don't know. Some people probably will play this game, and it will be mostly fine. Like, stuff like the frame rate is going to be terrible no matter what you're doing. But, like, whether you're going to hit some of those weirder bugs with, like, the cutscene playing twice and stuff... Who knows? This is the kind of stuff I just have so little tolerance yeah, for. Yeah, it's really... It's, yeah. Like, it, it's nowhere near as bad as the Vita port of XCOM in Me Unknown that I talked about in, like, April or whatever, where it's like, that was literally completely unplayable. This was just, like, grinding on the line of unplayable. <laughs> but you never want that anyway. No! Yeah. No, you really don't want, want that. I am not making excuses for this game at all. But it is still, like, when the game works, it's really fun. Particularly, again, like, I think the first half of the game, uh, like, the pacing, like, the, the difficulty curve is a little bit rough. That it's, like, the first half of this game is tough in ways that, like, it felt like, oh, XCOM 1 had this reputation for very being very difficult. So they leaned into it really hard. And so, like, that stuff was a little bit frustrating. But once you get over that sort of initial hump and start upgrading your soldiers and you start getting more abilities then the game like the the combat really starts working really well so like i I don't know how much of a recommendation that is for this game i'm glad i played it but like i can't necessarily recommend that people get it until there's like unless it gets severe patching who knows because also like the the thing that's kind of most alarming about it is that the pc version of this game came out months ago at this point almost a year ago and so they had time to work on this port, and they had time to look at what the technical issues were for the PC version, and apparently they did not fix up much when they put it out on consoles. I don't know. That's not. That's never good. Yeah. This is why I love my world of playing 3DS games and things like that, because you don't... This, this yeah. like, literally can't happen. Yeah. Like, XCOM 2 is going to be one of those ones where I'm, at the end of the year, I'm going to have to have a real hard, like, soul search about, like, how I judge that game... Based on like how much fun I had and how frustrating the technical shit was, because that's that's just one of those things with video games that you don't run into that with other things. You don't no. run into like, oh, I really liked this book, but like I had this big issue where every single page was stuck to every other single page <laughs> of this book, and I had to play the whole thing with a fucking knife so I could like cut everything out. Like you just don't have that happen with anything, you know? No. Yeah, like even if you went to a movie theater and they projected it wrong, the movie is fine and you could go see yeah, it again. Yeah, they, they give you a refund and you go see it again. Right, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, games are weird. Yeah. It is true. Let's talk about uh, Hitman. Yes, now. let's talk about Hitman. So, because this will be the next one for my turn. Okay. And uh, anyway, um, yeah, so I've played more of Hokkaido. i played a little bit of some other stuff. I tried the latest Elusive Target. The and once again... I have not even seen an elusive target yet. I've done it like four times and I've never even gotten in the room with the dude. I so. I went for and I accomplished the silent assassin takedown of that target, which is cool. the only one I've done. Where was he? Uh, so I never he, found him. He runs a route where he um, is in the basement kitchen and then he goes up to the second floor where there's a little like kind of like buffet area where they're like 
preparing some stuff and then he goes back down to the area behind the bar on the first floor okay. and then he goes back down to the kitchen and he basically runs between those three areas I, I was I was everywhere and I guess I was just missing him like I started in the kitchens and I never saw him yeah like, like he, actually I think like his route is somewhat randomized in the sense of like sometimes he would start in the kitchen like he would start in any of those three areas and then move okay. between them yeah because I never even like got a blip on my radar or anything so I don't yeah yeah I don't know even yeah one day I'll do an elusive target. My goal is just to like meet the target, not even fucking kill him. I just want to see him. Okay, I mean anyway. that's 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 a reasonable goal. But uh, yeah, played the Hokkaido one a few times more. I have not by any means done the mastery on it because um, I think as we talked about before, I I like this game a lot. I don't think I'm of the same level of like enthrallment with it as you are because yeah. I have not technically like mastered any of the six levels so far. Although I came really close with Colorado. Yeah. I think I'm like level 19. I mean you also started playing the game quite a bit right. later after I did. Yeah I haven't had as much time. But I did another couple runs in Hokkaido and I've gotten to like that one a little bit more. Still not my favorite of the maps but I think it's got some cool stuff. Definitely I did finally did the one with the heart where you oh, just throw sorry. the heart in the garbage. That is the best oh, assassination in this God. game right? Um, there is one other on Hokkaido. All the ones where you take out Eric Soders in that map are they're, really they're good. fantastic. The, the, I think maybe my favorite assassination. It's either the one where you just take, find his heart, and fucking throw it in the garbage because that's just the ice coldest shit you could possibly do to kill someone. But there's another one that's really good. That is you, and it's really hard to get. But it's one of my favorite ones. Uh, one of my favorite opportunities in the whole game is you uh, have to get into where he is. Wearing the classic Hitman suit and like there's a prompt if you're wearing the Agent 47 signature suit at his like feet that you go up there and you just stand there and he wakes up and he looks at you and he just goes into shock and has a heart attack. That because, is brilliant. Because he knows what Agent 47 looks like so he sees that you are there. It's like it is like it's like the kill that like if you were making the if you for whatever reason you were making a third Hitman movie and like you like you were doing that end of like Casino Royale or whatever where like you go in and like it's like the post plot thing of like the the hero taking out like the actual the villain like that is what I would do it's like you know you have like all the people in the facility looking around and then you have like someone like glance at the the security camera and see like this bald guy just standing there and then the patient die and they run into the room and there's no one there because he's disappeared and then you cut the credits yeah that's like that is it, it's it's it feels really good because you have to also to get that you have to play the game super stealthy so it's like it's a really creative one in both of the sense of like how cool it is and then how like it changes up the gameplay to get it that is brilliant yeah anyway so I was doing for the other what's the chick's name uh I can't remember Yumi, I think. Yeah, anyway, we'll call her Yumi. That's fine. Um, but you have to kill her, too. Yeah. And I was doing the one where you become the yoga teacher. And that's you kill what her I like that one. But it didn't go quite right. Okay. <laughs> and these are the best Hitman yes, stories. Yes, yeah. So I got through the whole thing, and I, like, um, you know, you have to get a wrench and get the yoga area cleared out, because then the yoga teacher will go downstairs. You have to go down there and get him. But things went wrong very fast, because I basically, at this point, I was kind of frustrated, so I just had my... So that's when I get my silenced pistol out, and it's like, right. I'm not fucking around. Yeah. Which I can totally, like, imagine 47's personality. There's a point where he's just like, I'm just gonna shoot Yeah, them. it's like, fuck that, I'm not putting on this stupid hat and, like, putting this rat poison in this drink and hoping she drinks it. <laughs> right. I'm just gonna shoot her in the head. Yeah. So anyway, I shoot the yoga teacher in the head. And there's a guy next to him who would notice you, and I shoot him in the head too. And I think I'm good because in the room next to us, there's a place where I can put two bodies. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, I will be okay. My yes, score. I've been there a thousand times. My score is going to take a hit. I don't care. But yeah, I'm whatever. Do it. Yeah. Unless you're going for a specific score run, the score doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. So anyway, um, I forget exactly what the series of events that went down was, but I drag one of the bodies in, 
throw it in the, it was like a laundry bin or something. And there's a woman in the laundry room who had her back turned and I thought I could just get them in there without her noticing. And I actually did. But what happened was this is near the security guard area and one of them walked in to the hallway while I'm moving one of the bodies. And so then I have to shoot him. Yeah. And then someone hears the gunfire. Anyway, I had about five bodies to store at this point. Right. And I had places for them. Wound up with like one over and I'm like, I'm just going to throw them in the laundry room and yeah. hopefully no one goes in there. No, like you've already killed all the people in there. Yeah. No one's going to come into the laundry room. Yeah. Yeah, so drop him in the laundry room. The woman finally notices me. Shoot her too. She's in the laundry room. Get the yoga instructor costume on. And I'm like, Jesus, I hope no one comes into this room. Yeah. Because it's just going to reek of death. Yeah. So anyway, I go up. And what you have to do is you have to talk to Yumi. And how it's supposed to work is you talk to her. And she's like, oh, cool. Let's go do our yoga. And then yeah. you go to the yoga room, which I don't know what it looks like for reasons you're about to learn. Okay. I, and, can, I can tell you what it is like after the yeah. story. Anyway, and then you go in there and I assume you kill her in there, right? Yes. So I go up to her, I talk to her, and she's like, okay, cool. And so you and her bodyguard start moving towards the area. But then I see body sound. <laughs> and I don't okay. know which one, but I have left plenty of bodies at this point. That, this so, is the best feeling in Hitman, where like you've killed so many people <laughs> that when body found comes up, you're like, I don't even know what that means at this point, honestly. this was the same run as the, the heart one. Okay, and yeah. for the heart one, when I got down there, because I was actually playing this run pretty casually, and so when I got down there, the morgue, something went wrong, and I killed two doctors, and then I realized there were two more doctors. Anyway, every doctor in the morgue is dead. Okay, great. And again, yeah. not enough like bins for bodies so one of them was lying out in a place that i thought no one would go so it could have been that it could have been the laundry room who the hell knows but a body was found and this was in sort of the main floor area where you know there's sort of the different stairs it's like that very wooden area there's some bathrooms there if you've played the level you kind of know this and this was actually near that one staircase that has two entrances one to like the spa area, and one to like that kind of indoor greenhouse area. Yeah, yeah. So I'm right near that area. And anyway, um, it says body found, and then it's like target lockdown, and the bodyguard says something to her, and then kind of runs off, and so she's going to have to go with him, and, and she doesn't want to go with me anymore. And I'm like, fuck. Well, what do I do? I think, I, and I didn't want to shoot at this point, because there's a lot of people nearby, and that would not go well for me. But I like go through my inventory really quick, and I forgot I picked up I don't even remember what it was. It was the kind of weapon that was hilarious for this scenario where I could stab her. I th- No, it was the screwdriver. I yeah, had the screwdriver. Yeah. I had the screwdriver. I have thrown a lot of screwdrivers into people's yep. heads in that game. So let's say I had the screwdriver and I just go up to her and I just stab her to finish her off and kill her. And I stab her and her bodyguard has already walked down the stairs for some reason so he doesn't see. And then there's this one other just patient dude who's like, what the hell? Yeah. And he just saw the yoga teacher just stab this woman with a screwdriver. So I go up to him, I stab him too, <laughs> and then I run into the bathroom, kill a ton of dude, steal his clothes, walk out, and get to the exit, and Great. I'm done. But oh, like, man. there would be, I don't think I would make it out of the country in this run, because there would be so many dead bodies at that fucking resort. Like, that would be like, it would have its own Wikipedia page. It's like the Great yeah. Hokkaido Mass. Massacre, Massacre of yeah. 2016. It was it was hilarious. Man, it was good. That's good. Yeah. It was satisfying too. <laughs> yeah, that actually that reminds me of something I did in Hitman because I I finished all the the Hokkaido Mastery ones and actually like after having played that map a lot, it's it's one of my favorites. I think there's a oh, lot can, of. Can I say one other stuff. thing? Okay, yeah, go ahead. This yeah. is the kick. This is like the punchline: is killing her the way I did. Gave me the challenge completion for the yoga instructor thing. And I nice. never got her to the yoga room. Nice. But it still counted. The, the yoga one is really good. You should do it either way. It's, okay. it's funny. <laughs> it's very funny. 
But yeah, so so I, I got all the level 20 stuff in Hokkaido, and I, I really love that map a lot. And one of the things that's kind of cool about that is when one of the things you get when you unlock, or when you get level 20 mastery on it, is you unlock the ability to use all your other slots again. So, like, you know, it has the, like, concealed weapon and stuff that is, mm-hmm. is grayed out originally. It's like, you unlock that stuff to be able to use for, like, the escalation missions and stuff like that if you want to. So that's... That's a like that's a like a fun kind of more substantial reward, and I did actually appreciate having to play through that map without all the like ridiculous tools I had gotten so used to and having to really like improvise stuff. Uh, that was fun. But so then after I did did that, um, I had like two more mastery levels that I had just never gotten on the Colorado map because other games had come up and I was playing them. Or one very specific game had come up and I was playing that a lot. Uh, and so I was like, okay. Time to go back and, and finish off that Colorado stuff, and I was doing that, and I did, like, the Poison one on that map, which is a lot of fun. I, I did a couple of the other challenges on that and got my mastery to level 20. And then I had this idea, because I think this was also around the time where I was playing some Dishonored 2, and I was doing, and I was playing, like, a level in Dishonored 2 and trying out doing it more lethally, and I was, like, having fun with that, but I was slightly dissatisfied with it, and it gave me this idea of, like, what if I tried to do this in Hitman? <laughs> And so I went to the Colorado map very specifically, and I, I like brought in like an assault rifle and stuff, which I never do, you know, because you fucking use the, the assault rifles that you unlock in that game. I was like, I'm going to play through this map and try to kill literally every single person on the map. And I have to say, it's kind of an amazing way to play that game. Like, I don't think most of the other maps are probably not really great for it. Because there's like giant crowds and yeah, stuff. Yeah, one of the great things about the Colorado map is, yeah, that you're not like walking to this like, room and then, like, just murdering, like, 20 civilians, you know? Like, that would start to feel like a very different kind of game. But on the Colorado map, everyone on the map is a military target, and they're all carrying guns and stuff, so I was like, well, great, like, this means I'll have plenty of ammunition, because I could just always pick up other assault rifles and stuff, and let's just, like, see how far this goes. And I didn't really expect to do the whole thing. I was just like, oh, this would be a funny experiment. It's actually a pretty fun way to play that game. It changes so much of the systems, and, like, it's, and it's sort of... It's, it's not just sort of, it's insanely creepy once you get to, like, near the end. Because, and I didn't actually really realize this, they never spawn more people into those maps. The people that are in that map, like all the guards and stuff, that is a set number of people. They do not repopulate. And so by the time I got to the end of this sick experiment, like... You know, you know how you when you kill people, the guards find them and then like wrap them up in body bags and like drag the body bags to like yeah, yeah. a couple of points on the map where they will take those body bags. <laughs> when you play that game like that, uh, you get to know very quickly where the body bags are taken on that map, the different spots, because it is literally a mountain of body bags. It's fucking. It's really disturbing, but it's also kind of amazing because then because once you get to the end. And the part where I was starting to feel almost kind of uncomfortable with what I was doing, it felt almost a little bit like you playing Red Dead Redemption, <laughs> was I had this feeling like I was about to, like, I was probably like 20% through my genocide, and I was about to, at this point, I was like, oh, I could just kill this one target, because I've killed everyone else in this area, like I could kill the Maya lady or whoever she was, and I was like, but no, I'm going to leave the targets for last, because that seems like that would be the most satisfying thing to do, so I killed... Every single person on that map, it was it was a fucking graveyard. It was just nobody. Like, you walked through that whole thing, and all it was, it was completely empty other than, like, the handful of dead bodies, like, scattered on, like, different areas of the last couple of people that didn't have anyone to drag them away. 
and then it's like the couple handful of corners of the map is just a mountain of body bags, and then there are four utterly terrified, <laughs> scared shitless people in each of the different like safe houses on the map, and you just walk in there and you just blow them away because there's nothing they can do because none of the targets are armed; they can't fight back. And so when there are no guards, they are com- literally completely defenseless. They cannot do anything except for run away. And so you can't do anything except for feel like a monster and gun them down in cold blood because I've come this far. I've murdered probably over a hundred people at this point. Like, you're talking about people writing articles about, like, your, the Hokkaido massacre. Like, what about, this is like the greatest massacre ever committed on American soil where this entire encampment of military people in the mountains of Colorado are just completely massacred and no one even hears about it until decades later when like a mountaineer stumbles upon the site and sees these mass graves erected. That's the funniest part is no one would figure it out for years. No one would know. It's this completely remote little like custom made little town in in the mountains. Oh my god. If we gave this story to a listener as like a transcription and took off the names, yeah. would they think I was the one who came up with it? This I sounds probably, like a thing yeah. I would do, like based on Red Dead and like, yeah. Yeah, no, it's... Because I have tried that in Red Dead Towns. <laughs> so can I kill everyone in this town? I need to do this. I am totally going to go home and do this tonight. Yeah, yeah. Here's a tip. If you bring in one of your like um, silenced assault rifles, uh, if you pick up an enemy assault rifle, and then pick up your assault rifle again, you will, you will keep all the ammo you got from that other assault rifle, because the, the weapons you can bring in are a lot better than, like, the right. random sheet that you can pick up, and using silenced weapons is the way to go, because fucking you will get swarmed by these guys. Yeah. But it is something where it's like, it, it does reveal the, the versatility of the stealth mechanics in the game, in that, like, that game is in no way built to support that idea, like, intentionally... But, like, it is utterly executable, and it reveals different things about the combat in that game that, like, of how to play and different strategies you can use that you would never come in, come, like, in contact with when you're just playing through the game completely normally. It's, it's like, it was kind of fucked up, but it was also sort of entrancing to, like, re- like reveal this whole other part of this game of, like, this whole other space of possibilities that, had, like, had never even really occurred to me that you, like, could do if you really wanted to that's, like... And I kind of, like, I, I, I started doing one on Paris the other day of, like, I'm going to see what this is like on another map. And then once I started gunning down a lot of civilians, I'm like, I'm not as comfortable with this anymore. This is, this is not would, as fun. I would feel like that level in Modern Warfare yeah, 2. Yeah, only instead of it being, like, this forced story mission, you are completely of your own volition loading into this game that in no way encourages you to kill, like, civilians and just murdering them en masse. That's yeah, great. Hitman's a wish, pretty good video game. I wish that was like a challenge built in, and there was some conversation with the woman at the end of like, "Wow, forty-seven, you made." Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, with like the ice cold British ladies, like, oh, "Fuck!" Like I, I, I've seen some shit working this job. Like I've, I've been at this for decades. You know, I've been your handlers for like this entire series. But holy fucking shit, forty-seven! Like, did you, you really broke up on the bad side, of the wrong side of the bed this morning? Did you? <laughs> like, fuck. Uh... We're gonna. You're. You're. Oh, and by the way, my score was zero. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Somehow, for some whatever reason, I didn't get a positive score at the end of that mission. All right. So, uh, okay, your turn next because I started the Hitman discussion. Okay. So, what game do you want to talk about next? Uh, next up is, I guess, Dishonored Two would be the next one on my list. Um, fuck, Dishonored Two is a hard one for me to talk about and stuff. It's just that it's like I have very conflicted feelings about this game. Um. 
I guess, first of all, I enjoyed it a lot. I think it is it is well made for what it is. But I was very frustrated for most of the game because it was it's a it's a, it's a situation where you have a game that like in some ways similar to XCOM two that it has all the great things that Dishonored one has and in some ways it has more of that because you have two playable characters and one of them Emily and I played through the whole game as Emily in a non lethal way and then I went like halfway through the game with Corvo completely lethal and sort of sort of similar to how I played the first Dishonored game fell off the lethal playthrough because it's not as interesting to me. But so, so like, it has all that great level design, and it's got the, the cool powers, and I like Emily's powers quite a bit, even if I think they're not quite as interesting as Corvo's are. But, like, it, that stuff of the game, like, the core design stuff of the game is really good. The problem is that, like, it doesn't fix any of the problems that Dishonored 1 had, and especially for a sequel that comes four years after the last game, and for a game that, like... And, you know, if you, uh, listeners remember, I played Dishonored 1 for the first time this summer through the Definitive Edition. So I've, like, have played these games pretty recently back-to-back compared to if people played Dishonored 1 at launch and they're now jumping into Dishonored 2. They might have different feelings because of that. But, like, I was kind of hoping that it would take the problems with Dishonored 1, which, while Dishonored 1 is a very good game, it is a game that definitely has quite a few problems... But I was hoping you would take those and, like, fix them and, like, rethink things that of, like, the mana system that I think felt kind of outdated to Dishonored 1 is the exact same in this. And, like, the power-up system, which was, like, fine in Dishonored 1, they actually doubled down on it so hard of you having, go, like, powering up your abilities by finding rune collectibles in the environment. They doubled down on it and, like, put way more into the levels in a way that I think is actually detrimental to the pacing of this game in a way it wasn't in the first game. And then on top of that, I think the the power system they have and the upgrade system they have is flawed because you have to invest so many runes to get a, the, like, the ability to use the basic version of a power that you have no idea whether you like that power or not. So you have to use like six runes to get the fucking mesmerize ability or something. And I did that and I realized, well, I'm never, I'm never going to use this because I thought it would be somewhat more effective than it is. And it's not quite what I was imagining from the power description. And so I could have spent these six runes powering up like my favorite ability and getting being able to jump higher. And that would have been way better. And now I've like just blown six of the like very limited resources you have to level up in the game. It's like, that is how Dishonored 1 worked. I thought that was a pretty stupid system. It's like, you could have fixed that in Dishonored 2 and come up with something better. And said they like went with the same system and made it so excessive that it's actually worse. And then the most unforgivable part of something that they didn't fix to me is that the story in this game is not only just as bad as the story in Dishonored 1, which to recap... In my opinion, the story in Dishonored 1 is about the most cliche video game story you could have possibly found for a game that came out in 2012, right down to having you literally rescue a princess and having the third act twist of the guy you've been working for the entire time, who obviously totally must be on the up and up. And, oh no, he betrays you in the end, because it's like, of course he does, because that guy in every video game ever has always betrayed you in the end. And so, like, Dishonored 1 has... A, a fine and interesting setting and a very bad, boring story with, like, no interesting characters to tell in that setting. Dishonored 2 has a completely nothing story. It just dumps you in immediately. It's set 15 years after the last game, and you either play as Corvo or Emily, who's who is the princess you saved in the first game, and now she has become the empress of, of the, the islands or whatever. And so you the literally the... 
first three minutes of the game are you walk into your throne room as Emily because you, you pick your character a little bit after this. So like every starting thing is you're all from Emily's perspective. And so you walk into your throne room. Corvo, your cool dad guy, comes up and he's like, hey, you've been, you're the empress and you've been doing all this stuff. But I know you've been sneaking out at night and doing all your crazy shit as a way to justify why she can murder people horribly. Like she really knows how to murder people very well if you want to. And so you do that, and you sit down on your throne, and so that's like your like thirty seconds of setup over who Corvo and Emily is. Is like you're the Empress, but you also go out at night and do cool stuff. You're like you're my dad. You were from the first game, and then you sit down on your throne, and then Vincent D'Onofrio playing the Kingpin from Daredevil, playing the Duke of Sarconis, who's the villain of this game, and delivers the most fucking hammy fucking performance I have ever heard in a video game. I swear to God, of all the things they did not need to bring back from Dishonored 1, it was the clumsy celebrity voice acting. So you have Vincent D'Onofrio come in. Also, Rosario Dawson plays another character in this game. Daredevil Reunion. Daredevil Reunion, and then also a larger Marvel Universe reunion, Sam Rockwell, known from his role in Iron Man 2, plays a character... <laughs> known from other things, but yeah. plays a character who has about 25 lines, who dies in the first mission of the game. I have no idea why Sam Rockwell is fucking in this thing. But but anyways, Vincent D'Onofrio walks into the courtroom with a bunch of robots, and then the Delilah, who is the villain of the DLC from Dishonored 1 who you either killed or trapped in her painting dimension at the end of that DLC, she shows up and she's like, I'm the secret long-lost sister of your mother, which makes me your secret long-lost aunt, which is something that never came up in that DLC, and now I'm taking over your kingdom. And I guess everyone's just okay with that for some reason. And Vincent D'Onofrio is standing there, he's going like, I am the Duke of Sarconis and blah, 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 and doing his exact kingpin voice. And then they, they kidnap the Empress depose her and whoever and you pick whoever you are you either if you're emily they trap corvo and stone if you're corvo they trap emily and stone and then past that the story stuff is more or less the same with like dialogue differences but like that is and that whole scene happens in about two or three minutes and that is your plot setup for the game and it's like what the fuck like how how are how did she just... How did this woman that if you did not play the DLC, you would have no idea who she was. And I imagine even if you did play the DLC, and but you played it like four years ago when it came out, you probably don't remember her at all. Like, you don't get any introduction to who she is, why she has magic powers. At any point in the game, they don't ever really address that stuff that much. They only very vaguely address, like, in like kind of allusions to the events of the DLC, how she maybe is still alive. Especially considering that either she's dead or if you played it non-lethally, she's trapped in her painting dimension. It's like, they never really resolve that shit. It's like, the plot is more or less incomprehensible. The characters are even more paper-thin than they were in Dishonored 1. The setting does not have the novelty it had in Dishonored 1 because this is the sequel. So it doesn't have that to sort of, like, trade off of for narrative stuff. And then... Just really, like, Vincent D'Onofrio, man. Like, I, I love Vincent D'Onofrio... A whole bunch, like, I, he's great in Full Metal Jacket. I love him in uh, Law & Order Criminal Intent, which I, that's one of my favorite TV shows from back in the day. It's a, like, really, really good uh, detective show. And obviously, I love his performance that we've talked about a lot on our Daredevil episodes as Kingpin on Daredevil. But the one thing that you don't get Vincent D'Onofrio to do is you don't get him for voice acting because he's a physical actor. Like, that's the thing that he does so well is he's he's so good at, like, either manipulating his body, like in Men in Black where he plays the villain in that movie and he's, like, the crazy alien dude. Oh, God, I didn't 
I don't know yes. if I knew that. Yes, that is he's he's the bug alien that like takes over that farmer. He's the farmer yeah, yeah, yeah. guy that then has to like act all water. Weird. Yes, that is yeah. him. That is Vincent D'Onofrio. It's like that's the kind of shit he's really good at. He's so good at manipulating sort of his presence physically on the screen. Is what's remarkable about him as an actor. You don't get him, so you get him in the booth and then give him like the one fucking voice acting direction because all the voice acting in the game, even from the the nor normal like non celebrity voice actors, is really stiff in the exact same way that Dishonored One's voice acting was stiff. So it feels like the only voice acting direction he was given was. Vincent, try to try and be try to say this line, but say it in a menacing way. Just say it menacingly. It's like, uh, could you give me a bit more? Just say it menacingly. It's like, okay, I am the Duke of Sarconus. It's like, can you try this here? Try reading this line where it's like, okay, uh, and I will rule over New York City. No, no, not New York City. Not no. And like, you rule over Dunwall. It's Dunwall this time. Uh, okay, should I just scratch out New York City and write in Dunwall? Because this is just these are just my lines from Daredevil. These are just my lines from Daredevil, and you just you're just telling me to say them menacing in the way I said them in Daredevil. That's all you're asking me to do. It's so insane that they were just giving he's giving that exact same performance, which has none of the impact it has when it's only the voice. You know, only the voice and in a different setting. And in a different setting with like very bad direction on it it's like i i just cannot for the life of me understand why they got vincent d'onofrio to play that role it's so baffling the kids love vincent d'onofrio exactly you know he's he's that like a tier like super recognizable celebrity voice that you need and you just sell your video game these days it's him and zach efron man disney disney channel stars all the way yep him zach efron and sam rockwell you know (laughs) three people you really need to sell a video game but uh yeah so so that stuff like really disappointed me a lot because I do think uh, Dishonored, because the setting is so cool and so fleshed out and creative and it's this weird sort of very unique feeling steampunk thing that has all these like Victorian influences, that there's so much potential to tell a really awesome story. And I feel like these games, like Dishonored 1 and 2, I like like the, the the everyone on the team that like goes out and talks about these games and stuff. The, the, it feels like they're trying to position it, and the way they tell the story feels like they're positioning it as having this like interesting narrative. But they can't do it. They just for whatever reason, it feels like it's one of those instances where the game design has taken such a priority over everything else that they didn't give the writers the opportunity to make something out of like a story out of those things and it's just like a bunch of levels that most of them on their own are very very good but when you string them together and this is something that i'll talk about this is the exact same way with, with Titanfall 2 but with, like when you just string these like individual set pieces together but don't have any like connective narrative tissue it, i like in the game feeling kind of cold because it's like in the moment it's a lot of fun but there's no cumulative impact because there's no emotion to it anymore it's just fun to engage with it, it sounds like the kind of thing where you need to either choose to have less story or more story yeah yeah like because that's something that like we've talked about a lot how perfect doom is on the level of yeah. it has the exact right amount of no story to be tied together in a way where it is pure atmosphere and tone yeah and there is technically a narrative going on but that is so not the focus um but there are lots of games where, like, it can't get to the level of having a great story, but it wants to have a story, but that story just doesn't do enough to be tissue for the game. Yeah. I, th- I think Hitman is another example of that, of where it's just, yes. like, it has the story framing to move the characters from one place to the next, but, like, the game is built in such a way that, like, 
you are playing through these levels multiple times and like engaging with these levels in such a sort of like deep way that you're not missing the lack of narrative of like a more elaborate narrative yeah, yeah. tissue. And actually, that's something that I think I would have probably enjoyed Dishonored 2 a lot more if Hitman had not come out this year and I had played as much as that because I think a lot of the ideas of Hitman being the episodic game it is and a lot of the stealth mechanics of Hitman are a lot more... Even though they're different kinds of games, the, the stealth in Hitman is way more satisfying than it is Dishonored. It's just like... if that like Honestly, I think Dishonored 2 should have like a business model like Hitman or something at some point because the thing that's so remarkable about the game is that the level design is so good like these games are basically like level design porn and if you're someone who just wants that like it definitely has that and there are two levels in particular uh, the Clockwork Mansion which I think is level 3 or 4 which is uh, basically you once you invade this like one mansion you have to navigate this like big elaborate mansion that has all these sections that move around and twist and transform based on like switches you pull in the environment and so the geometry of the mansion shifts in such a way that it's actually i mean the way they had to construct it in the game is that it feels believable like it feels like if you you could build a like scale model of this thing in the real world with enough money and have it actually physically function with the way these rooms shift around and and go up and down and stuff like that and having to sort of navigate that is really interesting it's incredibly clever and then there's another level a lot later i think it's level seven or eight called crack in the slab which is the one they showed off at e3 a little bit that has like the time travel thing where you have a you're, you invade this one dilapidated mansion and then you get this uh, sort of mirror thing that allows you to, or lens that allows you to see three years into the past when the mansion was like alive and bustling and all these people were in it and you get this ability to shift more or less seamlessly between the past version of the mansion and the present version of the mansion to try to find the passcode to get into this one room that contains the secret to how Delilah is like immortal or whatever. And, and that level is really amazing in terms of the, the technological feat of it and just the sense, the deeper you get into that level of, of losing your sense of like which reality you're in anymore of like, am I in the present and am I in the past? Like I keep on losing my grounding of what's like where I'm standing and, and like where I am right now. And like it, it gets into some almost like, like weird kind of like head fucking territory of just like what the like I can't, I can't process the information that's going on, and it does that entirely through the game mechanics, and not like through weird story stuff. And so, like that stuff is so impressive. The problem is that, like, as the way that I suspected would be the case if Hitman was released in a more traditional uh, manner, I play through those levels once, and then I go through the next to the next level, then I play that level, next level, next level, and then I beat the game, and then I try another playthrough, but then I get burned out because it's like. Uh, like I, because some of those levels are not my favorite, but I can't just. You actually, it's one of the things that's a big issue with this game is you can't just load up one of the levels from like a mission select screen the way you could in Dishonored One. You have to start a new save file with a new character and stuff and go through them again. Which I hope they patch in a mission select thing. It seems like a crazy oversight for this kind of game, especially considering Dishonored One had it. But yeah, like there's, I there's not this sense of like the game really encouraging you to replay the levels the way that Hitman does. And I, but I do think like the levels are designed in such a way that there are really interesting different pathways you can find through the level. The one thing is that there is no alternate way to actually complete the level. There's only the non-lethal way and the lethal way. The lethal way is always just shooting a fucker in the head, you know? And so that, 
if if they leaned into more of that kind of stuff and found them like gave you more different options for how to take care of the target and stuff like that and built out the levels slightly more and packaged it in the same way that Hitman was packaged, I think I would actually enjoy that more. Yeah. And so and so a lot of like my playthrough Dishonored 2 was kind of played with that of enjoying the game for what it was, but like wishing that it was a lot better than it was because either because Hitman already proved that there's a better way to do this, some of this stuff and that Dishonored 1 already came out and I played it and this is not a market improvement over that. In fact, I enjoyed Dishonored 1 more because it was the first one of those I played and Dishonored 2 is inherently less impressive because I've already engaged with these mechanics and this sort of like world design philosophy so much already that it's like... If I had more distance between those two games, I probably would have enjoyed Dishonored 2 more, but that's not necessarily saying that Dishonored 2 is like an amazing game. That's saying that like, if you come at it slightly more fresh, you're going to be more impressed by it because of course you are. But yeah, but yeah it's something that like, I'm just so conflicted on this game. It's like there's stuff in it, like that crack in the slab mission is one of the like most, imp- and, and the Clockwork Mansion mission. Those are two of the most impressive levels I've ever played in a game. But it's like, packaged in a larger game that has a couple of levels that I don't love so much and then like all the story stuff is just complete trash like it's so bad the ending is also the exact same ending of the DLC from Dishonored 1 like you do literally the exact same shit it's like really weird and then they also though you um the character from the DLC in Dishonored 1 Dowd never shows up in this game which feels like a weird oversight because of how connected he was to Delilah in the first game and also, like, and Dowd was uh, voiced by Michael Madsen in the first game, which was the one celebrity voice actor they've had in these two games that actually delivered a solid performance. And you find one audio log that is from that character that is voiced by Michael Madsen. And I was really excited for a second. I was like, oh, maybe that they're, like, hinting at something. And then I recognize that it's audio from the DLC. It's like, oh. god damn it. I was really hoping that that meant, like, there's going to be Dishonored 2. And maybe there will be. I was hoping that was a hint that there would be Dishonored 2 DLC that would bring Dowd back and, and do yeah. that stuff again. But yeah, Dishonored, it's a, it's a weird game. Like, I would say if you like Dishonored 1 and you haven't, and it's been a while since you've played Dishonored 1, you will definitely enjoy Dishonored 2, and I am glad I played it. But I just wish that it was better than it was, because I think this series has so much potential to be really amazing, and it just keeps on stopping short at just being very, very good. All right, so I'm going to talk about, well, it'll be my next two turns, but I'm going to talk about my, the 3DS games I've been playing. Okay. These are the big games I have to talk about. Um, are they because... three 3DS games? Two 3DS games. You really fucked that one up, didn't you? I, I bought three 3DS games this okay, week. Okay, there we go. That counts. That counts. Okay, yeah, because I also bought... Um, so I'm going to talk about Dragon Ball Fusions, which is sort of the obscure game of the week. Fusion, huh? And Pokemon Sun and Moon, which is the very non-obscure game Pokemon, of the week. Pokemon? What's that? Yeah. Um, I but, know Dragon Ball Fusions very well. I've been <laughs> seeing ads for it all over the place recently. <laughs> no, but anyway... Um, played both of those, but I also bought in their like Black Friday sale online. Right. Um, they had the 3DS version of Sonic Generations for really cheap. And oh, I've okay, right, because that's a ch- different game than it, the console version. It is. It's a totally different game, and I've always wanted to check it out because I think at the time everyone dismissed it as that's just the shitty handheld version, but in the years since, I've heard it's good. And even if it's only okay, like I've, I got it for 10 bucks, and sure, it's like yeah. I would totally love to try that out. And I played like the first level, and it would, looked cool. It was like Green Hill Zone. Um, kind of thing. So cool. anyway, I mean, uh, of course, it was a Green Hill Zone. Right. Kind of, it, it is always a Green, Green Hill, Hill Zone, Zone kind of thing, right? So I will play more of that at some point, but that was not my priority. I just grabbed it because it was cheap. But anyway, that's how I got three 3DS games. Very good. Anyway, um, but 
Let's see. So I'm going to talk about Dragon Ball Fusions first. Okay. And build up to Pokemon because that's the big game of the week. But Dragon Ball Fusions was the surprise for me because I was I have had pre Pokemon pre-orders forever. Wanted to play that. Looked good. All that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Dragon Ball Fusions, um, for honestly, until like a month ago, I don't think anyone even expected it would get localized here because most of the DS and 3DS Dragon Ball games have never gotten localizations in America. Yeah. Um, and the first one for the 3DS that did was just last year, Extreme Butoden got a localization here. And when I say localization, I mean super cheap. One guy in a room translated this. The text is in English. It's a little spotty in terms of how it looks. All the dialogue is still voiced in Japanese, all of that stuff. So, and, and like the games are even priced at $29, not $40. So kind of, I think, reflective of that. That they're kind of very quick, cheap translations. Not that they're bad translations, I'm not saying that. But just that it's very, like, even like the typeset and stuff is kind of not looking great and stuff right. like that. So you've just got to be ready for what you're getting. This is not like a hyper-professional... Someone really went through this with a comb to make it look as good as the Japanese version, you know? Yeah. Uh, to the point where, if you can read Japanese as you can, and this is harder with the 3DS because of region locking, you might want to play this one in Japanese just because I think there's some things with the English where, like, the text, something went wrong when they put the text into this because, like, in the text boxes, there's stuff, like, where the text will be, like, super scrunched up and it's readable, but, like, you, if you just put it across the two lines, it would be fine, but it's not across two lines. Things like that. I, I mean, I can say now as someone who has played a full JRPG in Japanese that, like, the difference between the amount of text you can fit in, or the like, information in text you can fit in Japanese, the density of it versus English really fucks with that shit. It does. Do you want to know how many character spaces you are given for your name in Persona 5 in Japanese? How many? Three. Three right, for last right. name, three for first name. That's fucking it. And that's plenty for yeah. a Japanese name. Yeah. yeah, like if you have more than three kanji in your name, you are some crazy alien person yeah. in Japanese. So I am sure the people who did the localization worked hard on it, and it's like the translation itself is good. It still does the weird thing Extreme Butoden did, where all the terminology is dub terminology, and not even necessarily like old dub terminology, like stuff that they have since updated in Funimation's dubs. And that bothers me just on the level of, Everything else is in Japanese. I'm hearing the Japanese voices. To me, and especially as someone who really only engages with the Japanese version of this, it is a bit of cognitive dissonance where if you are going to Mr. Satan City, Satan City, and it says Hercule City on right, it, yeah. I, that, is like, that is an old dub thing that I don't need to hear anymore. And it's just bizarre to me, especially because I'm not sure who they're aiming at. Because I think if you're someone who could only handle dub terms in their Dragon Ball thing, you're not going to want to play this anyway because it's girl Goku and things like right, that. Yeah. And I've already seen that complaint online from a couple people. So, I don't know. I, I wish they just went with, like... Like, I don't mind if it's, like, Krillin instead of Kareerin or something. Because yeah, yeah. that's an easy... That's, that's honestly for, like, an English reader that's a better version of that name. And it's fine. But it is that stuff of, like, his name isn't Hercule, guys. And that's just bizarre. Right. You know, so things like that that are a little weird. But no. Um, so yeah, Dragon Ball Fusions. Um, like I said, we weren't even sure this was going to get localized, but it did. It was going to come out in mid-December, and then at the very last moment, Namco Bandai decided to move it up to compete directly with Pokemon. I don't understand that business decision, but I guess it made sense to them. I, hey, and, can you get a Pikachu to do a little dance with, a, with an Eevee and then make a... Shuvi? No, no, no. And and this is I will should I say up some front. I think this is a great game. I guess I did. I should have gotten that out of the way. I think Dragon Ball Fusions is the most I've enjoyed a Dragon Ball game since the PS2. Cool. Easily. It is really good. And I decided to play it because when it was out in Japanese, 
the guys at Konzenshi, which is the big Dragon Ball fan site in the U.S. that you see a lot of news comes out of and stuff, they have been playing it. They're the guys I trust in terms of opinions on Dragon Ball games because I don't really care what standard video game critics have to say about the right, Dragon yeah, Ball yeah. game. It's a different kind of thing. But they were loving this, and I'm like, okay, I will have to check this out. And I was planning to, and then I wasn't quite sure because they moved that date up, but then I was like... I'll talk about it later. Pokemon had not completely grabbed me, so I also got Dragon Ball Fusions, um, and I just got it digitally. I guess it's still hard to find in stores because a lot of stores didn't get the memo about the date change. So anyway, that was a whole thing. But you can get it digitally on the eShop easy. And like I said, it's only $29 instead of the normal 40 even though it's a huge game. So I've played probably I've played probably 10 hours of Pokemon and maybe 10 hours of Dragon Ball. Dragon Ball Fusions is a really big game, and I think I'm still only scratching the surface. Like, okay. this could easily be a 60-hour game. If you put the time into it. And I think I want to at some point. I'm not sure when that will be. And it's probably going to be an off and on sort of thing. But it's really good. So anyway. Got this localization. That's awesome. Uh, Like I said. Not a perfect localization. But it's good. And this game is so interesting. Um, It's called Dragon Ball Fusions. Because one of the main conceits in the game. Is you do get to do fusions with different characters. Including characters from the show. And also some of the sort of filler characters, not characters from filler in the anime, I mean filler characters in the game of like, they have like a thousand characters in this and obviously not all of them. Uh, I really wanted to see Garlic Jr. fuse with Ember Pilaf and see what the fuck came out of that. I'm sure you can do that. Like they oh, are well, probably Garlic Jr. Oh, I guess Garlic Jr. is also a movie character. I was thinking he was a filler character as well. Well, no, filler characters are in this. I mean filler in oh. that like, the ranks of the game. Like there okay. are, there will be a random Namekian and they'll give him a random oh, okay. name. Okay. That's what I mean. Sorry, I used the wrong term because filler yeah. has a different term with Dragon yeah, Ball. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've already met, uh, I guess it depends on how you decide what GT is, but, you know, characters from different anime-only things. So, yeah, and I know there's some movie stuff. Like, I know one of the worlds you go to is, like, the Janemba world from Movie 12. Okay, Which, of course, is the fusion movie. Yes, so I mean, it it needs to be there. It would be kind of weird if it Um, wasn't. But don't get distracted by it being called Dragon Ball Fusions. That is by no means, like, the main thing in the game, but it's one of the main mechanics, and it is very fun when you do the fusions, including um, you have five-men teams, uh, in the game, and you can do what's called an ultra fusion, which is taught to you by the Ginyu Force, which is the best thing. Okay, good. I mean, and, they would know how to really coordinate five people together into yes. an effective, efficient fighting force. Yep, and so you can take all five people on your team, fuse them together, and do an ultra fusion, and the animations for that are great because it looks like a different person every time. So just things like that are great. Um, but yeah, Dragon Ball Fusions is kind of hard to describe, but why I love it is it is so not the standard Dragon Ball. Raditz taboo, play the story of the games, whatever. Right, yeah. It is a very different thing. It's very fanficy, but in the best way possible. That sounds where, a lot like Dragon Ball's universe in some ways, in terms of like the philosophy of yes. Dragon Ball game. So, but the way it works is you start, you player create a character, same as in Xenoverse, and the I really like the creation tool in this. You can make a character look good. There's a couple classes. There's Earthling, Cyan, Namekian, um, Space Person, I forget what they call it. That's This is the race I am, but it's basically... Like of the Majin race, like Majin oh, Buu, okay. it's like related to that. Um, but there's also a male and female for each of these, and I am a female space person, whatever they call that. And it doesn't really look like Boo, but it's kind of in that similar vein. And she looks really cool. I just okay. I liked my player created character a lot. And then there's one other, which is oh, it's um this is what they might call the space people. I forget what they're called, but there's one that's like the Frieza race of people. Yeah. So it's like different Frieza soldiers. Yeah, so, in Xenoverse, they just call it the Frieza race, which is okay. always just kind of funny to me that that. There has never been, like, a Dragon Ball Z encyclopedia in Japanese or something that came up with a name for the race of people that Frieza comes from. So we just have to call them the Frieza race. Indeed. So you can pick one of those, you create your character, and then you start with the scene where your character and uh, his or her friend, and I forget the name of the friend, uh, they've collected all the Dragon Balls and they make a wish on the dragon where they want to find, they want to create a tournament 
that will go across all of time and space to find out who is the strongest fighter ever. Like, really, who is the strongest ever? And so the dragon's like, okay, and then he disappears, and like, well, what the hell happened? And then suddenly you're transported to this dimension that is uh, an amalgam of just different places from the Dragon Ball story. So the first area you're in has... Like the city where Capsule Core is located. Okay, yeah. But it also has King Kai's planet and things like that. And they're just all morphed together. And then the second area has Namek, but it also has a bunch of other things. And I'm in the third area that has the Cell Games, but also Kame House and things like that. So nice. it's just a bunch of fun, like amalgams, and it's always mixed up. Karin Tower, the, the stem of Karin Tower runs through the whole world because that's how you go up and up as you okay, go yeah. up Karin Tower, which is great. Um, and it's called the Time Space Tournament Area because what the dragon has done is created this realm where he's melded all of time and space. All fighters from all of time and space are there and you're going to find them and you make a five-man team and you're trying to climb the tower to get to the tournament and once you're at the top, there will be the tournament and I assume that's the end of the game. Yeah, dude, the fucking dragon wasn't even strong enough to, like, kill Vegeta in Nappa <laughs> and he can fucking, like, bend all of reality to create some super space-time dimension where he's put all the greatest fighters in the history of the universe together to fight. I really think for the dragon, I don't think he has any limits. I think it's just how lazy or not he is on a given day. Sure, yeah. I think it's just, does he want to put in the effort? Yeah. Because he really can. Even in the show, he can do anything. It's just he's got some artificial limits here and there. By the it's way, like, oh, you want to bring that bald asshole back twice? Nah. No. <laughs> I, I gave you it one time. Not again. Nope. He's an insufferable twit. Yeah. Anyway, so, but the way this works is that, so you start, and the first person you meet from the series is Bulma, which is pretty easy. And Bulma is like, she's been made aware of the Time Space Tournament, and like, she's helping different people enter and stuff. And she's like, okay, you should go make a team. My, my uh, kid Trunks and his friend Goten, they're out playing somewhere. They could the, join your team. The, the original fusers. Exactly. And that's the first fusion you get is Goten, obviously, or Gotenks, obviously. Um, so anyway, you go meet Trunks and Goten, and you become friends with them, and they join your team first, and then you do some missions. And then you meet Kid Goku from the beginning of Dragon Ball. Okay, and not probably going to get very far in the running in this tournament. Yeah. Kid Goku from the beginning of Dragon Ball. Anyway, but he joins your team. So now you have Goten and Kid Goku. And of course they make the jokes about how they look the same and stuff. And that's hilarious. And Goku's like, what? I have a kid? And Goten's like, why are you so young, Grandpa? And just jokes like that. And of course... Then Kid Goku meets old Bulma, and, she, and he's like, Bulma, you've gotten old. And, you know, you, they get the jokes about that. Wait, does Kid Goku from the beginning of Dragon Ball get to meet Kid Goku from Dragon Ball GT? Maybe it's... I'm not that, that deep into this. That would be fucking nuts. Yeah. So you get that, and then I forget who my... Oh, my fifth party member was Pan. So now okay. you have, like, three generations of the, the Sone family in one group, and that's hilarious, and just things like that. And you meet more characters. You meet Krillin from... I guess it's just generic Krillin. I guess he would be an adult. Krillin's but, Krillin. Yeah. Krillin's Either Krillin, it's yeah. Krillin bald or Krillin with hair. That's the only two distinctions. Well, no, I should I say uh, he's married to eighteen and he has Maron, so it's near the end of the series. Okay, so he's but got it. Well, surely he has hair then, right? Uh, he shaved his head, so maybe okay. it's for fight. Because he, I guess he, he, he did that in the Resurrection F stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway. Yeah, he does not have hair, although that would be funny if you had, like, Krillin with hair, Krillin without hair. And then they fuse together, and it's Krillin with slightly less hair. Yeah, and so, like, and there's things like in Satan City, you meet Bulla, who is Vegeta and Bulma's kid from GT. Yeah. Well, I think that's the dub name. I think in Japanese, her name is just Bra. It's Bra. Yeah, it's just so anyway. Bra. Yeah. Yeah, I so, mean, they were just going to name a character Bra, and they, like, televised a series over no. here. But anyway, so yeah, that's, that's you, you meet Bulla, and of course... 
She's like, Trunks, why are you so little? And he's like, Mom and Dad had another kid. This is whack. It's crazy. So there's a bunch of just nutso stuff going on. You meet the Ginyu Force, and they're trying to free Frieza from a time-space lock, and you help them do it, but they're your friends because you taught them a dance and all this stuff. It is a blast on a story level, and it just loves the Dragon Ball universe so much, and it has so much fun just bouncing these characters off one another. And then in the midst of that, of course, there's all the characters in the universe who are just made up for the game. And I don't know if they're randomly generated or something, because there are lots of them. And there's it's kind of Pokemon-esque in that you collect and recruit characters. Okay. And there's even a registry that you can go to in the menu that'll show you all your characters. And there are it goes up to number 1,000. So oh, there geez. are a lot you can recruit. And I don't know if I'll ever get to that point. But that's not... A lot of those are characters from the real series, and some of them are... You know, exclusive to this game or something. So anyway, um, but you make your fun. so that's all the story stuff. I think it's a blast. I think that kind of stuff is fun. Yeah. The presentation of the game is really good. It you know it's not like the best graphics in the world or anything, but it runs really smoothly on the 3DS and has some really fantastic fight animations. Like some of the special move stuff is are some of the most impressive animations I've ever seen in a Dragon Ball game, and this is running on the 3DS, and I find that pretty impressive. Like there's some ones where you know you will just fire off a thousand energy beams and all this, and the 3DS doesn't chug one bit. And if you've played Pokemon Sun and Moon, you know the 3DS can chug once in a while. <laughs> And we'll talk about that in a minute. So all of that, I think, is very impressive. The music is fantastic. I think Dragon Ball music has kind of been in the woods for a while since Kenji Yamamoto, Yamamoto turned out to be a plagiarist and yeah. he got kicked off. And then I think for and he was the Dragon Ball video game composer, and he I think did great work, even if some of it was plagiarized. It sounded good. Dude, so, oh yeah, I, that's all you can ask for at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, um, but this is definitely I think the best soundtrack I've heard for a Dragon Ball game in the last few years. And it's really fun to listen to. And sometimes it even uses cues that sound like stuff from the show. So like the original score and whatnot. So all of that is really neat. And yeah. So, But the main format of the game is it's basically an RPG. In that you move through. You've got story. You build your team. Your team has stats. You level up. The inflation of power is immediate, where I am, like I said, not that deep in, and I've already got my characters all to, like, level 35, and I'm routinely doing, like, 5,000 points of damage in one hit. That sounds like like Dragon Ball to me. It's perfect. Like, I think the game is very self-aware of how insanely inflated the points are, and it feels right for Dragon Ball. Nice. But anyway, you've got your five-person team, and the way battles are done is it's not like a traditional Dragon Ball fighting system. So if you're bored of that kind of thing, which I think we all are... This is not that. It's more of an RPG fighting system. But it is like the most unique RPG fighting system I've ever seen because I cannot easily compare it to anything else. Like, we talked about Digimon Story, you know, earlier this year. And that that has a crazy fighting system, but you can pretty easily compare it to Pokemon. Yeah, Pokemon or Final Fantasy X has its similar... Yes. And you can say, it's like that, but with this, this, and this. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know where I'd start with Dragon Ball Fusions. I will try to explain it. Basically, it's set up where you have a circular ring, which is the field. Okay. And the characters are laid out, and it usually starts if you have 5v5. Each character is in kind of a semicircle, or each team is arranged in like a semicircle on one half of the ring. Okay. All right? And then it goes through, and basically at the bottom of the screen, you have a slider of characters who are going across that shows basically their speed for attack initiative. So, like, let's say, you know, I have Trunks, and he's fast, and so he'll slide to the right, and once he gets all the way to the right, then it's Trunks' turn to attack. And if it's an enemy, they're in red, and if they get there, it's their turn to attack. And then you have your options, and you have a couple things. You, You always have a melee and a key attack. 
And your key attacks, different characters who have different attributes have different kinds of key attacks. Like my player-created character, um, based on her race, she can do a key attack where you can like get characters up in a line and hit all of them. Trunks hits characters in a circle. Other ones do different things. So yeah, you have your key attacks, melee attacks. Um, you have special moves, and you can have three at a time. And you can, kind of like Pokemon, you kind of choose them out of like, all right, I've, I've gotten my Kamehameha, and I'm going to overwrite whatever I had before. But you can also get more powerful versions of those attacks. So, like, I had a level C Kamehameha. Now I have a level B Kamehameha. So okay. Things like that. Your, your special you moves. Think, does it, it go all the way up to Z? I don't know. Maybe. It has to, right? Probably at least S. No, if it has Japanese. to go up to S because it's a Japanese game. Yes. It's, I just want to know if it goes the extra step beyond, which just sounds like it would. It, it, to, I think to, to this game totally could, yeah. So, anyway, um, so you've got that, and you make your, you've got some other moves you can do, but anyway. You make your attack on an enemy, and you go in, and the first thing that happens, if there's any kind of physical attack involved, so if it's other than just a straight key attack, if there's any kind of physical altercation involved, there's this, like, ring around the character, and you move the circle pad, and you have to decide where you're going to attack from, and you move, and there's basically, like, eight directions, but the circle pad will capture three at any time. So you have, like, three out of the eight. And so you move there, and you press A, but then the other player, the AI, can do the same thing, and it's in the reverse when you're attacked, and you can choose where to block from. So they're choosing where to block from, you're choosing where to attack from, or vice versa. And then if you, you know, get them outside of that white area that you've attacked from, and they're not blocking it, then you hit. And depending on how far away from that, you hit harder. Okay. And then if you are blocking and you successfully block, then they don't do a lot of damage at all. So that's kind of that step of it. And then you hit them, and then there's a bunch of steps that can happen after that, depending on what kind of attack you've done. But assuming you hit them, whether with a key, physical, whatever, then they go flying in the big circular ring that is the field. And at this point, the game becomes like marbles, because if one character hits another character on their team, that character will get hit, and then they'll get hit, and then if they hit... One of your players, your player will do a hit of damage and then hit them back. And it can be this whole thing. And eventually they can get a ring out. And if they still have HP left, they can come back into the ring. But they lose whatever they've, progress they've made in terms of speed for initiative. Okay. So I don't know if that's you can even picture what I'm talking I can, about. I can picture it. It definitely sounds very unique. But I, I get it's, what you're saying. You get the hang of it really fast. The battles take a while to play. And you cannot really just phone them in. Like you have to pay at least a certain amount of attention because it's pretty active. But it's an interesting like mix between an RPG kind of system and then a more active 3D fighting system because there are some other parts where it goes into like 3D and by no means are you doing like precise attacks but you have to like mash buttons and get in close and hit them. Those are like what they call Zenkai attacks and then the Ultra Fusions work the same way. Um, so it's a really interesting battle system. It's so unique. It's also so Dragon Ball. Like the way it works is it's because I've seen other, you know, Dragon Ball games that do an RPG that's, like, more traditional. Where it's like, Goku uses attack. And he goes in and, sure, like, yeah. you know, it's more like a Final Fantasy kind of thing. You cast Kamehameha. Right. And that really doesn't feel Dragon Ball-esque. This manages to be an RPG while also, like, having an RPG battle system that is feels very Dragon Ball. And allows you to do a lot of cool stuff with the Dragon Ball characters. So I really like the battle system. There are some things that can get tedious because the way you basically recruit other characters... Um, at least outside of story events because like you sometimes you recruit if it's like a big character from the show you might do a quest for them and then they join your team or something and like I said you can have five people but then everyone else goes back to your spaceship they go into your PC right and then you can go edit your team yeah Bill's PC I guess more accurately definitely Pokemon it is funny that this came out the same week as Pokemon because there are some good points of comparison 
So yeah, it goes to Bill's PC, you can change them out. Um, but the way you recruit to just the random characters, um, which you do want to do because that gets you new slots for the different types of energy you need to progress in the game, right. all this stuff, um, is you have to do a Zenkai attack on them that defeats them. And a Zenkai attack is something you get when your Ultra Gauge goes up far enough, and your Ultra Gauge goes up by attacking, or getting hit, or doing healing, Um so what can be annoying there is if you want to capture a specific character, you have to make sure not to kill them until you have enough energy in your Ultra Gauge to do a Zenkai attack. And then that makes it really hard to capture multiple ones in one battle. But it's, it's by no means a deal breaker. Um, and I'm still kind of getting into the flow of this part of the game because you don't even get that ability until the, you're in the third like world. So definitely the game kind of layers in its combat and everything because it's a pretty complex system going on. Sounds but like I, Yeah, but I really like all that. I haven't even gotten into the main fusion mechanics. Like, I can fuse... I can do an ultra fusion. I've got Goten and Trunks, but I know there's other stuff where you're just... At some point, you get to just start doing fusions freely, and I have not gotten to that point, and okay. I can't wait Jeez. because I'm sure there's some fun stuff. But... It's interesting. I've already gotten to some really fun just side stories and things. Like, there's a part where Yamcha wants to wants your help to go get revenge on the Saibai men because they're in this world and they fucked him up last time. Yeah. So I mean, you go... You know, he, Yamcha doesn't have a lot of pride. But he has a little bit of pride. Exactly. So you go fight the Saibai men, you kill all of them, and then a new character called the Saibai King comes out and he's like a big Saibai man in a cape and a crown. And I cannot okay. wait until the point where I can recruit this dude because he is awesome. Love the Saibai King. That sounds pretty good. He's awesome. This game is a blast. I have kind of been going back and forth between it and Pokemon and I haven't had time to really just like sit down and dive heavily into it. But I have put in a good chunk of time and it is clear to me like this is a big game. This is a game that will, you know, I'm sure, and I've, I've heard about this from, like, the Consensu guys, too. Like, once you beat the main story, it's almost like that's when the game truly opens up and you can do all these other things. Because I'm already seeing, like, littered throughout the world, there might be um, an area that I could go to. Like, uh, there's the, the place on Namek where you go to meet the Elder Kai. Or, yeah, not yeah. the Elder Kai, but the Elder Namekian. Yeah. Um, guru is what they call him in the dub. Right, the guru or something. And you can go unlock... Saitorio is what they call him right. in the manga. Yep. So you can go meet him and like unlock his place, but I, at the point where I was, didn't have the energy for it, and clearly I won't unlock that for a while. So it's kind of like an open world that you can go back and then figure out some stuff. Also kind of like Pokemon, and that you move through Pokemon, and you're like, oh, well, clearly I can't do this yet because I don't have Surf or something. Although that's different in Pokemon Sun and Moon. But you know what I mean. Sure, yeah. So, But it's really fun. I can't wait to play more of this game. This is easily one of the most surprising titles of the year to me. Kind of on the level of like a Digimon story where I had no idea something this good was coming down the pipeline. The difference is, of course, I know what Dragon Ball is. I had no exposure to Digimon. But definitely, if you are a fan of Dragon Ball and you have a 3DS, I think this is a must-buy. It is one of the most original and fun and inventive games this series has ever produced, and I can't wait to play more of it. Yeah, it's really interesting to have like this, this new era of Dragon Ball where you have Super and stuff, so you have new stuff being made, and it feels like, with the new movies as well, and it just feels like it has given this energy or something to the, the studios having to make these games in Japan, where it's like with Xenoverse and now with this of them just being able to say, like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, no, I'm not just going to make a video game where you start fighting Raditz and then you end up fighting Boo and then maybe you do some GT and movie stuff. Like, we we have made literally dozens and dozens of those games. Let's do something creative and interesting and different with it and just something that's more of a celebration of the whole franchise instead of just a, like, retread of that franchise. 
that's that's really exciting to be in that era for someone who, for both of us as Dragon Ball fans. Absolutely, and if you're someone like me who didn't wasn't able to get into Xenoverse because of the fighting system and was kind of bored with the 3D Dragon Ball fighting system to begin with, but then didn't like it specifically in Xenoverse. I think this will be more up your alley yeah. because of the RPG mechanics, because of the almost more relaxed pace to it. Um, yeah, it's really good. And um, as with Pokemon Sun and Moon, though, does not use the 3D on the 3DS at all. Okay. And it's kind of funny to me that these you know, could be like the last two major new games I play on the 3DS uh, before the Switch comes out. And neither of them use 3D at all, which is kind of funny. It's like if like the last couple of big Wii U games were just like, throw that tablet in the garbage, like fuck it, just get a pro controller, dude. Like, yeah. come on, let's do this for real. Now yeah. I have to ask you. You said uh, that you could do a fusion with like five people all fusing together. Yes. So does that just end up on the other side, like the human ball at the end of Inside? Is that just like? Because <laughs> what the fuck does a five person fusion look like if it's not this just monstrosity of flesh? It, it looks pretty cool. It can look like a couple different things. It, it like, kind of picks one attribute from one main character and kind of builds it around that, it seems like. Okay. But the actual animation for it is great, where all five people are smiling, and they get in a circle, and they go, Fusion! Ha! Into the middle of the circle, and then they all blend together. It's fun. Okay, so but it doesn't come out the other end with, like, 50 arms no. and 20 eyes and but screaming in abject horror it, at its own existence. It is great. After the first time you do it, Trunks gets out of that. He's like... I never want to do that again. That was fucked up. <laughs> it's great. Like, I saw some shit I wasn't meant to see. I felt things that no human was meant to feel. I feel bad for Goten because he's fusing with his best friend and his father, but as a kid. And then his his older sister. It's or not even because Pan would be what would his cousin? I guess yeah. I don't know. It's fucked up. He's no Pan would be his yeah. niece. I. It's so hard to keep track of. Yeah. yeah so the, the the Goku family gets. Pretty complicated at some point, especially yes. when you throw in all the GT stuff. With it's like the kid God- Goku come back around. For it's another like round. the Godfather; they're a dynasty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and they're all voiced by the same woman. Yes. All right, and Masako Dozawa, God bless her. She is. She gives it her all, whether it is the show or a random video game. Yeah. If it is a shout for just a key blast in a weird 3DS RPG, she gives it just as much energy as on the show. She is a fucking treasure. And I just adore the fact that Dragon Ball Super decided that she doesn't voice quite enough characters in Dragon Ball, so they made Goku Black, which she also plays that character. Yep. Because of course she would. It's like, how did she plays like eight fucking characters in that series at this point? There is literally nothing you cannot throw at that woman. She yeah. will rise to the occasion. <laughs> she, is, she is very, very good as Goku Black. Yeah, I can't stuff. wait to see that arc. Anyway. Alright, you want to talk about Titanfall 2? Let's talk about Titanfall 2. Okay, I've, my head is full of Dragon Ball references now. I do <laughs> really switch modes here because there's not a lot of Dragon Ball in Titanfall 2. So, so Titanfall 2, I mean, if the viewers or listeners remember, uh, we talked about this quite a bit when they did their technical alpha test bullshit, yeah. whatever, in the multiplayer. Neither of us were particularly impressed by that, to, to say the least. But then, uh, and then also it seems like the larger gaming community was not super impressed by it. And then also... EA strategy of shoving Titanfall 2 in between Battlefield 1, which is their own other shooter that is from a much more popular franchise, and Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, which even if this is a down year for Call of Duty, and maybe it's like we only have down years for Call of Duty ahead of us, Call of Duty is still one of the best, if not maybe going to be the best selling video game this year, 
And it's also, you know, another... Now it is a sci-fi shooter as well as being just another multiplayer first-person shooter. So it's like, shoving Titanfall 2 in the week between those two games did not serve to be a particularly effective uh, marketing we, and sales strategy for we, Titanfall 2. When we're done with all this, we need to talk about the great video game pileup of 2016. Because yeah. people are going to write books about this. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. And so, like, obviously... Uh, Video games do not have... The video game industry doesn't really have a thing like what movies have for box office reports and stuff like that. So it's hard to get accurate information on how, how well games are selling, particularly in America. But if you can make estimates based on player counts and stuff like that... And so, like, from what I've heard, the PC player count and player population for Titanfall 2 is mostly dead already at this point. For console, particularly for PS4, it's totally fine. You can get... Uh, multiplayer matches right now in whatever mode you want but it has sold really poorly but it has sold very poorly especially if we have uk sales data from like the first week or whatever and it sold way down from what timefall one sold and while timefall one sold well it didn't sell like call of duty well and so timefall 2 did not sell very well if you want to know further proof of that there's no greater way to judge how well a video game is selling than based on how quickly and how deeply it goes into sale and so a couple of weeks after timefall 2 came out uh, you could get Titanfall 2 for $28 on Amazon, and I had some Amazon credit saved up, so I got Titanfall 2 for $20 on Amazon. And then for whatever Jesus. reason, they took them like a, over a week for them to send it to me. They kept on pushing back. The guy kept on getting like notifications like, it was going to come out, like, we're going to send it to you on the 18th. Now it's on the 19th. Now it's on the 20th. Now it's on the 23rd. Now it's on the 25th. Now it's on the 24th. Now it's here. It's like, okay, thanks. That's, that was weird. But the Amazon, weird Amazon stuff aside, I got Titanfall 2 for 20 bucks, which seemed like a good price for the game based on being curious about hearing that the multiplayer stuff was improved over the alpha, and a lot of people saying that the, the single player was really good. There are evangelists for there the Titanfall 2. There are people 2. that are fucking insane about this game. Like, and like, people I really like and respect. Yeah. But like, yeah, like Kotaku in particular, I've seen banging the drum for this as like a great campaign. Yeah. Like, I tried to buy this on Black Friday and it was sold out, but... Um, and then on the PlayStation Store sale, it was over 30 and I felt like I'd be kind of a sucker if I paid more than 30 for this at this yeah, point. Yeah, you're going to be able to get it for cheaper than that Right. Soon. So I, I, I kind of wanted to play this, but I didn't wind up being able to. Yeah. So, so anyways, that's sort of the story of how I got my hands on, on Timefall 2. And, and I will say that, like, I am not as impressed by it as, like, the evangelists are. Like, I think it still has... The multiplayer still, stuff still has some of the issues from the technical test, though. The multiplayer is much better than that technical test. Like, basically, remember everything we said about that, of that, like, well, you know, if this is just, like, the two worst maps in the game, and, like, the two worst, most boring Titan loadouts, then maybe, like, the, the actual game is real, or is going to be good. That is 100% true. Those two maps are... The two worst maps I've played are the two maps in the beta, and the two Titan loadouts they have are the two most boring Titan loadouts. Particularly Scorch is like trash tier Titan. I don't know why anyone would use Scorch. There are way better Titan loadouts in this game. In particular, Tone is the one that I use that like I've I Tone is the only Titan to use because Tone is amazing. Tone basically is a Titan that has um, a semi-automatic rifle that every time you hit a Titan with it, it sort of like notches on it and if once you get three notches of like this lock on you press the right or r1 and it launches a folly of like home seeking missiles on it and creates this like really interesting pacing to the the titan on titan combat and tone does a lot of damage that way so if you're playing titanfall 2 and you haven't tried out tone fucking use tone it's really good use tone or ronin is the ronin is the one with the sword those are the two good ones but yeah the 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 technical test was a fucking 
disaster in so many ways. Just a sense of like, um, I mean, they did use a lot of the, the the data from that clearly to sort of fix up some of like like Titans spawn much faster. Oh, also attrition mode is in the game, and like bounty hunt and fucking amp hardpoint are there, but you never have to play them. It like only play attrition because that's easily the best mode to see the attrition pilot pilot versus pilot or last Titan standing are the three good modes of the game three modes that were not in the fucking beta and uh so but yeah uh do not take the technical test if you play that as have as being totally representative of what the multiplayer of the finished game is i'm actually really impressed by how much they have fixed the titan uh timers and stuff like that and made that better in this game and i've had a lot of fun I, i've actually had more fun playing the multiplayer for Titanfall 2 than i had of the brief amount of Titanfall one multiplayer i played Though I still don't think it's perfect by any means, it's more—it's way more interesting to me than the Infinite Warfare multiplayer is at this point. It's like the multiplayer shooter I'm going to be playing on my like off time with a podcast or whatever for the next couple of weeks. But but so like but multiplayer stuff aside, which I haven't gotten super deep into that, so I can't give really like in depth thoughts on the multiplayer. Just that they fixed a lot of that stuff, and all the shit they showed off in the technical test is like top to bottom the worst stuff they have in the multiplayer of the game, which is an insane miscalculation to me and I really want the behind the scenes story about how that fucking got put together and who made those choices. Like, I can't believe they put Scorch in that fucking technical test. But anyways, I have finished the, 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 the campaign and like I said earlier on this podcast, I it's like four and a half hours to five hours long. I played it all in one sitting with like a very minor break in the middle to eat dinner and was not even really intending to do that. I thought it was going to be slightly longer. And then like I got to the point where I was like, oh, I guess the story's wrapping up. Okay, I guess it's the end of the campaign. And I, I, I understand why a lot of people are saying that the campaign is as good as it is or like why they're evangelizing it as much as they are. Because there are things and some levels and some ideas in the campaign that are really interesting and surprising. And I think like especially if you just bought Titanfall 2 at launch, like if you were a game reviewer and were like reviewing it kind of like in a bubble without having like knowing like what that campaign was going to be and not hearing people be impressed by it. I think it's like, it's so surprising by how good it is that you come out of the other side of it from like a franchise that didn't have a campaign at all in the last game and be like, this is fucking really good. When you, I think having played Infinite Warfare single player and having had like my expectations a little bit higher based on the reception, like it's a very, very good single player campaign. I don't think it's amazing. I think it has um, one or two levels in it that are really good levels, but the, but it also has like the one, well, it has one level that I don't like so much that has way too much Titan shit in it and that gets like drags on way too long because the Titan on Titan combat is not designed to support you fighting like 20 Titans in a row. Like it, that's just really slow. But other than that, like I think the, the, the two really standout levels in Titanfall to introduce these like two interesting mechanics. One is people may have heard it is a sort of time traveling mechanic that is somewhat similar to what Dishonored 2 did in the Kraken of the Slab mission, only it's obviously it's fitted onto a much more action-y game, and so it's used that way, and that's the best level in the game. It's very clever how they use that stuff, and there's another level that has a that gives you this, this sort of tool that allows you to sign of interact with mechanical things in the environment to sort of move platforms around in some ways. It's not like a super sophisticated system, but it kind of like, allows you to kind of, like, hit buttons and, like, move things. And that level has a lot of fun platforming stuff. They use the wall running stuff in a, in a very interesting way. And so those two levels, I think, 
are what people are really talking about when they say like this campaign is really good and like really like interesting and, and fun and exciting and, and different and surprising is that it has these two levels built around these two different kind of mechanics that you have never really seen in another first person shooter campaign. One, because I think the time travel stuff could not have technically been done on older games because the same thing with like Dishonored 2. It's kind of like interesting that both two games that came out this year next to each other like have a very similar mechanic, but they're two very different sort of genres. But then that and then the platforming stuff that the campaign has, obviously other first person shooters just don't have the wall running stuff sort of down in such a way that they could make do first person platforming in a way that feels really good. So yeah, like I think those elements of the campaign just work really well and it's got a fast pace, it's short, it's tight, and it's very it's incredibly varied with all the different gameplay ideas. The issue with the campaign I have is that one, I do think it is too short, like it ended in a way that like I wasn't really expecting it to end and I was hoping that it was going to like there would be like more like different ideas and different kinds of levels that they would throw at you because it's really there's really like five or six levels, I think, in the game and and it's like this that's not a lot. Um, and then also the story in the game is just, especially coming off of Infinite Warfare and like being so impressed and really loving the story in that game, the story in Titanfall 2 is just like the most kind of their story you can get in a video game. Like it's like what I said with like the Dishonored stuff, it is so clearly built to just like piece together these different like level ideas that designers had where it's like, there is no narrative justification whatsoever for the time travel shit like you go to that time travel level thing and it's like oh this is really awesome and then you get out of that level and it's like that shit never comes up again ever and there's a like the level before that one is one where you are in this it's a cool level that uh, kind of like Dishonored 2 it has almost like that clockwork mansion thing of like platforms shifting around and you having the wall run on moving platforms and stuff and it's cool and and like that the whole gameplay conceit for it is really cool but where it fits in the plot is literally it's you, the pilot, and the Titan are trying to get to a place and you decide to take a shortcut and that shortcut just leads you, leads you into this random facility where a bunch of mercenaries are hiding out and you just end up having to fight them and kill them all in this weird facility and then you get out the other side and you're like, well, that was fucking weird and then you just keep on moving to where you're going and like there is no narrative work done, like literally 0% narrative work accomplished by this weird diversion other than maybe kind of setting like b developing the titan and pilot character like your character and even that's like they don't really do much there and you know if you've if you've seen any sort of trailer for this game you know they're going to pull the shit with like oh it's the, like you're going to get the quote-unquote emotional connection to your robot i don't think they really do the narrative footwork to kind of justify it, it and then the robot spoilers the fucking robot dies like because yeah, okay. of course he does if you've seen the iron giant you know how this goes right I'll say, it, you know, I spent a lot of the last month playing uh, Super Mario Galaxy right. uh, on the Wii, and I kind of went back, because I just, I really wanted to play that game again, and I needed some time away from the rush of modern, like, new games. Kind of right, like, right. I need that every once in a while. And I'm working on this Mario project. But anyway, it, it uh, hit me again how I think wise Nintendo has been with their franchises like Mario not to narrativize it, and in fact... Every time they do to kind of back off it, like after yeah. Super Mario Sunshine, realizing that was too much, and it's barely you there. Cannot have Bowser voice right. act that much. It's too. And, it's wrong. Yeah, and then just back off. And I think with Mario Galaxy, one of the brilliant strokes of that game is they came up with a conceit 
that is very lightly narrativized, just you're in space and you're Mario, that allow their designers to do whatever the fuck they wanted creatively. Yeah. Like, there is literally nothing they cannot do with the conceit of Mario Galaxy, and that's why those two games are, like, some of the biggest explosions of creativity ever in one gaming package. And I think, you know, when I play some other platformers that are non-Nintendo, or not even platformers, just, like, adventure games sometimes, and I see, like... When you get outside of that Nintendo orbit, some people have too much of a hard-on for narrative. I really do think that sometimes. Like, yeah. um, like we talked about ReCore earlier this year, which I think mechanically is kind of a brilliant game. And one of the things that's wrong with it, clearly, is that it, they were trying to build a story, it broke down, and the second half of that game has no story. That game didn't need to have a story to me. That could have just been play within the world you have and just have the characters. And I also think when I hear of a Titanfall campaign... My initial instinct would not necessarily be to tell a complex story there. It might be just to have a world with humans and titans, and then one level can be you go and do the crazy time travel thing. Yeah. One, you can go and do the clockwork thing. I know I haven't played the game, but my instinct yeah. is like, I would go less narrative, not more. And I always appreciate it when people outside of the Nintendo orbit are able to realize that, because I think it's almost revolutionary these days yeah. to be able to... Like, that's one of the things, like... I know Doom does have a story, but just to say the character your your character's not gonna fucking talk. Yeah. We're not gonna, you know, really get we're not gonna have cutscenes. You just go through and the, the world is the world, you know? Yeah, I think it's a little bit harder for something with Titanfall 2 where you have like you know, the aesthetic of the game is it's like realistic humans and, right. and all that kind of stuff. It's a lot easier with like Doom, you're seeing demons and like a robot dude for basically yes. the whole game. And Mario, it's all like cartoon land. And so it's like, yeah. it's very easy to make that kind of game and not have narrative trappings. I think it's very difficult to sort of, because, you know, it, like it's not like Timefall 2 doesn't get dragged down in trying to tell a story or something like that. It just tells a dull story. It's just that like, it, it, I think it is like, it tries to tell a little bit too much of a story and too little of a story at the same time. Like, you can't find that sweet spot of justifying sort of what it's doing. And I think it's, if you, if maybe you even didn't have, like, a contiguous protagonist or something, and it was just a, like, different vignettes in this war, and you're just playing different kind of characters, and like, oh, this is the guy who went into this weird facility where, like, time was unhinged, and this is the could, dude. Yeah. Like, like, something, like, find another way to sort of, like, package these level ideas that doesn't sort of like put it in all this like kind of just like boring narrative bullshit that like once i get to the end of the game it's like kind of like i kind of was hoping for a little bit something more from the story and then also i don't think the last level in the game is not that impressive to me either yeah kind of like a battlefield one which neither of us have played but yeah. i actually am kind of interested in because of me the reviews too. I like that what they did to do World War One was it's vignettes. Yeah, it's like and here's this like Air Force dude, here's like this Navy dude, like yeah, yeah. which is also the respectful way to do World yeah. War One. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I guess other stuff with the Timefall Two campaign. Uh, I mean, you know, like it plays really well in the way that because obviously, like hey, Titanfall is like the best playing shooter on the market. I think, like even though I really love the Infinite Warfare campaign, like the like one of the things I don't like about Infinite Warfare is I think the wall running is awkward and stiff and weird and feels like it's only there because Titanfall had wall running and so for whatever reason fucking Black Ops 3 decided they needed wall running and then now Infinite Warfare just has that same movement system and so the single player guys just sort of like inherited that movement system and it just doesn't make sense and they didn't use it very well and they didn't design around it very well whereas like Titanfall 2 like the fucking sense of speed and all that stuff in that game is so visceral and strong and the wall running feels great and everything like that. Like, that's all the, that is true about how well it plays in the multiplayer is obviously true in the single player. Although the one thing I will say as a consequence of that is that 
I played it kind of like with Infinite Warfare. I played it on the second hardest difficulty because I it does a sort of Call of Duty 4-esque tutorial mission that like once you beat it, it sort of recommends a difficult for you and it just recommended me hard. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll play it on hard. And there's there's like a master difficulty or whatever that's one above that. And I think I probably died like maybe six times over the course of the campaign because it's just not very hard because the campaign in a lot of ways feels like you are running around and you are just shooting the grunts guys the kind of way you do in the multiplayer on like attrition you know you don't other than like you do pilot or titan versus titan fights obviously but you'd never fight like other pilots on the ground they don't other have other like ai dudes they have their robot guys like they have the robot guys in the multiplayer and they have the grunt guys and those are the two enemy types and then they're like spider mob like mines that come in every once in a while and there's like a big like weird animal like monster alien monster thing that you fight every once in a while but other than that like the enemy types are very restricted and limited and the ai is not very smart and it just feels like you are just sort of like it's fun because there's this power fantasy aspect of it you're just like spreading through and just murdering all these people but like i think the the actual like encounter design in something like infinite warfare is a lot more engaging just in terms of the sort of like you know taking cover and finding like flanking routes on enemy positions and stuff like that there's a staidness and like a deliberateness to the combat in call of duty that benefits a single player campaign design in terms of the counter stuff that with, with titanfall 2 while it's really fun to see all their crazy ideas and do all the platforming and wall running stuff the actually shooting guys is like so brain dead simple that's like you're just going to like fucking breeze your way through this whole game i'm actually curious i might like try and play something on the master difficulty just to see if that maybe makes it a little bit harder but then at the same time the nature of timefall is such that like you know all the weapons are hit scan weapons and so it's not like doom where you can dodge projectiles all over the place like you are going to get hit no matter how fast you're running as long as there are enough ai guys and so to give you an out on that they give you the cloaking ability that just is basically a like get out of jail free card for like well you've just taken enough hits that now just hit this cloak ability and you'll basically recharge your health by the time it's done uncloaking and then you can kill some guys again and that just feels like their way of sort of designing around the idea of like you can't play this game avoiding all damage because you cannot dodge the projectiles. It's just not the way the game mechanically functions. Right. So I don't think that is not, you know, especially if you're comparing it to something like Doom, like the single player is nowhere near as good as something like Doom. But for if you are. Yeah, but for something that is like a fun like single player bonus to what is a multiplayer focused game, I think like Timefall 2's campaign is very good. Like well, it's so, way better than like most Call of Duty campaigns of recent years, with the exception of Infinite Warfare. Like I would take it over something like Advanced Warfare's campaign, but I but I would definitely not take it over Infinite Warfare or Doom. But you're also naming two incredible games. Like I, yeah, but it's also I mean, like Doom is not quite the same. But like Infinite Warfare, it's like its other main competition. And I, oh, I get it. Yeah, I don't think it's as good as that. But so could we say maybe it's not a game worth evangelizing crazily? But yeah, as a I think first I think effort, people are overselling the, the the quality of the campaign. But yes, as a first effort and like as you know, and as a as a sort of if I feel like if you look at the single player campaign as a bonus mode to the multiplayer. It's like it's it is way more it's a way better than you would expect it to be. Yeah. I just don't think that it's like it's I would not buy this game just for the single player the way that like I would buy Infinite Warfare just for the single player. Like if I even if having bought this game for only twenty bucks, if I did not like the multiplayer, I wouldn't have felt bad about my purchase because I wouldn't think that the single player was worth that much. But like the, I'm having a lot more fun with the multiplayer and so I'm like happy with having bought this game. But 
Awesome. All right, so I will move into my last game of the day, and that is Pokemon Sun and Moon, I guess, because they're the same thing. But I'm playing Sun. My brother was playing Moon. Uh, my brother spent the whole week playing Moon, and he beat the damn thing already. Damn. And it's a big Did he game. catch all five billion Pokemon? No, uh, I don't think so yet. But he's how, how, do you lot. know how many Pokemon we're up to now? What's um, the number? I don't know the total number. This game's Pokedex, Thomas was telling me, is somewhere in the three hundreds. Okay. But I mean, in terms of overall, but this also does like kind of a best of thing with okay. Pokemon. Um, like you could almost compare this to how Digimon story was like. We're going to pick the best Digimon yeah, from yeah. all over. Um, this is kind of the same thing. Wait, so does, does that have... mean that you can't get every single Pokemon in this one game? I don't think so. I don't think there's huh. any Pokemon game that's put every single one in there. Huh? That's where I, I just I mean, always I, assume that like you could always carry the Pokemon from the past games forward in such a way that eventually you could have well all two thousand or whatever. Maybe, know. and I will say that's I'm talking about like the the main Alola Pokedex. Okay, yeah, it is totally possible that once you beat it, maybe you get like the international decks, which they've done sometimes. Because I know you can trade up from Ruby, Sapphire, XY, the other 3DS games. Um, and those can trade up from the DS games if you do th- th- go through enough hoops. So maybe you can, especially with their Pokemon Bank thing. I'm just talking about like the main decks of okay. the game of what you do. Like if you were not trading and doing other stuff, what but you so, yeah. So, game. but like with this game, like we're up to the, yeah, like the guy that you go talk to, or whatever that says like, oh, your Pokedex is fifty percent complete or whatever, and then you eventually get some bullshit award for getting one hundred percent Pokedex completion. That's like three hundred something yes. for this game. Okay. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, God, if this is the seventh Pokemon game, so if you assume each one adds at least 100 Pokemon, we're above 700. And I, there, a lot of them add more than that. So yeah. we're probably at 1,000 or more. Yeah. If that someone needs to get to work on a new Pokemon rap that just does all of them <laughs> together, there's 1,052 m- 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 more to see. Yes, that would be, that would be a thing. Yeah. That would be a thing. So Pokemon Sun and Moon, I was really looking forward to these because I really loved X and Y. X and Y took me completely by surprise with just how good they were. And so I was looking forward to this as a sequel to X and Y, but also in the months and weeks leading up to this, I think we kept seeing more cool stuff from this game. And my ultimate reaction, I've played probably 10 hours, which is sort of only scratching the surface. Like X and Y, this is much longer than Pokemon games you might be used to from your childhood or something. Right. Um, which I think, you know, red, blue, gold, silver, ruby, sapphire, I'm thinking more of like a 20-hour thing. Yeah, me too. X and Y was 35 hours for me, and that was not even doing a completionist kind of thing. I think Sun and Moon are probably at least that. Um, so big games um, in terms of, you know, the time you would put in. And so I've put in about 10, and actually I think that kind of sets my reaction to the game, which okay, is yeah. I'm pretty mixed, but I'm mixed-leaning consistently positive, but my like the things that make me mixed are small things that I think have big impacts on this game. Okay. Um, but my initial reaction was like super impressed because I think the things this game does well, it does better than any other Pokemon game. Like aesthetically, it is amazing having this Hawaii setting, and they are eking out every single bit of processing power out of the 3DS. And it is not surprising that there are now reports that there is going to be a third version of this for the Nintendo Switch. And I think that will be a blast just because they will be freed from like the 240p resolution of the 3DS. And they can just go crazy with the graphics and stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. Even if I don't love Sun and Moon so far, I might just put this aside until the Switch version because that's going to be so impressive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like Alola is a really cool looking region. It builds on... 
X and Y, which was the first games that went like full-blown 3D, where you are moving around in environments, the towns are fully built-out towns, you know, Sun and Moon one-ups that because it's fully built-out islands, and like, if you play it during the like sweet hour of sunset, this game, like the colors in it are just amazing. Definitely one of the most graphically impressive games on the 3DS, and the best-looking Pokemon game there's ever been. The music is also fantastic. Um, it, I'd have to go back to like the first two games, you know, Red and Gold and Silver, to say another Pokemon soundtrack that grabbed me this immediately. Like this definitely sounds like it's of the vein of contemporary Japanese game soundtracks, like a Digimon or a Persona or something like that, where it's sort of playing with more modern musical styles and kind of just being more musically adventurous. And I think the music is very, very good. In particular, the cue that plays whenever you start a trainer battle. Is just It is in my head so hard that whenever I started a battle in Dragon Ball Fusions, I expected to hear it, and nice. it's not there, and it would throw me off. But like, So that's really good. Um, some of the stuff it does with Pokemon designs, where I like the new Pokemon. I think this is a really solid lineup of starters, more so than they've had in a while. Sure. Um, and so I think those are... I like the starters, but also like immediately you start getting... There are some new Pokemon in Alola, and they're fine. I don't think they're the greatest, but they're also... We are far from, like, the nadir of Pokemon where we had ice cream cone Pokemon. We have rebounded from that solidly. But also you have the Alola variants of old Pokemon and things like that where, like, I think Alola Meowth is super cool. I love him. Um, God, I got some other ones that were neat where I wound up just with all these, like, old Pokemon in my party. But they didn't feel like old Pokemon to me because they'd done this cool thing where they'd done this kind of aesthetic redo of them. And then you have some Pokemon that return that haven't necessarily been aesthetically redone, but they've done fun stuff with, like, Pikachu is now fully voiced by the actress who does Pikachu. I think you mean the actress who does the voice of Morgana <laughs> in Persona 5? Yes. As she shall now be known. Yeah, anyway. But, um, for some, like, I, maybe they'd done that in X and Y, but I forget. I just, I remember both Thomas and I were surprised when Pikachu came out, and I'm like, oh, it's just going Pikachu. And, and things like that. someone else throws out a fucking Geodude, just like... Exactly. So you still have that with everyone else. and uh, But no, Pikachu is, is voiced now, so that's kind of interesting. So there's fun stuff like that. I think the game, you know, in terms of the menu systems and stuff, and the way it handles some traditional Pokemon stuff, it is much more user-friendly than Pokemon has ever been before. Um, including, like, if you're going to do a trade, it just shows you your TM box, and you don't have to run back and trade out and bullshit like that. All of that is super helpful and nice. It's got you get the man. Ex- it took them a while to do that, huh? Maybe that's an X and Y. Some of this blurs together, you okay, know. Yeah. There, there have been seven yeah. of these goddamn things. Yeah, they're Pokemon games. I <laughs> yeah. trust me. I get the feeling of the pro, uh, blurring together. Anyway, but that's nice. Um, whether it's new or not, um, things that are definitely new in that vein. Oh. One of the things, the experience share returns, I was saying that. That's not new, that is from X and Y, but you get it very early on here. I still love the experience share, just that you can bring your Pokemon up to level at the same time. That makes Pokemon better. It is It is such a big year for JRPGs that just allow your uh-huh. your party members to be all the same level. Yeah. You know? It's no Digimon story where you're leveling up 60 Pokemon at a time. Right. But I'll, you know, one step at a time. We'll, I'll take what I can get. Um, but then there are some new ideas that are fantastic. Like, they have completely removed the HM system. You still get TMs. Thank God. But, like, the whole thing where you have to get, you know, cut and surf and rock The whole smash. thing where you have to just, like, relegate one sad Pokemon to the flash hole. It's yeah. like, well, you're the one who gets flash. 
I'm never using you again after we get out of this fucking cave, and you're cut. Exactly. Never using you after this. So I'm what, just throwing you in my fucking trash can. What they replace that with is such a fun and creative system where you have this, like, device, and you activate it with Y that, like, calls certain Pokemon to you that live on the islands, and they will do those things. So the first one you get is a Tauros, and you can ride the Tauros, and nice. that alone I use a lot because it's like you can move fast. It's like the bike, but it's cool because it's a fucking Tauros, and you are just riding that fucking Tauros through town. But Tauros can also, if you hold B down, he can like start doing a charge, and that's Rock Smash now. So that's, that's awesome. Can, um, you, can you ride an RK9? Can I? I don't know. I'm not I've, that deep in. Maybe. Because it would be pretty... I'm just saying, if I was going to ride a Pokemon, I would probably ride RK9, because he's okay. pretty fucking cool. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen RK9, but he's pretty cool, though. He's a cool Pokemon. Um, but yeah, you can get him um, for, uh, for Surf. It's just a Lapras. Comes up, and you ride the yeah, Lapras. Classic. That's super easy, and you just, you know, you don't even have to bring up Y for that. You just press A on the water, and Lapras jumps up, and you are riding on Lapras. Super easy. Uh, and then I just got Fly today, and that is a Charizard. And you just, okay. You, you Not just, the first Pokemon I think of would fly, but Charizard can definitely fly. Yep, and he's fucking cool, and they know it. And so you just bring up your Charizard, and it does several things mechanically that are huge improvements. The biggest one being you do not have to worry about your team and the management of HMs. It's just a bonus thing on the side. Um, and it's easier to use than ever, too, because you don't have to like go into the menu and select your Pokemon and blah, 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 blah. It's just there, and you have it. And it's nice. And then there are other Pokemon that do other non-HM related things. Like there's one that you can get on and like search for items. I don't think I've found that a use for that yet, but I'm sure it's there. Uh, and of course you don't have to use it. So all of that is really neat. The other thing they've done, and this is where I start to get a little more mixed, is they've re- completely removed gyms. Which right, yeah. is a pretty revolutionary step. for That's something I never thought would that's go That's like Legend of Zelda saying like we're not doing dungeons anymore. Like they're yeah. just straight up scrapped. And to be fair, there are still... You know, eight events. Yeah, they're called trials. They're called yeah, but they're not a gym where you go in a building and get to the final trainer and fight them. That's not it. Some of them are not even primarily built around Pokemon battles. Um, So I've done three of the trials so far. Um, So I've done all of them on the first island, and I'm almost done with the second island. There's four islands total in Alola. Um, Thank God they didn't do like a full Japanese island nation, and there's like 87 islands to go to. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's like some of them are just like like one square kilometer or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so there's the four islands and you've got the trials. And the whole idea behind the trials is that um, there's a captain on this island and that they have a trial that they are associated with and they've set it up and you go through. And so, you know, one of the trials might be you have to go find these um, fish Pokemon in this water area. And that's also where you get surf and you go through and you get that. And then you might do a battle and then at the end you have to do a battle with the totem Pokemon of the region or of this trial. And then you complete the trial. So there are different sort of creative adventures you have. But they are also built out narratively in a much bigger way. And this gets into the larger discussion of how Pokemon Sun and Moon I think has really fundamentally changed Pokemon. Where Pokemon in the past are sort of like handheld open world games. Where you can co- sort of technically go anywhere and you're on an adventure and it's there. It's not always completely directed where you should go. You just right, kind of yeah. follow the path until you find a place and maybe you can do it now. Maybe you have to come back. Something like that. Pokemon Sun and Moon is not that. You can kind of go anywhere you want, sort of. But it is really on rails and there is a story here in a way Pokemon has never had a story. Huh. Where there are characters, there's an ongoing narrative, and they have narrativized things that Pokemon never narrativized before. So like, we can all make the jokes of like, haha, the mother just lets her son go off at 10 to you know, adventure, journey the world. Yes, to die alone in a cave somewhere of <laughs> like a broken leg. Yes, exactly. But in Pokemon Sun and Moon, the idea is that you move to Alola and it's like... 
this coming of age thing that the Alolans do where they have these trials set up. A kid at the age of 10 goes out and they get this Pokemon and they have to go through the trials and it's like something that this community and society does together. And so as a result of that, it's a smaller cast of characters than you'll get in a Pokemon game, but you get to know them all very well. And you don't just like battle the professor once, you might do it several times and you meet him several times in different contexts and things like that. Um, And I think that's a really cool idea, and I like a lot of that very much. The problem to me is that it is so on rails, and it is so hand-holdy. You know, you've got a map that says, go here, and you go there, and you finish that, and then it says, go here, and you go there, and you finish that. And that kind of sense of exploration and spontaneity to Pokemon is sort of gone with this one. And it shows Hmm. some of the limits of Pokemon to me in the way they've sort of changed the basic fabric of how you approach it. And how you interact with it. Um, But it runs pretty deep. So like the big thing in this game is the Z moves. Because your character has this Z ring. And they get these crystals. And then those, based on this little dance you do with the Z ring and the crystals. That can give your Pokemon this special move. It's basically the next version of like Mega Evolutions. Which they did in X and Y. Um, But where Mega Evolutions was this kind of. I really liked them. Because it was sort of a small narrative thing going on. You got it maybe midway through the game. And then different Pokemon could do Mega Evolutions. And one, just the animations were fucking awesome. And I loved that stuff. And they also were pretty fun and useful to use. The Z-moves, I don't really like. They, for one, using one of them, the animation takes so fucking yeah, long. I, I saw the, a video of, like, all the Z-moves. And yeah. like, or, like, I think, I, maybe not all of them, but a couple of them. It was like, they were, like, Final Fantasy Summon style. Like, oh, this is... This is I, I should probably, like, go make some food or something while this animation plays, because this is going to go. Yes, and given the number of battles you do in Pokemon, and the number of moves you might have to use in a battle, and that the Z-moves are not... Like, the Mega Evolution moves could really fuck your shit up. Like, that's you were ending the match when you did that. Z-moves don't do that. And so, like, I just don't want to use them because they take too long and the benefits aren't there. But they're really built into the game, because every trial is built around an element and built around a Z-crystal. And so, it's smart, because that's how they tie in, you know, you're gonna get Surf in the water thing, but you also get the water crystal, and now you can use the water Z-moves. And this is also the part where they introduce water Pokémon for you to catch. So it's really well thought out. Like, I, I think they were really clear in figuring out how do we take all the pieces of Pokémon and rearrange them in a way that feels really well organized and not maybe a scattershot as some Pokemon games can be. But again, I think the downside is it's very on rails. The rewards of the Z-Crystals, I just do not want to use as a part of the game. And then it feels just so kind of rote of go here, do this, do this. And that sort of some of the magic of Pokemon goes out of it for me with that. Um, So I don't know. I keep winding up comparing it to X and Y because I think X and Y were the ultimate kind of perfect culmination of traditional Pokemon. They changed some things, but they were still in that very much red, blue, you know, gold, silver vein. Yeah. But I think they were sort of the best, most complete iteration of that. Pokemon Sun and Moon feels like the like an in between step. Like this is a you know gestational step towards a very different Pokemon. But I think there's still some stuff they have to figure out, and some of it in this I find very interesting. Some of it I find incredibly dull, and some of it just kind of drains me of my energy to play it. And the biggest problems by far, are two systems they've introduced that sound fun on paper and kill the game in practice. Yes. 
One of them is they've got this sort of Pokemon grooming thing. I have, which I have heard of this. I really do like the idea of. And I think with some small changes, this could be great. Because I like, for instance, in Digimon, you can go into your Digifarm and look at your Digimon and, and give them a throw food. food at his face. Throw food at like, his face. Eat this, Wargreymon. Yeah. I'll look at you. And just feel like you have maybe more of a relationship with your creature. Pokemon has always needed that. Yeah. And so after battles or from the main menu, you can do this thing where you go into a Pokemon-like grooming kind of mode and you have different tools and you can like brush the Pokemon, you can give it a treat, you can pet the Pokemon. I like those things as ideas, but every action takes way too long. Like, just if you want to rub a Pokemon to get the heart, it's not just like in, you know, the Chow Garden where you go, Yosh, and the, yeah. the Chow is happy. It's, you're going to rub the screen for 30 seconds. And I'm not kidding when I say 30 seconds. You're going to rub and rub and rub and rub and rub, and then the Pokemon will finally explode with hearts. And at a certain point, it feels weirdly sexual because, yeah, I, you yeah. know. The video I saw, yeah, it, it, rubbing, looked, it looked intimate, let's say. Yeah, you're rubbing a long time. And anyway, so you do that, and then, you know, uh, that's... Just takes too long. But then the ones that are battle related, so like a Pokemon can get dirt on it in battle or some lint or something, and you have to like brush it off. Oh, it. I don't know how to. You got some lint on you here, Pikachu. Let's, yeah. We have to deal with this immediately. Right. So you can use your comb and then get that stuff off. But again, it is rub, 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 rub. Okay, finally got that one off. There's two more. Rub, 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 rub. Are you saying that you're not having a lot of fun rubbing one out on your Pokemon? Should we stop the podcast there? Is that the end of our review? No, no, we can't stop there. We have to yeah. keep going. I'm sorry. I just I I thought of it and I had to say it immediately. It's okay. Yeah. You're saying um, just you're saying rub so much. I know, I know. So then also you can clear status effects with a medicine tool. Also cool. Because um, you can just at the end of a match be like, okay, I don't have to remember to go into a menu later. I can just use this. But again, it's rub and rub and rub and rub and rub. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go buy a fucking paralyzed heal. Because I know how to do that. It's easy. If, if it ain't broken don't fix it right yeah, it's like level. you know when so, your when your pokemon gets covered in mud can you just ask squirtle to shoot it with water gun and be done with it you know that would be great but yeah so again i like this as an idea having more direct interaction with your pokemon is something pokemon frankly needs yeah. because that's such an important part but having it be this tedious and monotonous and frankly something that you kind of if you want to do well have to do after every battle and there are it's pokemon you battle a constantly. lot it's just too much, and it's just it's the kind of thing where I will do a couple of battles because I'm like in the tall grass and I'm just grinding to catch Pokemon, which is something normally I enjoy. It's something I can just kind of turn my brain off and do, yeah. and that's one of the appeals of Pokemon. But when you add in the the grooming stuff, it's just like I just wind up closing my 3DS and doing something else, and like I'll come back to it later, and I do it a lot. The other thing that really enhances the close my 3DS and come back to it later is they've added this system where wild Pokemon can call for help. And okay, you have yeah. probably seen the memes yeah. of the call for help because, again, I think off the top of my head, like on paper, I don't think that's a bad idea of like Pokemon, it can, the battles can be a little more dynamic. Yeah, if you go ahead but, and call your friends, fucking Dodrio, I will murder them too. I don't but care. the problem is, I'll massacre your entire family. They've done nothing to adjust the battle system when those other Pokemon come. So basically, okay. a Pokemon, let's say you're fighting, 
a young goose, which is like the new Zigzagoon, which is the new Rattata in this game. Yeah, so that's the Rattata. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, you got. Let's just say it's a Rattata. Because, <laughs> oh, Rattata, Alolan Rattata is the most badass fucking Pokemon. He's got like a fucking, like, um, slightly whiplash mustache. Nice. <laughs> like he's going to go tie a female Rattata to the train tracks. It's great. And then when he evolves, Raticate, Alolan Raticate is just super fat. And it's hilarious. I nice. love that. See, there's things in this game I love. But, so let's say you got Rattata, and Rattata calls a friend. And if it doesn't work, then it's just this long animation, and then it comes back down and says, it didn't work. And you're like, this Rattata is pathetic. But if it does work, then there's a second Rattata on the screen. And you're thinking, okay, I can deal with that. But the problem is, it's still just a turn-by-turn thing, and you don't get to send out a second Pokemon. You oh. still have one Pokemon. So I might be able to kill the original Rattata because I already had him down. But then what does the other Rattata do? He oh, calls a friend. And now I have that friend. And if I don't have a move that affects both Pokemon, of which there are very, very few, of my entire six-person team, I only have one move, and that's Razor Leaf. And that's on my uh, Grass Starter. And so that's... So, only... so you went Rowlet? I went Rowlet. I think that's the right choice. Yeah, I wanted to go Poplio, but Thomas did Poplio, so I thought I'm going to go Rowlet. I've, I feel like the people's defense of Poplio has created this disingenuous love for Poplio that's like, because people had such negative reaction to Poplio originally, there's all these people out there being like, oh, I love Poplio so much. It's like, you wouldn't give a fucking shit about Poplio if people hadn't made a stink about him. That, that your love for Poplio is such a fucking put-on, I can't stand it. Anyway, so, yeah, I got, you know, Rowlet can use um, Razor Leaf, but obviously that's not effective against every Pokemon. Um, and even if it does, if I, one of them dies, then the other one can just call another Pokemon in. And so sometimes these can last for just fucking ever if you cannot get one of them down. And God forbid if you're trying to catch the Pokemon, then you have to keep one of them low, kill the other one, hope it doesn't call a Pokemon, throw your Pokeball, because guess what? When both of them are out, you cannot throw a Pokeball. Oh, At okay. all. So I feel like, mecha- again, weird. on paper, fine idea. We're going to throw more Pokemon in battle, whatever. In execution, they did nothing to make that a system that works. And in fact, it so thoroughly breaks the system of like just random going through the tall grass grinding that I dread it. And that when I get, I'm in the tall grass, I'll do a couple of battles, maybe I'll catch one Pokemon, and then I get an encounter where a second one comes in. I oftentimes just again, I shut my 3DS, put it in sleep, and I'm like, I'll come back to it. But increasingly, I'm not coming back to it because it just is kind of draining me. So... These are all fairly little things that wind up having big footprints on the game. And again, I think it's got some really, really good things to it. Like, for every moment of frustration, I will then have a moment where I'm like, man, this game is really creative and passionate with how it's trying to do a really fun, different style Pokemon adventure. And then it does something annoying where I'm like, but I'd rather play X and Y or one of the more traditional ones because maybe they weren't as blow-the-doors-off creative but they were much more solid as games. Yeah. So I will say Thomas was feeling the same way. My brother, he wound up pushing through and playing the whole game. And he thought it got better as it went along. So maybe it opens up and gets better. So far, three out of seven trials in, I'm not feeling it all that much. And I'm kind of, you know, I, want, I wanted to play Dragon Ball Fusions more. And the only reason I really stuck with Pokemon as long as I have so far is Thomas was around and we were playing together sometimes. So, you know... There are things I like about it very much, but it's, you know, there's also some problems. And I will not lie, 
having played Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth might have right. ruined Pokemon yeah. forever because even at, my its, fear. even at its best, it's kind of tough to look at these Pokemon and feel like, why can't I train 60 of you at once? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's something where it just feels like, you know, if Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth handled, like, did that, like, call for help thing, its response would that would be like, oh, okay, you're going to call for help? That's fine. I'm just going to have all my Digimon come out then? <laughs> like, fuck this? Like, I'm just going to swarm you with every single Digimon in the game? Like, can you imagine that in Pokemon? That it's like you're up there and you're trying to respect the rules of the, the, the honored, time-honored traditions of Pokemon on Pokemon combat. And this fucking upstart young Rattata just decides... No, I'm going to fucking call my friends. We're going to do a gang beatdown on this rally. You're like, oh, that's cute. And you just, like, unzip your backpack. You have, like, 20 Pokeballs up there with Pokemon. You just dump it on the ground and so like, let's go, motherfucker. And it's just a Pokemon on Pokemon, just all-out brawl. It's a fucking Rattata massacre. Like, no Rattata goes, like, within two miles of that area because they, they can still smell the fucking corpses, you know? Like, that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's, you know, I would not dissuade anyone who's passionate about Pokemon from playing this. It is not a bad game. It's a good game. I don't know if it's 100% for me, but, and you know, if you haven't played any Pokemon game on the 3DS, I would still recommend X and Y because I think those are pretty exceptional games. But, you know, it's good. It's going to sell an unholy amount of copies. And again, that's my, that's why I, I don't understand the Dragon Ball Fusions thing because... Pokemon Sun and Moon were scheduled to ship more copies than any 3DS game ever has at launch, yeah. and it probably will become the highest selling 3DS game, period. I don't know why you would want to launch your game against that. Yeah. But anyway, it's weird. A lot of people were making that decision these last two months. Yeah, weirdly. you know, like some of them or one of them was making that decision against their own fucking video game. Two, yeah. but Bethesda. Did Dishonored 2 the week of Skyrim Special yeah. Edition yeah. against the re-release of their most popular game ever. Yeah, that you could put out whenever the fuck you want and you would sell millions of copies of Skyrim. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think we're running out of time and we need to move on, but it is so weird that I think every October, November is a pileup, right? Yes. I think it's been worse these last two months than ever because I, there's just... just so... it's Because I don't think it's more video games than usual. It just feels like they put all the same ones right next to each other. Like, yes. Titanfall 2, or Battlefield 1, Titanfall 2, and Call of Duty Infinite Warfare all came out in three weeks in that order, right next to each other. Like, in two of those, again, Titanfall 2 and Battlefield 1 are both EA. Why would you put all of those games right next to each other in yeah. the fall? Why wouldn't you put one at, like, put one in September if, like, the Call of Duty is going to be in November? Like, fucking put up Battlefield 1 a little bit earlier, or if you can't swing that, put it, like, delay it a little bit. Or Titanfall 2 would be a good March game. Yes, the way that Titanfall 1 was. Yeah, it's just, like, it was a pileup because, one, all of these games were good. There weren't any, like, critical failures in these last two yeah. months. And two, they came out on top of each other and cannibalized their own audiences. Like, I wound up sitting out the, the great first-person shooter massacre of these last two months basically because I couldn't pick which one to play. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, uh, I'm going to go play Mario. Like, it's just, at some point, like, if you're being assaulted from all sides, and we're pretty informed. I don't know what the just random video game consumer has made of these last two months of gaming. And it's re led to some real flops. Yeah, like Watch Dogs 2 has just like completely insanely bombed. underperformed. It's like in a way that's, you know, not necessarily surprising when you <laughs> remember Watch Dogs 1 and yeah. think about like who's going to go look at a game that has that's Watch Dogs with the number 2 after and be like, "Well, I played the first one, so of course I'm going to pick this up." It's like fucking no human being's ever going to make that rational choice. But even like, you know, the, that got modest critical praise, but no one's talked about it since the day it came out. Yeah. No one cares. There's just 
There's a lot of games like Dishonored 2. You know, you probably liked it less than a lot of people. Yeah. It got good reviews, but it's had no discussion online. It's had no, no yeah. footprint because what footprint could it have in this landscape of these two months? Yeah, like the past couple of months for video game sales in particular, it's, it has kind of felt like um, what the movie industry has gone through this year with a lot of sequels, particularly over the yeah. summer months, of just like... Uh, there, I think there's a certain amount of audience fatigue for some genres, like for like first per multiplayer, first person shooters. I think like there's the, the Call of Duty's sort of slow decline has put that market into sort of like a weird state. And then also just like there are so many different games out, and there's like there's so many small games and so many big games that I've, like I think the audiences have diversified in a lot of ways. And we are also we're seeing the dividends of some bad decisions with like Watch Dogs One, where it just feels like a lot of stuff came together that made this fall in terms of sales feel like it's a big underperformer, even while we have had some games like Hitman or even Mafia 3, which is a game that came out in like August or something, like way overperformed for what people would have expected for that kind of game, you yeah. know? And I, I really do think we're going to see a sea change in how this kind of pre-Black Friday, pre-Thanksgiving releases go. Yeah. Because we already saw that some people were willing to just sit it out. Like Final Fantasy, which we'll talk about in a second, just decided we're going to end in November, yeah. and they're clearly going to benefit from that because that's the only game people will be talking about through the rest of 2016. Yeah, and so things like that, um, I can just imagine like you know the next Battlefield or something. I don't think they're going to put it against the next Call of Duty. I, I think you know Bethesda's going to learn. All right, we shouldn't put our two big fall releases out <laughs> the same day or whatever. Yeah, you know I, I think we're going to see a sea change in sort of that release pattern because it really did nobody any favors this fall yeah like i just feel like you are seeing um just the changes like stuff like digital distribution and stuff like that has made it so that we don't need to pack everything in at the end you know you can have stuff like the witcher 3 which came out in may last year and that's like that sell they're sold like hotcakes for months because one it kind of released on its own and so it got so much critical attention that like it had the sales on that game had such a long tail it's like, and then now you have your DLC and you have the Game of the Year edition, so Witcher 3 is going to sell even more. And Witcher 3 was such an insane success for a relatively modest studio like CD Projekt Red. I feel like that's sort of an example of, you, you can do that whenever. Like, you do not have to put out a game at fall. And in fact, you want to put a game out when it has its own sort of like mind share on, on the video gaming public. So that it can get that word of mouth and it can get that attention because, you know, Dishonored 2 is a really good game and like, and there are a lot of people that are way more into that kind of game that would probably love it if it like, it had its own time to sort of breathe on its own and sort of get that attention. But it doesn't yeah. because it's shoved in between like every other fucking game on the planet. Yeah. Well, this has been a exceptionally long episode, yeah. but I think we cleared the deck because this Tuesday... Final Fantasy XV, God. a game we have been waiting for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And I am so excited. I cannot wait to play this thing. We will be talking about... That will be our topic next week. We are going to play as much as we can, and we probably won't finish it by next week. Oh, God, I but can't we'll, imagine we would. Yeah, but we'll see how much we can talk about you know, uh, through next week. And you excited? I'm, I'm very excited. I've, I'm happy that I was able to clear the deck... Yeah. Of like all these other games that I needed to play, and even snuck in Titanfall two there for a little bit. Yep. But yeah, I, I, I think I think I am ready to. I've recovered enough from Persona five. Yeah. To jump into another big JRPG, I'm ready to, to hit the road with my boys. Yeah, I'm. I need to go catch up on Brotherhood, and then you know it's all black leather from here. <laughs>